This is Heisenberg. Recorded Books and One Click Digital present Golden Sun by Pierce Brown. Narrated by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Once upon a time, a man came from the sky and killed my wife. Beside him now, I walk on a mountain that floats over our world. Snow falls. Battlements of white stone and shimmering glass yawn out of the rock. Around us swirls a chaos of greed. All the great goals of Mars descend upon the Institute to lay claim to the best and brightest of our year. Their ships swarm the morning sky, cutting over a world of snow and smoking castles for Olympus, which I stormed only hours before. Take a last look, he tells me, as we near his shuttle. All that came before was but a whisper of our world. When you leave this mountain, all bonds are broken, all oaths dust. You are not prepared. No one ever is. Across the crowd, I see Cassius with his father and siblings as they make their way to their shuttle. Their eyes burn at us over the white, and I remember the sound of his brother's heart as it beat its last. A rough hand with bony fingers lays claim to my shoulder, clutching possessively. Augustus stares at his enemies. Bologna's do not forgive or forget. They are many, but they cannot harm you. His cold eyes peer down at me, his fresh prize. For you belong to me, Darrow, and I protect what is mine. As do I. For seven hundred years my people have been enslaved without voice, without hope. Now I am their sword. And I do not forgive. I do not forget. So let him lead me onto his shuttle. Let him think he owns me. Let him welcome me into his house so I might burn it down. But then his daughter takes my hand and I feel all the lies fall heavy on my shoulders. They say a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. They made no mention of the heart. Part One Bow Hic sunt leones, here be lions. Nero au Augustus Chapter 1 Warlords My silence thunders. I stand on the bridge of my starship, arm broken and held in a gel cast, iron burns still raw on my neck. I'm bloody damn tired. My razor coils around my good right arm like a cold metal snake. Before me, space opens, vast and terrible. Small fragments of light prick the darkness, and primordial shadows move to block those stars on the fringes of my vision. 
Asteroids. They float slowly around my man-of-war, Quietus, as I search the blackness for my quarry. Win, my master told me. Win as my children cannot, and you will bring honor to the name Augustus. Win at the academy, and you earn yourself a fleet. He likes dramatic repetition. It suits most statesmen. He'd have me win for him, but I'd win for the red girl with a dream bigger than she ever could be. I'd win so that he dies, and her message burns across the ages. Small order. I'm twenty. Tall and broad in the shoulders. My uniform all sable, now wrinkled. Hair long and eyes golden, bloodshot. Mustang once said I have a sharp face with cheeks and nose seemingly carved from angry marble. I avoid mirrors myself. Better to forget the mask I wear, the mask that bears the angled scar of the golds who rule the worlds from Mercury to Pluto. I am of the peerless scarred, cruelest and brightest of all humankind, but I miss the kindest of them. The one who asked me to stay, as I bid her and Mars goodbye on her balcony, almost a year ago. Mustang. I gave her a horse-crested gold ring as a parting gift, and she gave me a razor. Fitting. The taste of her tears grows stale in my memory. I've not heard from her since I left Mars. Worse, I've not heard from the sons of Ares since I won at Mars's institute more than two years ago. Dancer said he would contact me once I graduated, but I've been cast adrift among a sea of golden faces. This is so far from the future I imagined for myself as a boy. So far from the future I wanted to make for my people when I let the sons carve me. I thought I would change the world. What young fool doesn't? Instead, I've been swallowed by the machine of this vast empire as it rumbles inexorably on. At the Institute, they'd trained us to survive and conquer. Here at the Academy, they taught us war. Now they test our fluency. I lead a fleet of warships against other golds. We fight with dummy munitions and launch raiding parties from ship to ship in the way of gold astral combat. No reason to break a ship that costs the gross yearly output of twenty cities when you can send leechcraft packed with obsidians, golds and greys to seize her vital organs and make her your prize. Amid lessons of astral combat, our teachers hammered in the maxims of their race. Only the strong survive, only the brilliant rule. And then they left, and let us fend for ourselves, jumping asteroid to asteroid, searching for supplies, bases, hunting our fellow students, till only two fleets remain. I'm still playing games. This is just the deadliest yet. It's a trap, Roke says from my elbow. His hair is long, like mine, and his face soft as a woman's and placid as a philosopher's. Killing in space is different from killing on land. Roke is a prodigy at it. There's poetry to it, he says. Poetry to the motion of the spheres and the ships that sail between.
His face fits with the blues who crew these vessels. Airy men and women who drift like wayward spirits through the metal halls, all logic and strict order. But it's not so elegant a trap as Carnus might think. He continues. He knows we're eager to end the game, so he will wait on the other side, force us into a choke point and release his missiles, tried and true since the dawn of time. Roke carefully points to the space between two huge asteroids, a narrow corridor we must travel if we wish to continue following Carnus's wounded ship. Everything's a damn trap. Tactus our wrath, rangy and careless, yawns. He leans his dangerous frame against the viewport and shoots a stem up his nose from the ring on his finger. He tosses the spent cartridge to the floor. Carnus knows he's lost. He's just torturing us, leading us on a little merry chase so we can't sleep. The selfish prick. You're such a little pixie, always yapping and whining. Victra Au Julii sneers from her place against the viewport. Her jagged hair hangs just past ears pierced with jade. Impetuous and cruel, but neither to a fault. She disdains makeup in favor of the scars she's earned through her twenty-seven years. There are many. Her eyes are heavy, deeply set, her sensual mouth wide with lips shaped to purr insults. She looks more like her famous mother than her younger half-sister Antonia, but in her capacity for general mayhem, she far outstrips both. Traps mean nothing, she declares. His fleet has been dashed. He has but one ship. We're seven. How about we just bust his mouth? Darrow has seven, Roke reminds her. Your pardon? she asks, annoyed at the correction. Seven of Darrow's ships remain. You call them ours. They are not ours. He is Primus. The Dantic poet strikes again. The point is the same, my goodman. That we should be rash instead of prudent? Roke asks. That it is seven against one. It would be embarrassing to let this drag out any longer. So let's squish the bologna thug like a cockroach with our sizable boot, fly back to base, take our just rewards from old Augustus, and go play. She twists her heel for emphasis. Here, here, Tactus agrees. My kingdom for a gram of demon dust. That's your fifth stim shot today, Tactus? Roke asks. Yes, thank you for noticing, Mommy dearest. But I grow weary of this military crank. I believe I desire pearl clubs and copious amounts of respectable drugs. You're going to burn out. Tactus slaps his thigh. Live fast, die young. While you're a boring old raisin, I'll be a glorious memory of finer times and decadent days. Roke shakes his head. One day, my wayward friend, you're going to find someone you love who makes you laugh at the silly person you once were. You'll have children, you'll have an estate, 
and somehow you learn there are more important things than drugs and pinks. By Jove! Tactus stares at him in utter horror. That sounds resolutely miserable. I peer at the tactical display, ignoring their banter. The quarry we chase is Carnus Aubalona, the older brother of my former friend Cassius Aubalona, and the boy I killed in the passage, Julian Aubalona. Of that curly-haired family, Cassius is the favourite son. Julian was the kindest, and Carnus? My broken arm stands testament. He's the monster they let out of their basement to kill things. Since the Institute, my celebrity has grown. So when the news reached the violet gossip circuit that the Arch-Governor was finally sending me to further my studies, Carnus Aubalona and a few hand-picked cousins were dispatched by Cassius's mother to study as well. The family wants my heart on a plate. Quite literally. Only Augustus's badge holds them back. To attack me is to attack him. In the end, I could give a bloody piss about their vendetta or my master's blood feud with their house. I want the fleet so I can use it for the sons of Ares. What a mess I could cause. I've made a study of supply lines, sensor stations, battle groups, data hubs, all the pressure points that might cause the society to stagger. Darrow. Roke comes closer. Guard your hubris. Remember, Pax? Pride kills. I want it to be a trap. I tell Roke. Let Carnus turn and face us. He tilts his head. You've set your own trap for him. Now what makes you say that? You might have told us. I could have... Carnus falls today, brother. That is the simple fact of the matter. Of course. I only want to help. You know that. I know. I stifle a yawn and let my eyes sweep the bridge pits behind and below me. Blues of many shades toil there, working the systems that run my ship. They speak more slowly than any other colour, save obsidian, favouring digital communication. They are older than I, graduates of the midnight school, all. Beyond them, near the back of the bridge, grey marines and several obsidians stand sentinel. I clap Roke on the shoulder. It's time. Sailors! I call to the blues in the pit. Sharpen your wits. This is the final nail in the Bologna coffin. We put this bastard into the ether, and I promise the greatest gift in my power to give. A week of solid sleep. Prime? A few of the greys near the back of the bridge laugh. The blues just wrap their knuckles on their instruments. I'd give half my substantial bank account, compliments of the arch-governor, to see one of those pale airbrains crack a smile. Enough delay, I announce. Gunners to positions. Roke, cluster the destroyers. Victra, attend targeting. Tactus, defence deployment. We're ending this now. I look over at my wispy helm blue. He stands central in the pit beneath my command platform amid fifty others. 
The snaking digitats that mark the blue's bald heads and spidery hands glow subtle shades of cerulean and silver as they sync with the ship's computers. Their eyes go distant as optic nerves revert to the digital world. They speak only out of courtesy to us. Helmsman, engines to sixty percent. Aye, Dominus. He glances at the tactical display, a globular hollow floating above his head, voice like a machine. Mind, the concentration of metal in the asteroids presents difficulty in assessing spectra readings, where I might blind, a fleet could hide on the other side of the asteroids. He doesn't have a fleet. Into the breach, I say. The ship's engines rumble. I nod to Roke and say, Hic sunt leones, the words of our master, Nero Au Augustus, arch-governor of Mars, thirteenth of his name. My warlords echo the phrase, Here be lions. Chapter 2 The Breach On the tactical readout, the six nimble destroyers move around my remaining man-of-war. Eerie silence from the blue crew as the functions of war take over. On the plain, through which their minds now drift, words are slower than icebergs. My lieutenants monitor my fleet. At any other time, they'd be on their personal destroyers or leading men in leechcraft, but at the moment of victory, I want my fellows near. Yet even when my lieutenants stand here at my side, I feel that separation, that deep gulf between their world and mine. Missile signatures, says the calm blue. The bridge does not burst into action. No warning lights panic the crew. No shouts break the stillness. Blues are icy specimens raised from birth in communal sects that teach them to embrace logic and enact their function with cold efficiency. It's often said there are more computers than men. The dark space beyond my viewport blooms fresh with a thick veil of micro-explosions. Our flak bursts in a great screen of dull white clouds. Incoming missiles explode as the flak bursts detonate the missile's payloads prematurely. One gets through, and a destroyer on our far wing ripples from the simulated nuclear blast. Men would pour from her. Gases would seep out. Explosions might puncture holes in the metal hull and bring burning oxygen rupturing forth like blood from a whale, only to be swallowed in a blink by the black. But this is a war game, and they do not give us real nukes. The deadliest weapons here are the students. Another ship falls victim as railgun salvos rip through the flak. Tarot? Victor worries. I stand, absently thumbing the place Eo's ring once graced. Victor turns to me. Tarot, he's chewing us to pieces, if you haven't noticed. Lady has a point, Reap. Tactus echoes, face glowing blue from the tactical display. Whatever you have in store, don't be shy about it. Comms, tell Ripper and Talon squadrons to engage the enemy. 
I watched the tactical display as the squadrons I dispatched a half-hour prior sweep around either side of the asteroids and descend on Carnus's flank. From this distance, they are impossible to see with the naked eye, but they pulse gold on the display. Congratulations, my friend. Roke whispers before it is even done. There's a strange reverence in his voice, any earlier frustration now gone. With this, everything will change. He touches my shoulder. Everything. I watch my trap close, feeling the imminent victory drain the tension from my shoulders. The greys of my bridge take a step forward. Even the obsidians lean to watch the displays as Carnus's ship registers my squadron's signatures. He tries to flee, blasting his engines to escape what's coming, but the angles conspire against him. My squadrons loose missiles before Carnus can deploy a flak screen or bring his own missiles to bear. Thirty simulated nuclear explosions rack his last ship. There's no point to capturing his ship at this point in the game, and so the blue fighter pilots relish a little overkill. And like that, I have won. My bridge erupts with shouts from greys and the orange technicians. The blues wrap their knuckles vigorously. The obsidians, at odds with this high-tech world, make no sound. My personal valet, Theodora, smiles to her younger charges at the bridge's valet station. A former rose courtesan, well past prime age, she's heard her fair share of secrets and serves as my social adviser. Across the ship, from engines to kitchens, the victory transmits through hollow screens. This is not just my victory. Each man and woman shares it in their own way. That is the scheme of the society. To prosper, your superior must prosper. As I found a patron in Augustus, so must the low colours find their own in me. It breeds a loyalty of necessity to golds that the colour system itself cannot create by mere dictation. Now my star will rise, and all aboard will rise with it. Power and promise are celebrity in this culture. Not long ago, when the Arch Governor announced he would sponsor my studies at the Academy, the HC channels blazed with speculation. Could someone so young, someone from such a piteous family, win? Look what I did at the Institute. I broke the game. I conquered the proctors, killed one, and bound the others like children. But was that a mere flash in the night? Now those prattling bastards have their answer. Helmsman, set course for the academy. We've laurels to claim. I announced to cheers. Laurel. The word itself echoes through my past, making bitter my mouth. Despite my smile, I feel no great joy at this victory, just grim satisfaction. One more step, Eo. One more step forward. Preta, Darrow, Ao, Andromedus. Tactus plays with the title. The Bologna will shit themselves. I wonder if I can leverage this into a command, or do you think I must join your fleet? Can never tell. 
Gory damn bureaucracy is so tedious. Coppers to grease, golds to lobby. My brothers will want to throw us a party, naturally. He nudges me. At a brother's wrath party, even you might finally get bedded. As if he'd touch your friends. Victra squeezes my hand, fingers lingering as though she wore a gown instead of armor. Loath as I am to say it, Antonia was right about you. I feel Roke flinch, and remember the sound of Antonia cutting Leah's throat as she tried to lure me from hiding at the Institute. I had stayed in the shadows, listening to my small friend fall wetly to the mossy ground. Roke had loved Leah in his own fast way. I've told you before not to mention your sister's name in our presence, I say to Victra, her face souring at the curt dismissal. I turn back to Rogue. As Praetor, I do believe I have authority to stock my fleet with personnel of my choosing. Perhaps we should bring back some old faces. Severo from Pluto, the Howlers from wherever the hell they got shipped off to, and maybe Quinn from Ganymede? Rogue flushes in the cheeks at the mention of Quinn's name. Personally, I wish for Severo the most. Neither of us is particularly diligent at keeping in touch over the holonet, especially me, because I haven't had access to it since the Academy began. Anyway, all he's partial to sending is holograms of uniquely perverted unicorns and video clips of him reading puns. Pluto, if anything, has made him stranger. And perhaps more lonely. Dominus! The Helm Blue's voice draws me to the display. What's wrong? I ask. His eyes are glazed. Distant, jacked into the ship's sensors, seeing the raw data of the display I stare at. Not clear, Dominus. Sensor distortion. Ghosting. On the large central display, the asteroids are there in blue. We're gold, enemies red. There should be none left. Yet... A red dot throbs there now. Roke and Victor walk toward it. Roke motions his hand, and the data transfer to his data pad. A smaller hollow globe floats in front of him. He enlarges the image and cycles through analytic filters. Radiation, Victor hazards. Debris. The asteroid's core could cause a mirror refraction from our signal. Roke says. Couldn't be software. It's gone. The red dot flickers away. But the tension has spread through the bridge. All stare at the display. Nothing. There's no one else out here except my ships and Carnus's defeated flagship, unless... Roke turns to me, face drawn, terrified. Flee! He manages, just as the red signal burns back to life. Full power to engines, I roar. Thirty degrees plus our midline. Launch remaining missiles at the surface of the asteroid. Tactus commands. Too late. Victor gasps, and I see with my naked eyes what our instruments struggle to detect. One shadowed destroyer emerges from a hollow in the asteroid. A ship I thought we defeated three days ago. Its engines were off as it lay in wait.
Its front half is torn and black from damage. Now its engines blast at full power, and its trajectory takes it directly toward my ship. It's going to ram us. Evac suits and pods, I shout. Someone's screaming for us to brace for impact. I rush to the side of the bridge where my command escape pod is built into the wall. It opens at my word. Tactus, Roke and Victra sprint into its confines. I hold back, shouting at the blues to hurry and unsink. For all their logic, they'll die for their ships. I range about the bridge, screaming at them to activate their escape hatch. The helm blue does, pressing a button that causes a hole to dilate in the floor of the pit. One by one they unsink and are sucked down the gravity tube into their escape pods. Theodora! I shout seeing her prying at a young blue who still clutches his operations display with white-knuckled fear. Get in that gory damn pod! She doesn't listen, nor does the blue let go. I start toward them just as the proximity sensor lets loose one final warning blast. All slows. Bridge lights throb red. I jump for Theodora, wrapping my arms around her and the destroyer hits my man-of-war at her midline. Clutching Theodora to my chest, I'm thrown thirty metres across my bridge, slamming into a metal wall. White pain rips across my left arm along the seams of the mending brake. I'm slapped with darkness. Lights dance there, first like stars, then as weaving lines of sand disturbed by wind. Red light seeps through my eyelids. A gentle hand pulls at my clothing. I open my eyes. I'm wrapped around a dented electrical column as the ship shudders, groaning like an ancient dying beast sinking in the deep. The column trembles violently against my stomach as the destroyer finishes shearing through our middle, gutting us with slow cruelty. Someone's shouting my name. Sound fades back into being. Lights bathe the bridge, alternating shades of murderous red. Warning sirens. The ship's swan song. Theodora's delicate old hands pull at me like a bird pulling at a fallen statue. I'm bleeding from my forehead. My nose is broken. I wipe the stinging blood from my eyes and roll onto my back. A broken display sparks beside me. It has my blood on it. Did it fall on me? A bar lies beside it, and my eyes drift to Theodora. She pried it off. But she's so small. Her hands cup my face. Get up, Dominus! If you want to live, you have to get up! The old woman's hands tremble from fear. Please, get up. Groaning, I pull myself to my feet. My command escape pod is gone. In the collision it must have launched, either that or they left me behind. So too has the blue escape pod jettisoned away. The frightened blue has become a stain on a bulkhead. Theodora can't tear her eyes away from the sight. There's another pod in my quarters. I mutter. Then I see why Theodora winces, not from fear, but pain. 
Her leg is shattered, splayed off to the side like a length of wet, cracked chalk. They don't make pinks to last through this. I won't make it, Dominus. Go, now. I bend to a knee and throw her over the shoulder of my good arm. She whimpers horribly as her leg shifts under her. I feel her teeth rattle, and I run. I run through the broken bridge toward the wound that is killing my ship, through the bridge level's hallways into a scene of chaos. People swarm the main halls, abandoning their posts and functions as they race to escape pods and the troop carriers in the forward hangar. People who fought for me. Electricians, janitors, soldiers, cooks, valets. They'll never make it to safety. Many change course when they see me. They tumble forward, leaning against me, panicked and crazed in their mania to find safety. They pull at me, screaming, pleading. I push them off, losing a small part of my heart as each falls behind. I can't save them. I can't. An orange grabs Theodora's good leg, and a grey sergeant hits him in the forehead till he drops like a stone to the ground. Clear up path! The thick grey bellows. She whips her scorcher out of her tactical holster and shoots it into the air. Another grey, remembering himself, or perhaps thinking I'm his ticket out of this death trap, joins her in parting the chaos. Soon, two more carve a path at gunpoint. With her help, I make it to my suite. The door hisses open at my DNA's touch and we move through. The greys back in after us, training their scorches at the thirty desperate souls who ring the entrance. The door hisses as if to close, but an obsidian pushes through the crowd and jams herself into the doorframe, preventing the door from closing. An orange joins her, then a low-ranking blue. Without hesitation, the grey sergeant shoots the obsidian in the head. Her companions gun down the blue and orange and shove them off the doorframe so it can close. I tear my eyes away from the blood on the ground to lay Theodora on one of my couches. Dominus, how much room is there in the escape pod? The grey sergeant asks me as I head to the pod's entry lock. Her hair is buzzed in military fashion. A tattoo on her tan neck peeks from under her collar. My hands fly over the control prism, entering the password with a series of hand motions. Four seats. You get two. Decide among yourselves. There's six of us. Two, the female sergeant asks coldly. But the pink's a slave. One of the greys hisses. Not worth shit, says another. She's my slave, I growl. Do as I say. Slag that. Then I feel the silence as much as hear it, and I know one of them has pulled a gun on me. I turn, slowly. The stocky old grey is not a fool. He's backed out of my reach. I've no armour, only my razor. I might be able to kill him. The others ask what the hell he thinks he's doing. I'm a free man, Dominus. I should get to go. The grey says, voice trembling. I have a family. It is my right to go. He looks to his fellows, bathed in the nasty red of the emergency lights. She's just a whore. A jumped-up whore. Marcel, 
Put the gun down, says the dark-skinned corporal. His eyes are heavy for his friend. Remember your vows. We'll draw lots. It's not fair. She can't even have children. And what would your children think of you now? I ask. Marcel's eyes fill with tears. The scorcher quivers in his thick hand. Then, a gunshot. His body stiffens and crumples lifelessly to the deck as the bullet from the sergeant's scorcher carries through his head to slam into the metal bulkhead. We do it by rank, the sergeant says, holstering her weapon. Were I still the man Eo knew, I would have stood frozen in horror. But that man is gone. I mourn his passing every day, forgetting more and more of who I was, what dreams I held, what things I loved. The sadness now is numb, and I carry on despite the shadow it casts over me. The escape pod opens, magnetic lock thudding back. The door hisses upward. I pick Theodora from the couch and strap her into one of the seats. The straps are nearly too big, made for golds. Then something deep and horrible roars in the belly of my ship. Half a kilometre away, our torpedo stores detonate. Gone is the artificial gravity. Gone are the stable walls. It's an insidious sensation. Everything spins. I slam into the escape pod's floor. Ceiling? I don't know. Pressure vents out of the ship. Someone vomits. I smell it rather than hear it. I shout at the grace to get in the pod. Only one stays behind now, face drawn and quiet, as the sergeant and a corporal pull themselves into the escape pod. They strap in across from me. I activate the launch function and salute the Grey who stays behind. He salutes back, proud and loyal, despite the quiet in him, as he faces his last moment of life. Eyes distant and thinking of some young love, some path not taken. Perhaps wondering why he was not born gold. Then the door closes, and he is gone from my world. I'm slammed into my seat as the escape pod shoots away from the dying ship, ripping through debris. Then we're weightless again, and drifting away from trouble as inertial dampeners kick in. Out our viewport, I see my flagship burping plumes of blue and red flame. Processed helium-3, which powers both ships, ignites near my man-of-war's engines, causing a chain-effect explosion that rips the ship apart. Suddenly I realise... It wasn't debris I felt against my escape pod as I left the ship. It was people. My crew. Hundreds of low colours spilled into space. The greys sit opposite me. He had three girls, the dark-skinned corporal says, shuddering as the adrenaline fades away. Two years and he was out with a pension, and you popped him in the head. After my report, coward won't even scrape a death pension, the sergeant sneers. The corporal blinks at her. You cold bitch. Their words fade, overcome by the beating of blood in my ears. 
This is my fault. I broke the rules at the Institute. I changed the paradigm and thought they wouldn't adapt. That they wouldn't change their strategy for me. And now I've lost so many lives I may never know the tally. More people just died in a blink than during a whole year of the Institute, their deaths opening a black hole in my stomach. Roke and Victra hail me over the comms. They will have tracked my data pad and know I'm safe. I barely hear them. Anger, thick and evil, swirls inside me, making my hands shake, my heart slam. Somehow, Carnus's ship continues through space after bisecting my command, damaged but not broken. I stand in my pod, unbuckling the seat's restraints. At the far end of the escape pod lies a spit tube with a preloaded starshell, a mechanized suit meant to make a man a human torpedo. It's designed to launch goals to asteroids or planets because the pod wouldn't survive atmospheric re-entry. But I'll use it for vengeance. I launched myself onto that Bologna bastard's bloody damn bridge. Theodora has not yet woken. I'm glad. I tell the corporal to help me into the suit. Two minutes later, I'm in the metal carapace. Takes another two to argue with the computer over the calculations required for my trajectory to intersect with Carnus's so that I can smash through the bridge windows. I've never heard of anyone doing this, never seen it even attempted. It's madness. But Carnus will pay. I start my own countdown. Three. The enemy ship passes arrogantly a hundred kilometres away. It is like a dark snake with a blue tail, a bridge in place of eyes. Between us, a hundred escape pods glimmer, so many rubies cast into the sun. Two. I pray that I will find the veil if I do not survive this. One. My controls go dead, and red flashes across my helmet. The proctors override my computer and freeze my controls. No! I roar, watching Carnus's ship disappear into the black. Chapter 3 Blood and Piss 833 men and women. 833 killed for a game. I wish I never knew the tally. I repeat the number again and again as I sit in the passenger hold of the rescue ship sent to ferry me back to the academy. My lieutenants sit, afraid to meet my gaze. Even Roke leaves me be. The instructors disabled my craft before I could launch. They say they did it to spare me a fool's mistake. The gambit was rash, stupid, and unfitting a gold preter. I stared blankly at them as they debriefed me via hollow. We reached the academy in the ebbing day hours of my ship's time cycle. The place is a great domed metal port on the fringes of an asteroid field, ringed with docks for destroyers and men of war. Most are filled. 
Home to the Academy and Mid-Sector Command, it is one of the hives of the Society's military for the mid-worlds of Mars, Jupiter and Neptune, though it does serve other planetary forces when their orbits take them near. My fellow students will have been watching here in the dormitories. So, too, will have many fleet officials and peerless who flocked here for the final weeks of the game for parties and viewing. None will mention the cost of life demanded by Carnus's victory, but the defeat will set back my mission. The sons of Ares have spies. They have hackers and courtesans to steal secrets. What they did not have was a fleet. Nor will they, now. No one greets my lieutenants or me at the dock. Reds and browns bustle about to the orders of two violets and a copper who make preparations for Carnus's victory in the grand antechamber. The blue and silver of House Bologna trim the cavernous metal halls. The eagle crest of his family covers the walls. They have white rose petals for him. Red rose petals are reserved for triumphs, true victories where gold blood is shed. The blood of 833 low colours doesn't count. That's a clerical issue. My lieutenant slept as we travelled back to the can. I did not. Tactus and Victor stumbled now ahead of me, walking silently as if still wrapped in slumber. Despite the heaviness in my shoulders, I don't yearn for sleep. Regret lies behind my bloodshot eyes. If I sleep, I know I'll see the faces of those I left to die in the ship's hallways. I know I'll see Eo. I can't face her today. The academy smells of antiseptic and flowers. The rose petals sit in bins off to the side. Ducts above recycle our breaths and purify the air, making a steady hum. Fluorescence piss pale light down from the ceiling, as if to remind us that this is not a kind place for children or fantasies. The light, like the men and women here, is harsh and cold. Broke stays at my side as we walk, though his aspect is deathly. I tell him to get some sleep. He's earned it. And what have you earned? He asks. Not a day of sulking. Not a day of self-flagellation. Of all the Lancers, you are second. Second? Brother, why not take pride in that? Not now, Roke. Come now, he continues. It's not victory that makes a man. It's his defeats. You think our ancestors never lost? You don't need to huff and puff about this and make yourself one of those Greek clichés. Drop the hubris, it was just a game. You think I give a shit about the game? I wheel on him. People are dead. They chose lives of service to the fleet. They knew the danger and died for a cause. What cause? To keep our society strong. I stare at him. Could my friend... My kind friend, be so blind. What choice did these people have? They were conscripted. I shake my head. You don't understand a thing, do you? Of course I don't understand. You never let anyone in. 
Not me, not Severo. Look how you treated Mustang. You drive friends away as though they were enemies. If he only knew. I find the garden abandoned. It sits at the top of the can, a large vestibule of glass, earth and greenery, designed as a retreat for fluorescent weary soldiers. Stunted trees sway in a simulated breeze. I take off my shoes, peel off my socks, and sigh as the grass goes between my toes. Lamps above the trees make a false sun. I lay beneath them, till, with a groan, I pull myself up toward the small hot spring that lies in the centre of the glade. Bruises, most faded, stain my body like little ponds of blue and purple ringed with yellowing sands. The water soothes my aches. I'm thinner than I should be, but strung tight as piano wire. Were my arm not broken, I'd say I was healthier than at the Institute. Fighting on Academy bacon and eggs beats the shit out of the half-raw goat meat of that place. I find the Hemanthus blossom by the side of the pool. It took life where no water laps. It's indigenous to Mars, like me, so I do not pick it. I buried Eo in a place like this. Buried her in the fake forest above Lycos Mine, where I last made love to her. We were scrawny, innocent things then. How could so frail a girl have such a spirit, such a dream as freedom, when so many strong souls toiled and kept their heads down for fear of looking up? I shouted at Roke that I did not care about the defeat. Yet, I do. And there's guilt for caring about that when so many lives should demand all my sorrow. But before today, victory made me full, because with every victory I've come closer to making Eo's dream real. Now defeat has robbed me of that. I failed her today. As if knowing my thoughts, my data pad tickles my arm. Augustus calls. I peel the hair-thin display off and close my eyes. His words echo in memory. Even if you lose, even if you cannot take the victory for yourself, do not allow a Bologna triumph. Another fleet under their control will tip the scales of power. So much for that. I float in the water, drifting in and out of sleep till my fingers wrinkle and I grow bored. I'm not meant for these quiet moments. I pull myself from the water to dress. I can't keep Augustus waiting for long. Time to face the old lion. Then sleep, maybe. I'll have to stand and watch the damn victory for Carnus. But after that I'll be away from this ugly place and headed back to Mars. And maybe Mustang. But as I turn to leave the pool, I find my clothes are gone. As is my razor. Then I sense them. Hearing their military boots behind me, their loud, excited breaths, four of them, I guess, I pick a stone from the ground. No. I turn 
and I find seven blocking the one entrance into the garden, all goals of House Bologna, all my blood enemies. Carnus comes with the Bologna fresh from his ship. His face is as haggard as mine, his shoulders may be half again as broad. He towers over me, an obsidian in every way but birth and mind. That laughing mouth of his grins with uncommon intelligence. He rubs a hand over his dimpled chin, muscled forearms looking like they're carved from smoothed riverwood. There's something terrifying about being in the presence of someone so large that you can feel the vibrations of their voice in your bones. Looks like we caught the Augustus lion away from his pride. Lo, Reaper. Goliath. I mutter using his call sign. Goliath the Breaker. Goliath the Sun Killer. Goliath the Savage. Mustang says he once broke the spine of a fancy loon-born gold over his knee after the brat thought to splash a drink in his face at a pearl club. His mother then bribed the judiciar to let him off with a fine. The list of fines he's paid for murder stretches longer than my arm. Greys, pinks, even a violet. But his true reputation comes from killing Claudius Au Augustus, the arch-governor's favourite son and heir, Mustang's brother. Carnus's cousins orbit around him, all Bologna, all born under the blue and silver sigil of the conquering eagle, brothers, sisters, cousins to Cassius. Their hair is curly and thick, faces all beauty. Their influence stretches across the society, as does the reputation of their arms. One is much older than I, shorter but more powerfully built, like a tree stump with blonde moss covering his head. He is a man in his thirties. Kellen, I remember now, a full-legged, a knight of the society. And he came here with his brothers and cousins, for me. Arrogance drips off that one. He feigns a yawn as he plays these schoolyard games. Fear thunders into my chest. I find it difficult to breathe, yet I smile, fingers grazing the datapad's comm functions behind my back. Seven Bologna, I chuckle. What need of you of seven, Carnus? You had seven ships against my one, Carnus says. I've come to continue our game. He cocks his head. Did you think it ended with your ship dying? The game is over, I say. You won. Did I win, Reaper? Carnus asks at the cost of 833 people. Whining because you lost, asks Cagney. She's the smallest of his cousins, a twenty-something lancer to Carnus's father. She's the one cradling my razor, the one Mustang gave me. She swishes it through the air. I think I'll keep this. I don't think I've even heard of you using it, not that I'd charge. Raises are tricky. The perils of an uneducated upbringing, I fear. Go stick your fist up your cousin, I sneer, 
Must be a reason you curly-haired shits all look alike. Must we listen to embark, Carnus? Cagney whines. I taught Julian to fish, Reaper. Kellen, the legged, says suddenly. As a boy, he didn't like it because he thought it hurt the fish too much, thought it was cruel. That's the boy your master had you kill. That is the measure of his cruelty. So, how grand do you feel? How brave do you fashion yourself? I did not want to kill him. Oh, but we want to kill you. Carnus rumbles. He nods to his cousins. Two of the Bologna break branches off the trees and toss them to their kin. They have razors, but apparently they want to take their time. If you kill me, there'll be consequences, I say. This is not a sanctioned duel, and I am peerless. I am protected by the compact. This will be murder. The Olympic Knights will hunt you, try you, execute you. Who said anything of murder? Carnus asks. You belong to Cassius. Cagney's fox-like face splits with a smile. Today you are protected by Augustus. Carnus says, His chosen boy. To kill you would mean war. But no one goes to war over a little beating. Cagney favors her left leg. Knee injury. A cousin of hers leans on his heels. Frightened of me. The big one, Carnus, squares up, meaning he doesn't give a piss about whatever damage I can do. Kellen smiles and stands relaxed. I hate those sort of men. Hard to judge. I calculate my chances. Then I remember my broken arm. My injured ribs and the contusion of my eye, and cut those chances in half. I'm scared. They cannot kill me, I cannot kill them. Not here, not now. All of us know how this dance will end, but dance we do. Carno snaps his fingers, and they rush toward me all at once. I throw the stone into Cagney's face, she goes down. I rush at Carnus, howling like a mad wolf, slipping past his first blow, and rage a flurry of strikes into his nerve centers, driving my elbow into his right bicep, rupturing tissue. He rocks back, and I press into him, using his bulk to shield me from the others and their sticks. I strip a stick away from one of the Bologna cousins, leveling her with an elbow to her temple. Then I turn, spinning the stick toward Carnus's face, but it's blocked. Something hits the back of my head. Wood shatters. Splinters dig into the scalp. I don't stumble. Not until Carnus hits me so hard in my face with his elbow that a tooth pops out. They don't take turns coming one by one. They surround me, and they punish me with the efficiency of their deadly art, cravat. They aim for nerves, organs. I manage to stand, hit a few of my assailants, but I'm not long on my feet. Someone jams their stick into my skin, impacting the subcostal nerve. I drip down to the ground like melting wax and Carnus kicks me in the head. I bite through half my tongue. Warmth fills my mouth.
The ground is the softest thing I feel. Choking on salt. Blood and air spray out of my mouth as Carnus puts his foot on my stomach, then throat. He laughs. In the words of Lorne Ao Arcos, if you must only wound the man, you better kill his pride. I gurgle for breath. Cagney replaces Carnus, sitting on my chest, knees pinning down my arms. I suck down air. She smiles in my face and looks at my hairline, lips parted with excitement of dominating another person. She twists my hair into her grip. Her hot breath smells like spearmint. What have we here? She asks, pulling my data pad from its place on my arm. Damn it. He hailed the Augustans. I'd rather not fight that Julii bitch without my armor. Then stop dawdling, Carnus growls. Do it. Shh, she whispers as I try to speak, tracing a knife over my lips, pushing it into my mouth till the brittle metal clacks against my teeth. That's a good little bitch. Roughly, she saws off my hair. Nice and quiet. Good, Reaper. Good. Blood stings my eyes as Carnus shoves Cagney off my chest, grabs me, and hoists me off the ground with his left hand. He flexes his right arm, cursing about his ruined bicep. He can't pull it back to swing a punch, so instead he grins toothily at me and headbutts me once in the chest, just at the sternum. My world rocks. There's a crackle, the sound of twigs over a fire. I wheeze out bubbling, inhuman sounds. Carnus headbutts me again and tosses my aching body to the ground. I feel warmth splash over me, and the smell of piss claw into my nostrils. They laugh, and Carnus breathes into my ear. Mother bid me to tell you, a pauper can never be a prince. Every time you look in the mirror, remember what we did to you. Remember you breathe because we let you. Remember your heart will one day be on our table. Rise so high, in mud you lie. Chapter 4 Fallen I stand before my master, but he does not care. The office walls are of panelled wood, and on the floor lies an ancient rug his iron ancestor took from a palace of earth after the fall of the Indian Empire, one of the last great nations to stand against gold. What dread those natural-born humans must have felt to see the conquerors falling from the sky, man perfected, but bringing chains instead of hope. I stand in front of Augustus's desk, a bare thing of wood and iron, just before the seven-hundred-year-old bloodstain where the final Indian emperor had his head parted from his body by a sleek gold killer. Idly, Nero Ao Augustus strokes the lion that lies beside his desk. They look like twin statues. Behind them is space, 
A viewport peers into the blackness, where the ships of the Scepter Armada lie like giant golems in terrible slumber. We pass them on the last leg of our three-week voyage from Mars. Augustus peers at his desk as a stream of data runs over the wood. It seems so long ago that he took me on a tour of Mars to show me our domains, from the Latfundias where high reds toil over crops to the great polar reaches where obsidians live in medieval isolation. He favoured me then, bringing me close, teaching me the things his father taught him. I was his favourite, second only to Leto. Now he is a stranger, and I an embarrassment. It's been two months since the day Karnas beat me at the academy. Though my hair has grown back and my broken bones have mended, my reputation has not. And because of that, my tenure in Arch-Governor Augustus's employ is tenuous, at best. My enemies grow by the day, but these new ones prefer whispers to razors. More and more do I believe the sons of Ares chose the wrong man. I am not made for the cold war of politics, not made for subtlety. Hell, I'd hide a boy in the gut of a horse any day, but I wouldn't know how to bribe someone properly if my life depended on it. A gentle, warm voice made for half-truths drifts through the arch-governor's office. Three refineries, two nightclubs, and two grey police outposts. All bombed since we left Mars, seven attacks, my liege, fifty-nine gold fatalities. Pliny, slender as a salamander, with skin as smooth as a pink's. The politico is no peerless scarred, never even went to the Institute. His glittering eyes peer out from eyelashes that would put peacock plumage to shame. Muted lipstick coats thin lips. His hair is coiled and scented, his body thin but muscular in a pleasing but utterly facile way beneath a too tight embroidered silk tunic. A child could beat the living hell out of this beautiful kitten of a man. Yet he's ended families with a rumour here, a joke there. His power is of a different breed. Where I am kinetic energy, he is potential. I've heard he's also responsible for ruining my reputation. Tactus even hinted that Pliny might have put Carnus up to the violence in the garden, or, at the very least, arranged a hollow cam to record my proud moment. Beside Pliny stands the fourth man in the room, Leto. He's a bright lancer ten years my senior, with braided hair and a half-moon grin. He's also a poet with the razor, a younger Lorne Au Arcos, according to some. It's likely he'll inherit Augustus's estate instead of the arch-governor's blood heirs, Mustang and the Jackal. Truth be told, I rather like the man. The sons of Ares grow too bold, Augustus mutters. Yes, my liege. Pliny squints. If it is indeed they who perpetrate the acts. What other ant bites us? None that we know of, 
But there are spiders, ticks, rats in the worlds. The bombings are crude for Ares, indiscriminate, uncharacteristically violent, discontiguous from the pattern of technological sabotage and propaganda in his profile. Ares is not capricious, so I struggle believing these acts originate from him. Augustus frowns. Then what do you suggest? Perhaps there is another terrorist group, my liege. With eighteen billion souls on the census, I hardly think one man has a monopoly on terrorism. Perhaps even a criminal syndicate. I've been creating a database I can share. Plenty is right. The terror attacks that have plagued Mars and other planets make little sense. Dancer spoke of justice, not revenge. These attacks are petty and gruesome. The bombing of barracks... Fashion outlets, bazaars, high-colour coffee shops and restaurants. Ares would never condone them. They draw too many eyes for too little result, daring the goals to act, to crush the suns. I've sent messages to Dancer via the hollow box. Nothing. Just silence. Could he be dead? Or has Ares abandoned me for this new strategy of bombing? Pliny yawns. Perhaps Ares has changed his tactics. He's a deuced one. If Ares is a man, Leto says. Interesting. Augustus swivels abruptly. What makes you think Ares isn't a man? Why do we assume Ares is a man? He could be a woman. Could be a group of individuals, for all we know, which would go a long way toward explaining the discordant nature of these new attacks. Leto turns to me, eyes inclusive. Darrow, what do you think? Don't befuddle Darrow with complex questions. Pliny crows defensively. Make it a yes or no so he can understand. Pliny flashes me the most pitying of smiles and squeezes my shoulder in sympathy. Behind his leopard smiles, he's an honest, simple beast. You should know that. I stand there and take it. He turns away. In any manner, Leto, you're forgetting we designed Red Culture to be highly patriarchal. Their identity as a people centers around the collection of resources to propagate the embryonic terraforming of Mars— Physically strenuous, grueling tasks performed by men. Tasks we don't let their women perform, even if they are capable, pursuant to the stratification protocol. So, you see, it can't be a woman, because no roughneck ruster would follow a man or woman who has never ridden a claw drill. Leto smiles cleverly. If Ares is a red... Pliny and Augustus both laugh. Maybe he's a deranged violet who's taking his acting to a new stage, Pliny offers. Or a copper cambist beleaguered by filing provincial tax returns, Leto adds. No, an obsidian who, dare I say, has finally forsaken his terror of technology and developed the skills to use a hollow camera. Pliny slaps his leg. I'd give away one of my roses just to see my goodman enough. Augustus cuts him off. 
tapping his finger on the desk. Pliny and Leto share a grin and turn back to Augustus. Your recommendation, Pliny? Of course. Pliny clears his throat. Unlike their propaganda and cyber-attacks, the brutality is quite simple to counter. Ares or not, issue a reply. Our kill teams are prepared for tactical strikes on several terrorist training grounds beneath Mars's surface. We should strike now. If we wait, I fear the Sovereign's Praetorians will take matters into their own hands. Loonborn don't understand Mars. They'll slag it up. A fool pulls the leaves. A brute chops the trunk. A sage digs the roots. Augustus pauses. Something Lorne our Arcos once said to my father. It's engraved on the Hall of Blades in New Thebes. Striking training grounds will do nothing except fill the hollow net with pretty explosions. I tire of political plays. Our strategy must change. With every bombing, the Sovereign grows wearier of my administration. You govern Mars, Leto says. Not Venus or Earth. Ours is not a placid planet. What does she expect? Results. What do you have in mind, my liege? Pliny asks. I intend to poison the sons of Ares' roots. I want suicide bombers, not greys. Find the ugliest, nastiest reds on Mars, hold their families hostage, and threaten to kill their sons and daughters if the fathers do not do as we command. Focus the suicide bombers on surface areas with high youth density as well as two choice minds. No women bombers. I want social divide. Women against violence. How little life costs here. Just words in the air. Urban areas, too. He continues. Not just browns and red miners and agriculturists. I want dead blue and green children in schools or arcades next to Sons of Ares glyphs. Then we'll see if other colours still sing that girl's gory damn song. My heart dips a beat. Eo's song spread further than she dreamed, reaching the holonet and ripping across the solar system, shared over a billion times thanks to anarchist hacker groups. Time and again, I fear I'll be recognised. Perhaps some gold will search through the records to find that Eo's husband's name was also Darrow. But even I hardly recognised that skeletal, pale boy. And as for names, there are no true records for low-red names. I had a number designation given to me by some officious copper administrator, L17L6363, and... L17L6363 was hanged from his neck until dead, whereupon his body was stolen by an unknown perpetrator and presumably buried in the deep mines. You plan to alienate red from the other colours, then alienate the suns from red. Pliny smiles. My liege, sometimes I wonder why you even need me. Do not patronise me, Pliny. It's beneath the both of us. Pliny bows. Indeed, apologies, my liege. Augustus looks back to Leto. You're squirming like a pup. I worry this will make matters worse. Leto frowns to himself. Presently the sons are a nuisance, yes, 
but hardly our chief plight. If we do this, we could be pouring fuel on the flames, and worse, we'd be as guilty as the sons themselves. Terrorists. There's no guilt. Pliny peers idly at a stream of data on his datapad. Not when you're the judge. Leto isn't satisfied. My liege, our imperative to rule exists because we are fit to best guide mankind. We are Plato's philosopher kings. Our cause is order. We provide stability. The sons are anarchists. Their cause is chaos. We should use that as our weapon, not greys in the night, bombers among children. We should aspire to a higher purpose, Pliny asks. Yes, perhaps fashion a media campaign against the sons. Dara, wouldn't you agree? Again, I do not answer. Not until the arch-governor acknowledges my presence. He does not value impudence or impropriety unless it benefits him. Idealism. Pliny sighs. Admirable in the young, if misguided. Take care in talking down to me, politico. Leto growls scanning Pliny's smirking face for the absent peerless scar. Your plan should be less brutal, Arch-Governor. That is my point. Brutality. Augustus lets the word hang in the air. It is neither evil nor good. It is simply an adjective of a thing, an action in this case. What you must pass is the nature of the action. Is it evil or good to stop terrorists who bomb innocents? Good, I suppose. Then what do our methods matter, so long as we harm fewer innocents than they would harm if we continued to allow them to exist? Augustus folds his long-fingered hands. But, at the core, this is no philosophical issue. It is a political one. The sons of Ares are not the threat. Not at all. All they are is a weapon for our political enemies, namely the Bologna, to use as an excuse to claim I cannot control Mars. The curly hairs already seek to strip me of the governorship. As you know, the Sovereign has sole power to remove me from the position, even without a vote from the Senate. If she wishes, she can give Mars to another house. Bologna! Our allies, the Julii, even a non-Martian house. None of these entities would run Mars as effectively as I, and when Mars is run effectively, all benefit, low and high. I am not a despot, but a father must cuff the ears of his children if they make an attempt to set fire to his house. If I must kill a few thousand for the greater good, for helium free to flow and for the citizens of this planet to continue to live in a world untorn by war, then I will. Which brings us to Darrow, our Andromedus. Now his cold eyes turn on me, fresh from ordering the deaths of a thousand innocents, and I cannot help but flinch as a dark hate rises inside me. I bow my head in polite deference, my liege, you summoned me? I did. 
and your purpose here shall be brief. You were a gambit when I took you from the Institute and put you in my employ. You know this? Yes. I thought your merit to be sufficient. I found your rivalry with Cassius Albalona amusing, in a schoolyard way. But the blood feud declared between you has become... He spares a glance at Pliny. Burdensome to my interests, both economically and politically. Substantial revenues have been lost due to tariff increases to the core, where Bologna supporters lie. Houses waver in their commitment to honouring deals made years ago at the trade table. So, as an act of reconciliation to these aggrieved parties, I have decided to sell your contract to another house. I shudder inside. My liege, I try to interject. This cannot happen. If he strips me of my place, nearly three years of work will have been for nothing. If I may, you may not. He opens a drawer and idly tosses the slab of meat to his lion. The lion waits for Augustus to snap his fingers before eating. The decision was made a month ago. There is no use bandying words with me. I'm not quicksilver negotiating the price of lithium futures. Pliny... The particulars are rather simple, Darrow, so they shall be easy to grasp. Pliny hasn't taken his eyes from me. The art governor has been overly kind in giving you the fair warning in case of termination, as stipulated in your contract. My contract says I'm to be given six months' fair warning. If you'll recall section 8, subsection C, clause 4, you are to be given six months' fair warning unless you fail to act in a manner befitting a lancer of the esteemed House Augustus. Is this a joke? I look to Leto and Augustus. Do you see us laughing? Pliny asks primly. No, not even a scoff or chortle. Of all the lancers, I came in second at the academy. You couldn't even make it through the institute. Oh, it's not that. You did well. Enough. Then what? It is your constant presence on the H.C. talk shows. I've never gone on the H.C. I don't even watch it. Oh, please. You relish your own celebrity. Even though they mock you, you bathe in the limelight and cloak this house with shame. We know your data-pad search histories. We see you preening at yourself in the H.C. as though it were your personal mirror. The stories run on you and the arch-governor's daughter. Mustang is in court on Luna, which you likely encouraged. Did you ask her to join the Sovereign's court? Is it part of your plan to divide daughter from father? You're spinning horseshit, Pliny. And you create a tawdry name for Augustus. You brawl with Bologna in baths set aside for refreshment and contemplation. This we cannot abide. I don't even know what to say. He's making it up. There's enough in reality to make a case, but he lies just to spit in my eye, just to show that I am in his power. Pliny continues. The termination of the contract will occur in three days. Three days, I echo. 
Till then, you will accompany us to the surface of Luna and stay in the residence provided for the House Augustus for the summit, though, as of this moment, you are no longer a lancer of this house. You do not represent the Arch-Governor, and may not use his name to gain access to facilities nor curry favour with young ladies or young men, neither in boast, promise, or threat. Your house datapad will be confiscated, your Lancer ID codes have already been downgraded, and you will cease and desist participation in all projects to which you were previously assigned. I have only been assigned construction projects. Pliny's lips crawl into a reptilian smile. Then this shall be an easy transition. To whom am I being sold? I manage. Augustus doesn't look in my eyes as he abandons me. He pets his lion. You would guess I'm not even in the room. Leto stares at the ground, ashamed. He's nobler than this charade. But Augustus wants him here to watch, to learn how to amputate a rotten limb. You are not being sold, Darrow. Despite your birth, I would have expected you to understand your plays. We are not pinks or obsidians to be sold as slaves. Your services are being traded at auction, Pliny says. It's the same gory thing, I hiss. You're abandoning me. Whoever buys my services cannot protect me from the Bologna. Those curly-haired bastards will hunt me down and kill me. The only reason they didn't two months ago was because... Because you were an Augustan representative? Pliny asks. But the Arch-Governor does not owe you anything, Darrow. Is that the misapprehension you suffer? In fact, you owe him. Protecting you costs us money. It costs us opportunities, contracts, trade. And that cost has proven too dear. We must be seen to promote peace with the Bologna. The Sovereign wants peace. You, you're a source of friction, a chafing burr in our proverbial saddle, and an instrument of war. So now we melt our sword into a plowshare. But not before you use it to lop off my head. Darrow, do not beg. Pliny sighs. Show some... Resolve, young man. Your time here has expired, yes, but you've got pluck. You've got the vigour of a young man. Now, straighten that spine of yours and leave with the dignity of a gold who knows he tried his best. His eyes laugh at me. That means, leave this office. Now, my goodman, before Leto throws you out on your preposterously toned buttocks. I stare at the arch-governor. Is this what you take me for? Some snivelling child to be pushed into a corner? Darrow, it'd be best if... Leader begins. It is you who have pushed us into a corner, Pliny answers, putting a hand on my shoulder. If you're worried you won't receive a severance package, you will. Enough money to... The last time one of the Arch-Governor's lackeys touched me, I buried a knife in his cerebellum six times. I look at his hand as he quickly withdraws it. I square my shoulders. I do not answer to a scarless pixie whelp. I am a 
Peerless Scard, Arch Primus of the 542nd Class of the Institute of Mars. I answer to the Arch Governor alone. I take a step toward Augustus, causing Leto to take a protective angle. The length of my temper is well remembered. You put Julian Aubelona in the passage with me, my liege. My eyes burned down at him. I killed him there for you. I warred against Carnus for you. I kept my mouth, the mouths of my men, sealed after you tried to buy your son victory at the Institute. Leto flinches at that. I altered the recordings. I proved myself better than your blood heirs. Now, my liege, you say I'm a liability. You are a peerless scard. The Arch-Governor agrees, examining data on his desk. But you are of little substance. Your family is dead. They left you with no lands, no holdings of resources or industry, no position in government. All were seized as their debts came due, including their honour. What scraps you have been given by your betters? Cherish. What favour you carried? Remember. I thought you favoured deeds, not titles. My liege, Mustang has left you. Do not make the mistake of severing me from you as well. Finally, he raises his head to look at me. Eyes belonging to some creature beyond man, a distant, callous calculation fueled by monstrous, inhuman pride. A pride that goes beyond him and stretches back to man's first feeble steps into black space. It is the pride of a dozen generations of fathers and grandfathers and sisters and brothers, all distilled now into a single, brilliant, perfect vessel that bears no failure, abides no flaws. My enemies embarrassed you. So they embarrassed me, Darrow. You told me you would win, but then you lost. And that changes everything. Chapter 5 Abandoned I will soon die. That is the thought I carry with me as our shuttle coasts away from Augustus's flagship and flits through the scepter armada. I sit among the lancers, but I am not one of them. They know. Appropriately, they do not speak to me. Whatever bond they could make does not matter. I have no political capital. I overhear Tactus being offered a wager to see how long I'll last outside of Augustus's protection. One lancer says three days. Tactus argues ferociously against the number, showing the true extent of the loyalty I earned from him at the Institute. Ten days, he declares. At least ten days. It was he who launched the escape pod without me. I always knew his friendship was conditional. Yet still, the wound gnaws deep, carving in me a loneliness I can't express. A loneliness I've always felt among these goals, but tricked myself into forgetting. I am not one of them. So I sit there in silence, staring out the window as we pass the gathered fleet and wait for Luna to appear. 
My contract ends on the final evening of the summit, where all ruling families gather on Luna to deal with matters pressing and frivolous. That is the three-day window I have to improve my stock to make others think that I am undervalued by the Arch-Governor and ripe for recruitment. But no matter my value, I am marred. Someone had me, then threw me away. Who would want such a used thing? This is my fate. Despite my golden face and talents, I am a commodity. It makes me want to tear my bloody damn sigils out. If I'm to be a slave, I should at least look a slave. To make matters worse, there's a price on my head. Not officially, of course. That is illegal, because I am not an enemy of the state. Yet my enemy is far worse. Far crueler than any government. She is the woman who sent Carnus and Cagney to the Academy. They say every night since I stole Julian's life in the passage, his mother, Julia Aubelona, has sat at the long table of her family's high hall upon the slopes of Olympus Mons, and lifted the semicircular lid of the silver tray brought to her by the pink manservants. Every night the tray remains empty, and every night she sighs in sadness, peering down the table at her large family only to repeat the same vindictive words— it is clear I am unloved. If I were loved, there would be a heart here to sate my hunger for vengeance. If I were loved, my boy's murderer would no longer draw breath. If I were loved, my family would honour their brother. But I am not. He is not. They do not. What have I done to deserve such a hateful family? Then the grand Bologna family will watch their matriarch uncoil from her chair, her body withering from hunger, nursing instead on hate and vengeance, and they will remain silent as she leaves the room more wraith than woman. What has kept my heart from her plate is the arch-governor's arms, money, and name. Politics, the very thing I hate, has kept the breath in me. But in three days, that aegis will be a shadow of memory, and all that will protect me are the lessons my teachers have given me. It'll be a duel, one of the lancers says. Then louder, can't turn that down and keep his honour for long. Not if Cassius himself offers it. Old Reaper has a few tricks up his sleeve, Tactus says. You might not have been there, but he didn't kill Apollo with his smile. Used a razor, didn't you, Darrow? Another lancer asks, tone mocking. I haven't seen you on the fencing grounds of late. You've never seen him there, says another. The pixie avoids what he's not good at, eh? Roke stirs angrily beside me. I put a hand on his forearm and turn slowly to regard the offending lancer. Victra sits behind him, idly watching the scene. I don't fence, I say. Don't or can't, someone asks with a laugh. 
Leave him be. Razor masters are expensive, Tactus notes with a sly grin. Is that how it is, Tactus? I ask. He makes a face. Oh, come now. Just having a go at you. So gory damn serious. You used to be more playful. Roke says something to make Tactus scowl and turn away, but I don't hear. I've sunken into memory, where this golden game once seemed so easy. What has changed? Mustang. You're more than this, she whispered as I left her for the academy. Tears swelled in her eyes, though her voice did not waver. You don't have to be a killer. You don't have to court war. What other choice do I have? I asked. Me. I'm the other choice. Stay for me. Stay for what might be. At the Institute you made followers of boys and girls who have never known loyalty. If you go to the Academy you abandon that to be my father's warlord. That's not what you are. That's not the man I... She did not turn. But her face changed as her sentence trailed away, lips drawing a hard line. Love? Was that what we built in the year after the Institute? If so, the words stuck in her throat because she knew, as I knew, that I had not given her all of me. I had not shared all that I am. Greedily, I kept secrets. And how could someone like her someone with so much self-worth, bear herself and throw her heart at a man who gave so little in return. So she closed her golden eyes, shoved the razor into my hands and told me to go. I don't fault her. She chose politics, governance, peace, which is what she thinks her people need. I chose the blade because it is what my people need. It fills me with a strange emptiness knowing that I was enough for her when I was never enough for you. Roke was right. I pushed her away. I didn't push Severo away. I asked him to be stationed with me, then suddenly he was reassigned to Pluto like many of the Howlers, relegated to protecting fire construction operations from petty pirate raids. I now suspect Pliny's hand in that. My path has never felt lonelier. You'll not be abandoned, Roke says, leaning in close. Other families will want you for themselves. Don't let Tactus in your head. The Bologna won't make a move against you. Of course they won't. I lie. He can still sense my fear. Violence isn't allowed in the Citadel, Darrow, especially blood feuds. Even duels are outlawed unless consent is given by the Sovereign herself. Simply stay on Citadel grounds till you've a new house and all will be well. Bide your time, do what you must, and in a year the Arch-Governor will feel like a fool when you've risen under the tutelage of another. There is more than one path to the top. Always remember that, brother.'
He grips my shoulder. You know, I would ask my mother and father to bid for you, but they won't go against Augustus. I know. They could spend the millions on the contract and not even notice the loss, but Rogue's mother has not sat a senator for twenty years because of her charity. Her lot is thrown in with Augustus's contingent in the Senate. What he wills, she supports. I'll be fine. You're right. I say, as Luna appears in the window, hushing the aids and filling me with dread. The city moon of Earth, orbiting satellites and installations encircle it like a steel angel's halo wrapped around a ball of amber held to the sun. I'll be fine. Chapter 6 Icarus We land near the citadel. Sticky, polluted wind bends the towering trees near our landing pad. Perspiration quickly beads along the top of my high collar. Already I do not like this ugly place. Despite the fact that we land here on citadel grounds, which are far from the nearest cities and surrounded by forests and lakes, Luna's air cloys and sticks to the lungs. On the horizon, just past the spiked spires of the citadel's western campus, earth hovers, swollen and blue, reminding me that I am so far from home. The gravity here is less than Mars's, only one-sixth Earth's, and it makes me feel unsettled and clumsy. I seem to float when I walk, and even though coordination quickly returns, my body suffers its own lightness with strange feelings of claustrophobia. Another vessel lands to the north. Looks like Bologna Silva, Roke says quietly, squinting against the sunset. I chuckle. He glances back at me. What? Just imagining having a pulse rocket right about now. Well, that's just... lovely of you. He walks along. I follow, eyes lingering on the vessel. I do love the sunsets of Luna, like we're in Homer's world. Sky a hot shade of fresh-forged bronze. Above... The alien sky melts into the night with the long setting of the sun. For two weeks the daylight will disappear from this part of the moon. Two weeks of night. Luxury yachts cruise through this strange day's end, while nimble, blue-piloted rip-wings roar past on patrol, like bats glued together from shattered ebony. The one-sixth gravity lets these loon-born build to their heart's desire, and build they do. Beyond the citadel grounds, the horizon is fenced with towers and cityscape. Rung paths wind everywhere so that citizens can pull themselves through the air with ease. The network of rungs stretch between high towers as would ivy, linking the heavens with the hells of the low districts. Along them, thousands of men and women crawl like ants on vines, while grey patrol skiffs buzz around the thoroughfares. The household of Augustus is assigned a villa nestled within thirty acres of pines on citadel grounds. 
It's a pretty thing among other pretty things in this stately place. There are gardens, paths, fountains carved with little winged boys of stone, all that sort of frivolity. Fancy a session of cravat? I ask Rogue, nodding to the training facility beside the villa. My mind's running away with itself. I can't. Roke winces, stepping out of the way of our fellow lancers and their attendants who file into the villa. I have to attend the conference on capitalism in the governed age. If you wanted a nap, I'm sure they have beds in the villa. You joking? Regulus Agsun is giving the keynote. I whistle. Quicksilver himself. So you're going to learn how to make diamonds out of gravel. You hear the rumor about him owning the contracts of two Olympic knights. It's not a rumor, at least according to Mother. Reminds me of what Augustus said to the Sovereign at her coronation. A man is never too young to kill, never too wise, never too strong, but he can damn well be too rich. Arco said that. No, I'm sure it was Augustus. I shake my head. Check your facts, brother. Lorn Au Arcos said it, and the Sovereign turned to reply, You forget, Rage Knight, I am a woman. Arcos is as much myth as man, at least to my generation. Reclusive now, he was the Sword of Mars and the Rage Knight for over sixty years. Peerless knights across the society have offered him the deeds to moons if he would but tutor them for a week in his form of cravat the Willow Way. It was he who sent me the knife ring that killed Apollo and then offered me a place in his house. I rejected it then, choosing Augustus over the old man. You forget I am a woman, Roke repeats. He cherishes these stories of their empire, the way I cherished stories of the Reaper and the Veil. When I get back... Let's talk. Not the usual banter. You mean you won't yammer on about a childhood crush, drink too much wine, wax poetic about the shape of Quinn's smile and the beauty of Etruscan gravesites before falling asleep? I ask. His cheeks flush, but he puts a hand over his heart. On my honor. Then bring a bottle of foolishly expensive wine and we can talk. I'll bring three. I watch him leave, eyes colder than my smile. Several of the other lancers attend the conference with Roke. The rest make themselves comfortable as Augustus's grey security teams comb the grounds. Obsidian bodyguards trail goals like shadows. Pinks sway gracefully into the villa in a constant stream, ordered from the Citadel's garden by members of the Archgovernor's household staff, who find themselves bored from travel and seek a little merriment. A pink citadel steward guides me to my room. I laugh when I arrive. Perhaps there has been a mistake, I say, looking around the small room with its adjoining washroom and closet. I'm not a broom. I don't under... He's not a broom, so he won't fit in this closet, Theodora says, standing in the doorway behind us. It is beneath his station. She looks around, 
Pert nose sniffing disdainfully. These would not even suit as closet to my clothes on Mars. This is the Citadel, not Mars. The steward's pink eyes survey the lines on Theodora's aged face. There is less room for useless things. Theodora smiles sweetly and gestures to the rose quartz tree pinned to the man's breast. I say, is that the black poplar of Garden Dryope? Your first time seeing it, I would guess, he says haughtily before turning to me. I don't know how they raised your pinks and Mars's gardens, Dominus, but on Luna your slave should do her best to look less affected. Of course, how rude of me, Theodora apologizes. I merely thought you would know Matron Carena. The steward pauses. Matron Carena? We were girls together in the gardens. Tell her Theodora says hello and would call on her if time is found. You're a rose. His face goes sheet white. Was? All petals wilt? Oh, but do tell me your name. I would so like to commend you to her for your hospitality. He mumbles something quite inaudible and departs, bowing lower to Theodora than to me. Was that fun? I ask. Always nice to flex a little muscle, even if everything else is starting to droop. Seems my career ends where yours began. I chuckle morbidly and walk over to the hollow display sitting near the bed. I wouldn't, she says. I bite my bottom lip, our signal for spying devices. Well, of course, that. But the hollow net is not where you want to be right now. What are they saying about me? They're wondering where you'll be buried. I haven't time to reply before knuckles rap against the frame of my room's doorway. Dominus, Lady Julia requests your presence. I follow Victress Pink to her room's private terrace. Her bath alone is larger than my bed. It's not fair, a voice says from behind the ivory-white trunk of a lavender tree. I turn to see Victra playing with the thorns of a shrub. You being cut loose like a grey mercenary? Since when have you been concerned with what's fair, Victra? Must you always fence with me? She asks. Come, sit. Even with the scars that distinguish her from her sister, her long form and luminous face is without true fault. She sits smoking some designer burner that smells like a sunset over a logged forest. She's heavier of bone than Antonia, taller, and seems to have been melted into being, like a spearhead cooling into angular shape. Her eyes flash with annoyance. I'm as far from an enemy as you have, Darrow. So what are you? A friend? A man in your position could use friends... No? I'd rather have a dozen stained bodyguards. Who has the money for that? She laughs. I raise an eyebrow. You do? Well, they couldn't protect you from yourself. I'm a bit more worried about Bologna razors. Worry? Is that what I saw on your face as we descended? She lets a merry sigh escape her lips, 
curious. See, I thought it was dread, terror, all the truly unsettling things, because you know this moon will be our grave. I thought we weren't fencing anymore, I say. You're right. It's just I find you very odd. Or at least I find your choice in friends to be odd. She is sitting in front of me on the lip of the fountain. Her heels scrape against the aged stone. You've always kept me at arm's length while bringing Tactus and Roke close. I understand Roke, even if he is as soft as butter. But Tactus, it's like flossing with a viper and expecting not to get bitten. Is it because he was your man at the Institute that you think he's your friend? Friend? I laugh at the idea. After Tactus told me how his brothers broke his favorite violin when he was a boy, I had Theodora spend half my bank account on a Stradivarius violin from Quicksilver's auction house. Tactus didn't thank me. It was as if I'd handed him a stone. He asked what it was for. I said, for you to play. He asked why. Because we're friends. He looked back down at it and walked away. Two weeks later, I discovered he took it and sold it and used the money for pinks and drugs. He is not my friend. He is what his brothers made him to be, she notes, hesitating as if reluctant to share her information with me. When do you think he's ever received something without someone wanting something in return? You made him feel uncomfortable. Why do you think I'm wary with you? I lean closer. It's because you always want something, Victra, just like your sister. Ah, I thought it might be Antonia. She's always ruining things, ever since the she-wolf gnawed her way out of mother's womb and stole human clothes. Good that I was born first, else she might have strangled me in my crib. And she's only my half-sister, anyway. Different fathers. Mother never saw much point in monogamy. You know, Antonia even goes by Severus instead of Julii just to take a piss on Mother. Cantankerous brat. And I get saddled with her moral baggage. Ridiculous. Victra plays with the many jade rings on her fingers. I find them odd, contrasting with the Spartan severity of her scarred face. But Victor has always been a woman of contrasts. Why are you talking with me, Victra? I can't do anything for you. I have no station, I have no command, I have no money. And I have no reputation. All the things you value. Oh, I value other things too, darling. But you do have a reputation, all right. Pliny's made sure of that. So he did play a part in the gossip. Thought Tactus was just running his mouth. A part? Tarot, he's been at war with you since the moment you kneeled to Augustus. She laughs. Before then, even. He counseled Augustus to kill you then and there, or at least try you for the murder of Apollo. Didn't you know? She shakes her head at my blank stare. The fact that you're just now realizing this shows just how ill-equipped you are to play his game. And because of that, you're going to be killed. That's why I'm speaking with you. 
I'd rather you found an alternative instead of sulking in your beastly quarters. Otherwise, Cassius Albalone is going to come and he's going to take a knife and dig it right here. She caresses my chest with a long-nailed finger, etching the outline of my heart. And give his mother her first real meal in years. Then what is your suggestion? You stop being such a little bitch. She smiles up at me and holds out a data slip. Grudgingly, I take the edge of the thin metal slip, but she holds on, pulling me towards the edge of the fountain between her legs. Her lips part, her tongue playing along the top as her eyes trace my face up and up to my eyes where they try to spark a fire. But there's none there. With a feline sigh, she lets the data slip go. I run it over my personal data pad, and an advertisement for a tavern appears on my display. This isn't on Citadel grounds, I say. So? So, if I leave, it's open season on my head. Then don't advertise your leaving. I take a step back. How much are they paying you? You think this is a setup? Is it? No. How do I know you're telling the truth? Most people can't afford the truth. I can. Oh, that's right. I forgot. You never lie. I am of the gens Julii. She stands slowly, anger uncoiling like a razor. My family trades in commerce enough to buy continents. Who could afford to purchase my honor? If... One day I become your enemy, I will tell you, and I will tell you why. Everyone's honest till they're caught in a lie. Her laugh is husky and makes me feel small and boyish, reminding me she's seven years older than I. Then stay, Reaper. Trust in chance. Trust in friends. Hide here till someone buys your contract and pray they didn't do it just to serve you up to the bologna like a suckling pig. I weigh the odds and extend a hand to help her up. Well, when you put it that way. Colonel Valentin, Victor asks the shorter of the two greys who wait for us on the ramp of the shuttle. It's a shit can. One of the ugliest flyers I've ever seen. Like the front half of a hammerhead shark. I eye the taller of the greys warily. Yes, Domina, Valentin says, nodding his cinderblock head with the rigid precision of a man risen through the ranks. You are sure you were not followed? Certain as death, Victor says. We should depart fast-like, then. I follow Victor into the shuttle scanning the grounds behind us. We wore ghost cloaks as soon as we departed Augustus's villa. A dozen hidden hallways and six old grav lifts later, we arrive in a dusty, seldom-used section of the Citadel's launch pads. Theodora left us there. She wanted to come, but I won't take her where we're going. A grey scans Victor and me for bugs as we board the ship. 
The ship's ramp slides closed behind us. Twelve craggy greys fill the small passenger hold of the shuttle. They're not the dashing sort, just craftsmen of a dark trade. Though there are averages, colours are diverse in composition due to human genetics and the differing ecosystems throughout the society. The greys of Venus are often darker and more compact than those of Mars, but families move and mix and breed. The talent levels in each colour are even more variable than appearance. Most greys aren't destined for anything more than patrolling shopping centres and city streets. Some go to the armies, some to the mines. But then there are the greys who were born a special breed of wicked and clever, and have been trained all their lives to hunt the gold enemies of their gold masters. Like these in the shuttle with us. They call them lurchers, after the mutt dogs of earth crossbred for uncommon stealth, cunning and speed, all for one purpose, killing things bigger than they are. We're bound for Lost City and it's just the twelve of you? I ask. I know they're enough, I just don't like greys, so I push their buttons. They eye me with the quiet reserve of a family meeting a stranger on the road. Valentin's the father. He's built like a squat block of dirty ice carved by a rusted blade, and his sun-blasted face is dark and set with quick eyes. His lieutenant, Sun Hua, leans toward us, tough and gnarled as an olive tree. Both are earthborn by the looks of their continentally ethnic features. These greys wear no triangular badge of the society's legion on their civilian street clothes, means they've served their mandatory twenty years. We're tasked with your protection, Dominus, says Valentin, as Sun Hua loads an exotic circular weapon on the inside of her left wrist. Looks plasma-based. My team has prepared a secure route. Estimated travel time, twenty-four minutes. If Pliny finds out where I'm going, or if the Bologna know I'm out of the Citadel... The lurchers know the situation, Victor says. I don't see a gold badge. Mercenaries. Means we are good enough to live this long, Dominus, Valentin says flatly. We've prepared for all eventualities. Contingency plans and support have been organised. How much support? Enough. We're just the transporters, Dominus. His mouth twitches into a smile and I take his word for it. Bigger problem than the Bologna is third parties thinking an opportunities just stumble their way. Where we're going, there will be a hell of a lot of third parties, Dominus. Shit complicates our ROI. Soon what? Wear this. Soon what tosses me a bag of plain clothing. Her voice drones on in a monotone drawl. Your tall can't do shit all about that, but we'll do a quick die job with this, this, and this. She tosses Victor another bag. For you, boss thought you'd dress too fancy. Victor laughs at that. Muzzles off, boys. Valentin barks as the ship trembles and rises in the air. We're live. Thumpers and burners prime in practiced hands. Staccato sound of steel on steel, like metal knuckles cracking as magnetic rounds go into chambers. 
the lurchers conceal weapons and hidden holsters over tight scarab-skin armour. Three wear illegal wrist weapons. I eye the contraband as I slip into my scarab-skin. It drinks in the light, a strange pupil-like black. More the absence of colour than anything else. Better than the Juro armour we had at the Institute. It'll stop some blades and the occasional projectile weapon like the common scorcher. The ship shudders as its main engines overtake the vertical thrusters. Talon and Minotaur, be advised. Icarus is on the move. Valentin rasps into his comm. Repeat, Icarus is on the move. Chapter 7 The Afterbirth On Luna, there is no dark. No true dark, at least. Lights of a million shades swim together, glossing over the moon's jagged, cracking steel skin of cityscape. Snaking public trams and air thoroughfares, flashing communication centres, bustling restaurants and austere police stations weave into the metal dermis of the city like blood capillaries, nerve endings, sweat glands and hair follicles. We fall away from gold districts, forsaking the high reaches of the city, where stately shuttles and grav boots ferry golds to opera houses atop kilometres high towers. We dive down past the wealthy silver and copper districts, wending our way through wrong paths and aerial trains, through the mid-districts where the yellows, greens, blues and violets reside, past the low district where greys and oranges make their homes. Down and down we go to the gutters of the city, where the roots of this colossal steel jungle burrow into the ground. Myriad low colours ride public transportation from factories to their windowless apartments, some no larger than one metre by three. Only room enough for a bed. Cars rattle out exhaust in clogged, beacon-lit boulevards. The deeper we go, the fewer the lights, the dirtier the buildings, the stranger the animals, but the more brilliant the graffiti. I glimpse grey police standing over arrested brown vandals who covered an apartment complex with the image of a hanging girl, my wife. Ten stories tall, hair burning, rendered in digital paint. My chest constricts as we pass, cracking the walls I've built around her memory. I've seen her hanged a thousand times now as her martyrdom spreads across the worlds, city by city. Yet each time it strikes me like a physical blow, nerve endings shivering in my chest, heart beating fast, neck tight just under the jaw. How cruel a life, that the sight of my dead wife means hope. No matter our reputations, no enemy would seek us here. No ears to listen, no eyes to see. This is a place of gang killings, robberies, turf battles, drug trade. That my new friend wants such human privacy, privacy not even a jam field can really offer in the Citadel and the High City, means much. It worries me, means the rules are void. 
But Victra was right, and Roke was not. Patience will do me nothing. I must take a risk. The team of lurchers has secured an abandoned garage. They provide security for the shuttle while Valentin's team escorts me from the garage into the bustle of the dirty street outside. Refuse and water make bogs out of alleys. Humid air is thick with the sweet musk of rot and the charred soot of burning garbage. Hawkers cry out wares from cracked sidewalks, clogged with reds, browns, greys and oranges of all species. Urchin, invalid, working class, gangers, tweakers, mothers, fathers, beggars, cripples, children. The Lost Eo would say this is the hell they've built their heaven upon, and she'd be right. Gazing up, I see more than half a kilometre of tenement buildings before the polluted haze makes a ceiling for the human jungle. Clothes lines and electrical lines crisscross overhead like vines. This sight is hopeless. What is there to change here but everything? We're to meet at the Lost Wee Den. It's a large, tall tavern with a flickering red sign covered in pithy graffiti. Fifteen levels, all open and looking down on a central drinking hall of tables and booths filled with some two hundred customers. I can smell the piss in the metal booths, which sag from use. Bottles rattle and glasses clink as swill as slammed back. Indigo and pink lights flicker on the fifteenth floor, where they've dancers and private rooms for customers. I pass with Valentin through two bouncers with biomod hands, one obsidian with skin pale as bleached marble and arms thicker than mine, the other a dark-skinned grey with a scorcher muzzle built into his arm. The rest of my greys filter in behind me in staggered intervals, some wearing contacts, pretending to be other colours. One even wearing a flesh mask to look pretty as a pink. Can't even tell it's digital till you put a magnet near it. They look like they belong here. I doubt I do, despite the obsidian dye job they've done to me. The sigils on my hands are covered with obsidian prosthetics. My hair is white, eyes black, skin made paler with cosmetics. Victor and I are too large to pass for any other colour. Fortunately, obsidians, though rarer than the other low colours, are not out of place down here. I follow Valentin to a table in an alcove near the back of the hall, where a young man lounges behind a pack of mercenaries and a single obsidian. A deep silence fills me as I watch the obsidian stand and leave the table to sit at an adjacent one. Others I am too before remembering themselves and looking down at their drinks, like water birds as a crocodile glides past. The obsidian is a foot taller than I, and the whole of his face is tattooed with a skull. Stained. So much for a low profile. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven? I ask the reclining man, Reaper, even Milton knew Lucifer was a petty son of a bitch. He smiles enigmatically 
and waves to the chair across from him. Do stop towering over me. He's not even wearing a disguise. I look over at Victor. Thought it was going to be a new friend. Well, you two have never been friends before. That'll be the new part. You boys have fun now. You're not staying, I ask. I showed you the door. You have to walk through it. She squeezes my butt playfully and sways out. The jackal watches her leave, leaning slightly to get a better view. Didn't think you cared about women. I could be dead and I'd still appreciate her. But I don't have to tell you that. Alone in space for months on end, ship all to yourself. Whatever was there to do. I sit across from him. He offers me a bottle of greenish liquor. I shake my head. I drink to forget about men like you. Ha! An Arcosian insult, if I'm not mistaken. One of Lorne's best, though there's enough to choose from. He leans back, enigmatic in his dullness, face plain, eyes like smooth, worn coins, hair the color of desert sand. Lone hand twirling a silver stylus with the quickness of an insect skittering over blasted ground crack to crack. The jackal of Augustus and the reaper of Mars, together again at long last. How we have fallen. You chose the venue, I say, as he sets his stylus behind his ear and takes a chicken leg from a platter on the table. He strips the skin with his teeth. Does it unnerve you? Why would it? We both know how fond you are of the dark. He suddenly laughs, a whining high-pitched bark like a dog being stabbed. So much pride to you, Darrow, our Andromedus. Family all dead, disgraced, penniless things. So average that your parents didn't even try to introduce you to society. No friends remaining. No one who knew you before you slipped into the Institute, so unassuming-like. But how you rose when given a chance. Well, at least you still like to talk, I mutter. And you still like to make enemies. Everyone has a hobby. I examine the stump where his right hand should be. Desperate for attention? You're the only gold alive that wouldn't bother getting a new hand. I wonder why you provoke me still when your reputation is shattered, your bank accounts emptied. I shift in my seat. Oh, yes. You didn't know. Pliny is thorough when he cuts a man's hamstrings. He emptied all your funds. So, really, there's very little to you. But here you sit, at the bottom of a moon, alone, with me, with mine. Throwing insults. These are yours, I ask, glancing at the low colours around us. I would have thought they'd disgust you. Who said you have to like your children? The jackal asks pleasantly. They are a product of our golden loins. He gnaws on the chicken leg, cracking the bone with his teeth before discarding it. Do you know what I've been doing with my time? Wanking off in the bushes. Alas, no. 
My defeat at your hands set me back. I'm not afraid to say it. You hurt me, and my plans. My sister also wounded me. Gagging me? Binding me naked and throwing me at your feet? That stung. Especially when all the grand lords and ladies of our fine peerless caste got a chuckle at my expense. We both know you don't feel pain, Adrius. Oh, call me the jackal. Hearing Adrius from your lips is like hearing a cat bark. He shivers, but leans delightedly forward in his seat when a brown woman with thick arms and tattoos webbing her pale, pockmarked skin slips from the kitchens carrying three steaming bowls. She sets them before us. Thank you, he says, taking two for himself. I eye the bowl suspiciously. I'm not a poisoner, he says. I could poison my father any time I want, but I don't. Do you know why? Because you've not gotten what you need out of him. And that is... his approval. The jackal watches me through the steam of his bowl. Quite. I've been offered a great deal of apprenticeships. They offer it to my father's name, not to me. They despise me because I ate students. But it's such hypocrisy. What else was I to do? Were told to win, and I did my best, and then they criticize, act noble as though they didn't commit murder themselves. Madness. He shakes his head with a little sigh. Yes, I could have gone to study war at the academy like you. I could have studied politics at the Politico School on Luna. I might have been a decent judiciar if I could stomach Venus. But I will rise without their hypocrisy, without their schools. I've heard the rumors. Any true? Most. He pulls more noodles out of the bowl, spreading red pepper sauce over them. I'm a businessman now, Darrell. I buy things. I own things. I create. Of course, I'm seen as a money-grubbing silver by those pretentious, peerless jackasses. But I am not one of the fading lords of twentieth-century Europe. I understand there is power in being practical, in owning things, people, ideas, infrastructure. So much more important than money. So much more insidious than... He makes a funny motion with his hand. Spaceships and razors. Tell me, does a ship matter if you can't supply and transport the food to feed its crew? I, above all others, know the importance of food. You own this place, don't you? I ask. In a manner. He smiles with too much teeth. I feel I must be blunt with you. We were nearly eighteen when we left the Institute. We are now twenty. I have been two years in exile, and now I wish to return home. To socialize with peerless jackasses? I laugh. If you have been paying attention at all, you'll know I don't have your father's ear. Paying attention? He shares a glance with Victra and leans forward. Reaper? I am the attention. Do you know how much of the communications industry I've acquired?
know. Good. That means I'm doing it properly. I've acquired more than 20%. With my silent partner, I own nearly 30. You're wondering why. Certain families like Victra's do not consider themselves dirtied by business. After all, the Julie I have partaken in trade for centuries. But media is different for us. Slimy. Leave that to Quicksilver and his ilk. So why would someone with my lineage dirty his hands with it? Well, I want you to imagine media as a pipeline to a city in the desert. He waves around. Our metaphorical desert. I can provide only 30% of the content of what comes through that pipeline, but I can affect 100% of it. My water contaminates the rest. That is the nature of media. Do I want this city in the desert to hallucinate? Do I want its inhabitants to writhe in pain? Do I want them to rise up? He sets his chopsticks down. It all starts with what I want. And what do you want? I ask. Your head he says. Our eyes meet like two iron rods colliding, sending stinging reverberations through the body. A palpable discomfort even being near him, much less meeting those dead gold orbs. He's so young, my age, but there's a childishness to him, a curiosity despite the ancient cast of his eyes that makes him feel like a perversity. It's not that I feel cruelty and evil radiating from him. It's the feeling that crept over me when Mustang told me how, as a boy, he killed a baby lion because he wanted to see its insides to understand how it worked. You have a weird sense of humour. I know, but I'm so glad you get my jokes. So many prickly peerless these days. Duels, honour, blood. All because they're Bored. There's no one left to fight. So gory damn tedious. I believe you are making a point. Ah, yes. The jackal runs his hand through his slicked back hair, like I've seen his father do. I brought you here because Pliny is an enemy of mine. He's made my life very difficult. Even penetrated my harem. Do you know how many spies of his I've had to kill? I went through so many servants. I'm not trying to make you feel sorry for me, he says quickly. I was on the verge of it. Understanding my plight, however, is how you will help me best. As of now, Pliny controls my father's favour, like a snake hissing in his ear. Leto is his design. Did you know that? I didn't. He found the darling boy, knew he would win my father's cold heart because he would remind father of my dead brother Claudius. So Pliny cultivated him, trained him, and convinced my father to adopt him as a ward, with aims of making him the heir. Then you come waltzing into our lives and disrupt Pliny's plan. It took two years to dispatch you, but patiently he did just as he did me. Now Lita will be my father's heir, 
and Pliny will be Leto's master. That hits me hard. I knew Pliny was dangerous. Perhaps I never really knew just how dangerous. So what's your plan? I glance around the room. Going to take back your father's favour with plebeians and pitchforks? As any gold with a decent education would know, there's a certain crime syndicate that runs things in Lost City. A vast criminal enterprise that, if you trace it all the way to the tip-top, is under the influence of the office of the sovereign of our little society. Octavia Aulun may seem the paragon of gold virtue, but she has got a fetish for the dirty stuff. Assassinations, organising workers' strikes in her own arch-governor's domains, rigging appointments. Her handling of Lost City is no different. She and her furies hand-picked the crime family leadership. These three individuals are her creatures. But here's the juicy kink. I've found certain members of that same organisation who are... Restless. I frown. They don't like Loon. She's an onerous bitch. One who has spat in my father's eye and cozied up to the Bologna, but no. My champions don't think on that plane. They are low colours, Darrow. They're restless to be atop the shit pile. Why lost city? I ask. What does it matter? It is merely a piece of the puzzle. I'm going to help these ambitious low colours move up for a price. When they are in power, they are going to kill off a menace that plagues the society. Ares and his sons. Chapter 8 Scepter and Sword I go cold inside. The sons of Ares. I wasn't aware they were so dire a threat. They're not yet, but they will be, he says. The Sovereign knows it. So does my father, even if it is not in vogue to say it aloud. The society has faced terrorist cells before. Throw enough lurcher teams at them and they are dispatched easily enough. But the sons are different. They are not a rat biting our heels but a termite colony slowly gnawing our foundation as quietly as possible till they've done such work that our house crumbles around us. My father has given Pliny the task of eliminating the sons, but Pliny has been failing. He will continue to fail because the sons of Ares are clever, and because my media adores giving them attention. But when they become a thing so dreadful to society, to the sovereign, to my father, that the very machine of governance grinds to a halt, I will step forward and say, I will cure this disease in three weeks. And then I will, with my media, with the syndicate systematically killing all the sons, and with you gloriously beheading Ares himself. You want a figurehead? I am not glamorous. I do not inspire. You are like one of the old conquerors, charismatic and virtuous. 
When they look at you, they see none of the soft decadence of our meagre time, none of the political poison that has saturated Luna since Loon's family rose to power. They will look at you and see a cleansing knife, a new dawn for a second golden age. Like father, like son, both targeting the sons of Ares in similar ways. It's chilling thinking of the war that will rage between crime syndicate throat cutters and Ares agents. It'll destroy the sons. The sons of Ares are only the beginning, a leverage point. You want to rule. What other ambition is there? But not just Mars. Just because I'm small doesn't mean my dreams have to be. I want it all, and to get it I'm willing to do anything, even share. Perhaps you're not aware of what happened two months ago. I say, stop a gold anywhere and ask. They'll tell you what the Bologna family did to the Reaper of Mars. I have no reputation. The only thing I inspire is laughter. Cassius was shamed, the jackal says in irritation. He was pissed on, beaten at the Institute, embarrassed. Now he's the deadliest jeweler on Luna. He fought any that would contest his worth, and now he's the Sovereign's favourite new pet. Did you know the old crow is making him an Olympic knight? Lorn our Arcus and Venetia our Reign both retired this year. That means the posts of Rage Knight and Morning Knight are open. She'd make him one of the twelve. He is a piece on her board. The jackal leans forward. But I tire of playing pawn to my elders. As do I. Makes me feel like a pink, I say. Then let us rise together. I the scepter, you the sword. You won't share. It's not in your nature. I do what I need to do, no more, no less. And I need a warlord. I'll be Odysseus, you be Achilles. Achilles dies in the end. Then learn from his mistakes. It's a good idea. I pause at his spreading smile. With one problem. You are a sociopath, Adrius. You don't only do what you need to do. You wear whatever face you need, whatever emotion you desire like a glove. How could I ever trust you? You killed Pax. I let the words hang in the air. You killed my friend, your sister's protector. Pax and I had never met before. All I saw was an obstacle in my path. Of course, I knew of the Telemannuses, but after Claudius got his brains splattered everywhere, Father split Mustang and me up to protect us, put me in even greater isolation than her. I was his heir. I had no friends, only tutors. He ruined my youth. And then he discarded me as he discarded you, because we lost. You and I mirror each other. A fight breaks out on the level above us. A scorcher cracks. Bouncers rush upward, cradling their own weapons. Most of the patrons sit undisturbed. What of your sister? I ask hesitantly, knowing deep down that I have no other options left but this one. 
Do you want to know how she fares? He asks plainly. Who shares her bed? I can give you whatever answers you want. My eyes are everywhere. I don't want that. I shake my head, trying to banish the dark idea of someone sharing her bed, of her finding joy in someone else, even if she deserves to. Even stranger is thinking the jackal knows these things. Is she involved in this? No, the jackal says with a heavy laugh. You know she's with Loon now. It's hilarious, really. Who would have thought that of the two of us she'd be the prodigal twin? Well, more prodigal. She cannot be hurt, I say. If she is, I will cut off your head. That's aggressive. But you have a deal. So you're with me. I've been with you since I got into the shuttle. You know I have no other options, and I know no other person would ever summon me here. The variables could only lead to this end. And why should they not? I took his hand. He took a friend. All he has done is bite and claw for his own survival. Watching him now, so small and plain in a world of gods, it's almost as if he's the hero, nobly struggling against a father who rejected him, against a society that laughs at his size, his weakness, and scorns him as a cannibal, even though it was they who told him to do whatever he had to do to win. In an odd way, he is like me. He could have had his hand repaired, but he chose not to, wearing it as a badge of honor instead of shame. So, I'll go along with this. Then in the end, maybe I'll kill him. For Pax. His face splits into a grand smile. I'm so pleased, Dara. So pleased. And, to be honest, a bit relieved. Well, what is next? I ask. You must need something from me now. A gold by the name of Fensor al-Drusilla has learned of my dealings with the syndicates. He is trying to blackmail me. I need you to kill him. Of course. When? Not for a week or so. The real purpose of killing him will be to gain favour with one of the Sovereign's cousins who was slighted by Fensor. With Fensor's death... You'll fall into the cousin's favour. I choked down a laugh. You'll have me play the role of a pixie gallant, flitting about court, bedding ladies. Mustang will think I'm doing it to spider. The jackal's eyes sparkle with mischief. Who said anything about ladies? Oh, I say, realising what he means. Oh, that's... Complicated. Tactus might be better for this. The jackal chuckles at my surprise. Oh, you'll do just fine. But all this is worry for another day. For now, relax. I'll purchase your contract through a second party as soon as it goes up for auction. The Bologna will try to buy it. I have a backer. We'll outspend them. Victor? No. She's more of a broker in this. What you have to understand about Victor is she's not, how do you say, 
partisan. She just loves stirring the pot. The backer you'll meet soon enough. That won't work, I say. I want to meet him now. I'm not your puppet. I share everything I know. You share everything you know. But I know so much more. Fine. He leans forward. You'll meet him tonight. It's not that I don't trust you. I just think it appropriate that he introduces himself. Fine enough. I want to bring the Howlers back, and Severo. Done. You'll also need to select a blade master, someone to tutor you with the razor. We'll need you to kill a few people publicly in the future. I know how to use a razor, I say. Not what I've heard. Come now, there's no shame in it. I have a few names. It's a pity Arcos isn't tutoring. These days I might actually have the funds to afford Stoneside and his willow way. His words trail off, and his eyes drift from me, pulled to the slinking form of a woman who cuts through the smoke and drab of the tavern like an ember falling through fog. I can smell the almond on her skin, the citrus of her lips as she nears our table, graceful and stirring as the air of Venus's summer coast. Bones fragile, avian. She wears a black shift that covers her skin except her bare shoulders. Then I catch her eyes, and I almost fall out of my chair. It's a shot to the heart. My pulse patters. It's her, the girl with wings who could never fly. But now she's fled from Mickey, it seems. Wings gone, ripened into womanhood. But why is Evie here? Did the sun send her? I can barely keep my composure. She hasn't recognized me. I didn't know roses to grow so deep among the weeds the jackal says to her. Her laughter drifts like the beating of a butterfly's wings. She traces the bottom edge of the worn table and shrugs minutely. Common men can't afford uncommon things, but my mistress heard uncommon men were in Lost City and sent me as an ambassador. Ah! The jackal leans back, appraising her. You're a syndicate girl, one of the Bonners. Off her nod, the jackal looks at me and mistakes my expression of surprise for one of desire. Take her upstairs, Dara. On me, a welcoming gift. Let me know if you want to buy her. We can discuss business tomorrow. At the word, Darrow, Evie's composure buckles for a blink. She steps back and I hear her breath pattern change. And when her eyes meet mine, I know she sees through the obsidian disguise and glimpses the red underneath all these lies. However, the surprise there means she's not here for me. She's here for the jackal. But why? Is she with the sons? Or did Mickey finally sell his prize to this Verbana gangster? I don't do slaves, Evie says to the jackal, pointing to my obsidian sigils. You'll find there's more to this one than meets the eye. Dominus, I... 
he grabs her hand, twisting her pinky horribly. Shut up and do as you're told, girl, or we'll take what you won't give. He flashes a great smile and releases her. She holds her hand, trembling. It doesn't take much to wound a pink. I stand. I believe I'll take it from here, my friend. I'm sure you will. I wave the bodyguards away who try to accompany me. I follow Evie up the hand rungs leading to the fourth floor, earning hoots from some of the patrons. My eyes catch one of the hollow cans above the bar. Images of a bombing ripple in three dimensions. It looks to be at a cafe. A gold cafe. My eyes widen as the extent of the devastation is shown. Was it the sun's? Another bombing flashes across a different screen. And another. And another till dozens of bombings flood the screens throughout the tavern. All heads turn to watch, silence yawning through the vast tavern. Evie's hand tightens around mine, and I know it was the sons who committed the bombings. They sent her. But why Luna? Why the jackal? Why haven't they contacted me? Hurry, she says, as we reach the fifteenth floor, pulling me through the pink lights, past the dancers and hungry patrons, to the last door at the end of a narrow corridor. I follow her inside the dark room and immediately smell the acrid tang of scorcher oil. Air shifts behind me as a man in a ghost cloak creeps forward. It takes considerable effort to resist the impulse to kill him. He's one of ours, Evie snaps. She turns on the light. Six reds in heavy military tech decloak. They wear demon helms with high-grade optics. Call in the skimmer. He's not Aegis, our Augustus, one of them growls. He's a bloody obsidian. Strange-looking one. One of the reds with the optics jumps back, scorcher priming. Bone density is gold. Stop, Evie shouts. He's a friend. Harmony has been looking for him. Not Ares, or Dancer. You weren't here for me, I say, eyeing their weapons. You were hunting. She turns to me. I'll explain later, but we have to go. What did you do? I ask, as one of the Reds pulls out a plasma torch and cuts a hole in the wall, opening the room up to the stink of the city. Moist air rushes in, and lights flood the room as a small dropship descends, opening its side hatches parallel to the improvised door. Darrow, there's no time. I grab her. Evie, why are you here? Her eyes flash with triumph. Adrius, our Augustus, has murdered fifteen of our brothers and sisters. I was sent to capture or kill him. I chose the latter. In twenty seconds he'll be ash. I rip one of the Red's data pads off his arm and prime my concealed grav boots. Evie shouts at me. The boots whine mournfully as they lift me into the air. I rip back the way we came, rupturing through the door instead of opening it, flying down the hallway like a bat out of hell. I smash past a dancer, careen over two orange customers, and turn a razor-tight right angle down over the railing toward the jackal's table as he finishes his liquor. His stained marks me, as do the greys. 
too slow. On the screens, over the bombings, the static crackles, and a blood-red helm burns. Reap what you sow. Ares' voice growls from a dozen speakers. The table melts under the jackal's hand, consumed by the bomb Evie planted. The stained throws the jackal away from the table like a doll and curls his titanic body around the mushrooming energy. His mouth moves in a death whisper. Skirnir alfalnir. Chapter 9 The Darkness The energy blossoms outward from the stained liquid to the eye, evaporating his body and spreading over the floor like spilled mercury before darkening, slipping back to the origin, sucking men and chairs and bottles toward it like a black hole before detonating with a deep, nightmare roar. I snag the jackal up by his jacket and fly through the wall, slamming shoulder first as, behind us, Glass, wood, metal, eardrums, and men, rupture. My boots fail. We fly across the street and slam into the building opposite, cracking concrete and falling to the ground as the lost wee den shrinks inward like a grape, becoming a raisin, becoming dust. She exhales a death rattle of fire and ash before sagging to ruin. Beneath me, the jackal's unconscious, his legs badly burned. I vomit as I try to stand, my skeleton creaking like the trunk of a young tree after its first hard winter wind. I stumble up only to fall back to the ground, emptying my stomach a second time. Pain in my skull, nose dripping blood, ears trickling with it, eyeballs throbbing from the explosion, shoulder dislocated. I gain my knees, wedge my shoulders against the wall, and roll the joint back in, quivering out breath as it pops into place. The feeling of needles tickles my fingers. I wipe the sick off my hands and wobble finally to my feet. I pick up the jackal and squint into the smoke. I hear nothing but the wailing of stereocilia, like screaming sparrows in my inner ear, throbbing. I shake away the lights that dance across my vision. Smoke swallows me. People flow past, water around a rock, rushing to help those trapped. They'll find only death, only ash. Sonic booms puncture the night. The jackal's support teams roar down from the city above, and as they land to take him out of this hell, the sparrows in my ears fade, devoured by the crackling of flames and the crying of the wounded. I stand in front of an abandoned factory, 400 kilometers from the citadel, deep in the old industrial sector. Newer factories have been built atop this one, burying it beneath a fresh skin of industry like a deep blackhead. Grime skins the place, carnivorous moss, Rust-filled water. I'd have thought it a dead end if I didn't know my quarry so well. The datapad I took from the red survived the explosion. I left the jackal for his support teams and slipped farther down the street, where I stole a grey police craft. After wiping the datapad's tracking device, I hacked into the datapad coordinates history. 
I knock hard on the locked door to the factory's main level. Nothing. They must be shitting themselves. So I kneel on the ground, hands behind my head, and wait. After a few minutes, the door creaks open. Darkness inside. Then several figures slip forward. They bind my hands, cover my head with a bag, and push me into the factory. After taking me down an old hydraulic elevator, they guide me steadily toward the sound of music, Brahms Piano Concerto Number 2. Computers hum. Welding torches flare bright enough to glow through the bag's fabric. Here, get off him, you brutes, snaps a familiar voice. Careful, clown, rumbles some red. Babble at me all you want, you rusty baboon. He's worth more than ten thousand of you inbred rough. Dallow, get out, Evie says softly. Now. Boots thud away. Can I stop pretending now? I ask. By all means, Mickey says. I snap the cuffs they use to bind my wrists behind my back and strip off the bag that covers my head. The concrete and metal laboratory is clean, quiet but for the soothing music. A faint haze floats in the air from Mickey's water pipe in the corner. I tower over him and Evie. She can't contain herself. No longer the seductress rose from the tavern, she throws herself into me like a little girl greeting a long-lost uncle. Her hands linger on my waist as she eventually pulls back and stares up into my gold eyes with her pink ones. Despite her giggling, she's all sensuality and beauty, with willowy arms and a slow, intimate smile that echoes none of the grief killing nearly two hundred people should mark her with. The winged girl has become a carrion bird, and she doesn't seem to have noticed. I wonder if she'd smile so broadly if she had to kill all those people with a knife. How easy we make mass murder. I could recognize you anywhere, she says. When I saw you at the table, my heart skipped a beat, especially in that ridiculous obsidian makeup. Darrow, what's wrong? She yelps when I pick her up by the front of her jacket and shove her against the wall. You just killed two hundred people. I shake my head, sore and heavy with the weight of what's happened. How could you, Evie? I shake her, seeing again the crew of my ship venting into space, seeing all the dead I've left in my path, feeling Julian's pulse fade to nothing. Darrow, darling, Mickey tries. Shut up, Mickey. Yes, all right. Reds, pinks, low colours, your own people, like they were nothing. My hands tremble. I was following orders, Darrow, she says. Adrius has been investigating us. He had to be taken out. So, with all his scheming, he'd been noticed. Tears brim in Evie's eyes. I don't recoil from them. Who gives a shit about how she feels after what she's just done? But I release her, letting her slide pathetically down the wall, hoping she might show some glimmer of regret that would make me think those tears are for the people she killed, and not for herself, not because she's scared of me. This isn't how I wanted it to be, she says, 
wiping her eyes, when you saw me again? I stared down at her, confused. What happened to you? She had a different teacher than you, Mickey says. I took her wings off and Harmony gave her claws. I turned to Mickey. What the hell is going on? It would take a year to explain. He crosses his arms and examines me. But let us first say you've been missed, my darling prince. Second, please do not link my morality to that lost soul. I agree, Evie is a little monster. He glares past me at Evie as she stands. Maybe now you'll see yourself for what you are. His sneer fades, quick eyes scanning me toe to head. Third, you look divine, my boy. Absolutely divine. His eyes dance over my face. His mouth opens, closes, tripping over itself. It has so much to say. Sharp of face, oily of hair, he slides forward like a blade on ice, all angles, skin wrapped around slender bones. Was he so thin when last I saw him? Or does he simply not have his cosmetics? No, his blinks are slow, languid. He's tired, older, and seemingly beaten down. A queer air of vulnerability in the way his shoulders hunch and his eyes dart around, as if expecting to be hit at any moment. I asked you a question, Mickey, I say. I can't think about the forest. I'm still examining the tree. It's astounding how your body flourished. Simply astounding, my darling. You've actually grown larger. How fair your pain receptors. Did the hair follicles ever grow irritated as I was concerned? What about the muscle contraction? Do you find it above the average of your peers? Pupil dilation fast enough? All I heard for months was talk of you on the HC. They could not show the Institute, of course, but there were videos leaked on the hollow net. Such videos. You killing a peerless scarred. Taking some strange fortress in the sky like a champion of old. Even they swallow the myths of the conquerors, the noble champions of old. He grips my shoulder desperately, his hand weaker than I remember. Tell me about your life, what the academy is like. Tell me everything. Are you still lovers with that delectable Virginia Ow Augustus? He frowns suddenly. Oh, of course you're not. She's with Mickey. I grip him. Calm down. He laughs so hard he coughs turning from me to wipe his eyes. Just good to see a friendly face. They don't allow me kind company these days. None at all. Monstrous, really. Shut up, Mickey. Evie snaps. His eyes slip to Evie, who now stands far from my reach, fingering the burner holstered on her hip as though it would protect her from me. Why are you on Luna? What is going on? I ask. Have you joined the sons? Much has happened, Mickey murmurs. I'm not here by... He works for us now, Darrow, Evie interrupts coldly. Whether he likes it or not, we took his little skin den apart. 
used the funds he made from selling flesh to buy transport here and equip an army. We're striking back, Dara. Finally. One pink terrorist and a handful of reds playing with guns. I say without looking at her. Is that your army? We drew blood from the goals today, Darrow. If you don't respect me, respect that. I killed the son of Mars's arch-governor. What have you done that makes you think you can come here and spit on what we've done? You didn't kill him, I say. She looks blankly at me. Don't be ridiculous. I stare back, angry. But how? The bomb, she says. You're lying. I got him out in time. Why? Because my mission is complicated. I need him. Where is Dancer? Who is in charge here? Mickey. I am, says another voice from my past. One with an accent like my wife's, except this voice is poisoned and bitter with anger. I turn to see Harmony at the door, half her face still blasted with that terrible scar. The other half is cold and cruel, older than I remember. Harmony, I say mildly. The years have done nothing to warm us to each other. It's good to see you. I need to debrief. There's so much to say. I can't even think where to begin. Then I notice the glance she gives Evie. Harmony? Where is Dancer? Dancer is dead, Darrow. Later, Harmony sits with me in front of Mickey's desk in an office of cheap, angular furniture and jars filled with hybrid organs floating in preservative gas. Mickey sits behind the desk, fidgeting with that old platonic puzzle cube of his. He sees me looking at it and he winks. He's gotten better. Evie leans against a barrel of chemicals. I sit, utterly lost. Dancer had a plan for me. He had a plan for all this. He's not supposed to be dead. He can't be. It was Dancer's last wish for Mickey to carve us a new army, one that will rival the goals in speed and strength. We've taken our greatest men and women and put them to the carving. They cannot survive a gold procedure like the one you endured, but some managed to brave this new program. She waves out the glass where a hundred coffin-like tubes splay across the floor. Inside each, reds of a new breed. Soon we'll have a hundred soldiers who can cut gold deeper than any before. As if a hundred would be enough to fight the gold war machine. My howlers and I could likely shred any unit these terrorists put together. And we're not even the deadliest golds. She gestures with a new arm, having lost the one of flesh and bone to an obsidian when raiding an armory for weapons. It's a limb of metal now, fluid and strong, with illegal black market sockets for weaponry. Good workmanship, but nothing compared with Mickey's carving. Of course she'd never let him work on her. So Mickey is a prisoner? I ask. Slave, more like. Mickey grunts with a small smile. They don't even give me wine. 
shut up, Mickey. Evie snaps. Evie? Harmony fixes the young woman with a tolerant stare before regarding Mickey. Remember what we talked about, eh? Mind your tongue. Mickey flinches, eyes darting down to her left hand. There is an empty holster on her belt, something Mickey is scared of. Harmony is behaving for me. You're afraid he's going to say how you beat him? She shrugs, dismissing my judgment. Mickey sold girls and boys. Can't enslave a slaver. Far as I see it, he's bloody damn lucky not to have a bullet in his brain. Could hire a carver to give him horns and wings and a tail so he'd look like the monster he is, but I haven't. Have I, Mickey? No. No? No, Domina. The word makes me recoil in disgust. Dancer always respected him, I say. I respect him, despite all his eccentricities. He bought people, sold them, Evie says. We've all sinned, I say, especially you, now. Told you he'd be bloody damn holier than thou, acting like he doesn't compromise his morality day in, day out, finding excuses for wicked bastards like our Mickey here. Harmony smirks to Evie, sharing a private joke. That sort of attitude is all fine up there, Darrow. But you learn we don't compromise here anymore. That's the past. Then Dancer is truly dead. Dancer was a good man. She's silent for too short a moment for it to count as respectful. But good men tend to die first. Half a year back, he hired a grey mercenary team to hit a communications hub so we could steal data. I said we should kill them once the job was done. Dancer said, what was it again? We aren't devils. But after the grey captain collected his pay, he pissed off to the local society police headquarters and offered them Dancer's location. Bloody damn lurcher squad put Dancer and 200 sons in the dirt in two minutes. Never again. If they kill one of us, we kill a hundred of them. And we don't trust greys. We don't pay violets. They've lived off our toil for ages. We only trust reds. Evie shifts uncomfortably. There was another red at the Institute. I say after a moment. Titus, was he one of yours? I glance toward Mickey. Don't look at me, Mickey says. How did you know Titus was the red? Harmony asks quickly. Did he tell you? He let it slip. Small mannerisms. No one else noticed. Then you found each other? She asks, not smiling, but sighing free a weight she's long carried. He was a good lad. I'm sure you became friends. He never discovered me. Did you carve him, Mickey? With Harmony's blessing, he answers. No, darling, you were my first, my only. He winks. I consulted on his carving, but an associate of mine did his procedure based on the successes you and I pioneered.
Dancer found you, Harmony says. I found Titus, though his name was Arles when we pulled him from Thebus Mines. He didn't care about keeping it. It's fitting that Harmony would find Titus, birds of a feather. What happened to him? she asks. We know he died. What happened to him? I let a gold put him in the bloody ground. I look stonily at the three of them, thankful they cannot read my thoughts. They know nothing. I can barely conceive of what they must think of me. They've such small perspectives on what I've done and what I have become. I thought there was a plan, a long, large reason for all my toil. But there was nothing. I know that now. Even Dancer was just waiting to see what happened, hoping. I expected to be welcomed back with open arms. I expected an army waiting, a grand plan for Ares to take off his infamous helm and dazzle me with his brilliance and prove all my faith warranted. Hell, all I wanted was to find them again so I would not feel alone. But I feel more alone than ever, sitting here in a concrete room with these three pale people on rickety plastic chairs. A gold named Cassius Aubelona killed him. I say. Was it a good death? By now, you should know there's no such thing. Cassius, the same one you have a blood feud with? Is that why? Evie asks eagerly. Is that why the Bologna want to kill you? I run a hand through my hair. No. I killed Cassius's brother. It's one of the reasons they hate me. Blood for blood, Evie murmurs, like she knows what the hell she's talking about. We hit them hard today, Darrow. Twelve blasts across Luna and Mars. Dancer and Titus have been avenged, Harmony says. And we'll hit them harder in the days to come. This cell is just one of many. She waves her hand at the desk, and scenes rise as the hollow display comes to life. Violet news anchors drone on about the carnage. Am I supposed to be impressed? I ask. You're as bad as them. You know that, yes? Never mind the strategy of it. Never mind your taunting a sleeping dragon. Evie herself killed over a hundred low colours just hours ago. There weren't reds, Harmony says, and then adds, in an amazingly insincere afterthought, or pinks. Yes, there were. Then their sacrifice will be remembered. Harmony says solemnly. Vox clamantus in deserto, I exclaim. Mickey sits quiet, but he allows himself a small smile. Trying to impress us with your gold fancy talk, Harmony asks. He feels like a voice crying out in the desert, shouting all in vain, Mickey exclaims. It's simple Latin. So you know what's what, Harmony says. Become a gold and suddenly you have all the answers. Wasn't that the point of me becoming a gold, so we could see how they think? No, 
It was to position you to strike at their jugular. She balls her fist and strikes the palm of her metal hand in emphasis. Don't act like you were born better than I. Remember, I know what you are inside. Just a scared boy who tried to kill himself when he was too weak to save his wife from hanging. I sit speechless. Harmony, he's just trying to help, Evie says softly. I know it must be hard, Darrow. You've spent years with them, but we have to hurt them. See, that's all they understand. Pain. Pain is how they control us. She continues slowly. The first day I served a gold was the greatest pleasure I felt in all my life. I can't explain it to you. It was like meeting God. Now I know that it wasn't pleasure I felt. It was the absence of pain. That's how they train pinks to live a life of slavery, Darrow. They raise us in the gardens with implants in our bodies that fill our lives with pain. They call the device Cupid's Kiss. The burn along the spine. The ache in the head. It never stops. Not even when you close your eyes. Not even when you cry. It only stops when you obey. They take the kiss away eventually, when we're twelve. But you can't know what it's like, the fear that it'll come back, Dara. Evie plays with her nails. Gold needs to feel pain. They need to fear it. And they need to learn they may not hurt us without consequences. That's what harmony means. And I thought the golds were broken. We're all just wounded souls stumbling about in the dark, desperately trying to stitch ourselves together, hoping to fill the holes they ripped in us. Eo kept me from this end. Without her, I'd be like them. Lost. It's not about hurting them, Evie, I say. It's about beating them. Eo taught me that. Dancer, too. We're swinging at the apples when we should be digging at the roots. What will bombing them do? What will assassination accomplish? We need to undermine their society as a whole, erode their way of life, not this. You've lost sight of your mission, Darrow, Harmony says. You say that to me, I ask. How could you possibly understand what I've seen? Exactly, what you've seen. Dine with the masters and forget the slaves. You can afford to live a life of theories. What about what I've seen? We're down in the shit. We're dying. And what are you doing? philosophizing, living the plush life, bedding pinks. I had to listen as Dancer died. I had to hear the bloody damn screams rattle over the comms as the lurchers came to kill. And I could do nothing to save them. If you had lived through that, you would know fire can only be fought with fire. I know where these words lead. They gave me a hole in my gut put me weeping in the mud, Cassius standing over me. 
That is how this will end. You may have lost all you love, Harmony. I'm sorry for that. But my family is still in a mine. They will not suffer because you are angry. My wife's dream was about a better world, not a bloodier one. I stand. Now I want to talk to Ares. Silence lies heavy upon the room. Give us a moment. Harmony looks at Mickey and Evie. She watches Mickey stand reluctantly. He pauses as if to say something to me, but, feeling Harmony's eyes on him, thinks better of it. Good luck, my darling, he says simply, patting my shoulder. Let me stay, Evie says, drawing close to Harmony. I can help with him. Harmony touches her hip. Ares wouldn't allow it. After what I did today, don't you trust me? I'm not like the rest. I trust you as much as any red, but this is something I can't share with you. She kisses Evie softly on the lips. Go. Evie pauses at the door, looking back at me. We're not your enemies, Darrow. You have to know that. The door clicks shut behind her, and we're left alone in Mickey's office. Does she know? I ask. Know what? That you sent her on a suicide mission. No. She's not like us. She trusts. And you'd sacrifice her? I'd sacrifice any of us to kill a peerless scarred. All we get are worthless pixies and bronzies. I want the real tyrants. You're using her worse than Mickey ever did. She has a choice, Harmony mutters. Does she? Enough! Harmony sits and gestures for me to do the same. Dancer may be dead, but Ares has a plan for you. No, no, I'm done listening to his plans through others. I've sacrificed three years of my life for him. I want to see his face. Impossible. Then I'm done. How can you be done, eh? You're trapped. You bloody well can't go home to like us, can you? One way out. Buckle tight and stay the course. Her words strike hard. I can't go back. The loneliness in that is inexpressible. Where is my home? Where will I go, even if this all ends with gold falling to ashes? You won't meet Ares. Even I've never seen his face, hell diver. You haven't. You've worked for him for almost as long as Dancer. Years. How can you of all people trust him? Because he put the first gun in my hand. He wore his helmet and pushed a Mark IV scorcher with a full iron clip into my palm. Is Ares a man? I ask. Who cares? She pulls up a hollow display. The electrons swirl in the air, coalescing into a series of maps. I recognize the topography. Mars. Venus. Luna, I think. Dozens of red dots blink through blueprints of cities, dockyards, and a dozen other vital organs. Bombs, I realize. Harmony looks tiredly at the map. This is Ares' plan. 
400 bombings, 600 assaults on weapons depots, government facilities, electric companies, communications grids. It is the sum of the sons of Ares. Years of planning, years of scraping up resources. I had no idea we could carry out such action. I stare at the map in awe. The bombings today were meant to provoke a response, get them all hot and bothered. We want them mobilising. If they mobilise, they condense. Easiest to burn pit vipers when they're packed tight. When will this take place? Three nights from now? Three nights, I repeat. At the conclusion of the summit. He can't want me to do the... He does. Three nights from now, the summit finishes up nice with a gala. Wine, pinks, silks, whatever the hell you gold brows do. All the bloody damn governors, all the senators, preters, imperators, judiciars from across the society will be here. A solar system of monsters brought by the power of the sovereign to one place. It'll be ten more years before we see this. There's no way for the sons to get in. But you can go where we can't. You can strike the blow that we cannot. I feel the words coming like a train down a tunnel. When they have all gathered nice and tight-like, when the sovereign stands to give her speech, you kill the gold-browed bastards with a radium bomb we hide on you. Mickey and a crew of gizmos built the tech. Once we see the bomb is detonated via the data recorder we'll plant on you, we unleash hell across the system. Burn them out. This is the sum of all I've done. There has to be another way. There were always two plans, Helldiver. This and you. Ares and Dancers said you were our hope, our chance at another path. They boasted like boys that you could destroy gold from inside. But you failed, like I said you would. You're gonna claim blood is on Evie's hands. Well, it's on yours too. You don't even know the blood I have on my hands, Harmony. I'm not some bloody damn saint. But Evie's attack was a crime. The only crime is if we lose. I shatter. There's more at play here than you understand. We cannot face gold. No matter the blow we strike, they will eradicate us like this. I snap my fingers. So you won't do it? No, I won't do it, Harmony. Then the war begins without your help, she says. We had two sons ready to try to enter the gala. They're not gold, so bets are higher they'll get caught and cut to ribbons in a Praetorian torture cell before completing their mission. Means the leaders of gold will live on, and our tiny chances of winning this shitstorm shrink because you don't trust Ares. Slag this. Ares should have told me this himself if he wanted my help. How? He's on Mars preparing the revolution. There's no way to communicate. They monitor everything. How could he contact you without exposing your cover? She leans forward. Lower teeth exposed, ferally. Tell me, Darrow, do you even know how much they've stolen from you?
It's something in her tone. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. She jams a series of orders into the holocube, and an image appears of Lycos Mines. My blood goes cold. The recording of Eos' death, the one we pirated and broadcast. My heart thuds in my throat. It wasn't complete. She presses play, and the room around us becomes the mine. We're a part of the three-dimensional hollow. It's the raw footage, not the stuff on the newsreels, not the stuff I've seen a hundred times. It shows the hanging without a soundtrack. I hear my own cries of pain as the greys beat the boy I used to be. Weeping in the crowd, the awkward silence of unedited footage. My mother hangs her head and Uncle Nero spits in the dust. Kieran, my brother, covers his children's eyes. Feet shuffle. Dio, Eo's sister, stumbles up the metal scaffold, shoes scraping over rust, sobbing. Then Dio leans toward my wife. Eo stands small, so pale and thin, little more than the smoke of the burning girl I remember. Her lips move. Again, I don't hear it, just as I didn't hear it that day. Suddenly, Dio sobs uncontrollably and clings to Eo. What was said? Use the equipment. That's what it's there for, eh? I've wondered at it a thousand times, but never had access to this footage. I never knew how I'd find it without raising suspicion. And the thought scared me, as it scares me now. What was I not strong enough to hear? What could Dio bear that I could not? In the news footage that was pirated, they don't even show Dio. But here, with the raw footage, I can rewind. I do so. I can amplify the sound. I do so. I watch it happen again. My mother hangs her head. Nero spits. Kieran covers the children's eyes. Feet shuffle. Dio goes up the scaffold. All the sound is magnified. I sort out the white noise with the controls, and I hear what my wife said to Dio. In our bedroom, there's a crib I made. Hide it before Dara returns. A crib? Dio murmurs. He must never know. It would break him. Don't say it, Eo. Don't. I am with child. Chapter 10 Broken I break. Sitting in a void, staring at my hands. The hands that could not save my wife, my child. She was right. I wasn't strong enough to bear the truth of her second sacrifice. Eo could have lived. Eo could have given us the child we always wanted. But she thought that future wasn't worth her silence. I wasn't worth it. 
I feel something deep in my chest, a hollow, cold ache, like blackness has opened in the pit of my soul, even as my body tightens and coils around grief. I weigh a million pounds, shoulders slump, chest compresses, my fingers clutch together. Funny to think these hands have been with me this whole time. They touched her lips. They helped pull her ankles. They buried her in the soil. But they didn't just bury her, did they? No, they buried another life, one unborn. Our child, dead before it lived. And I never even knew. I mourned without knowing the greatest injustice. I failed them both. The amplified video replays again. I am with child. She tells Dio on the scaffold. I am with child. I replay it a dozen times, feeling myself shrink into a corridor of grief. The goals didn't just kill her. They killed what I've always wanted to be. A husband and a father. If only I had stopped her. If only I'd not pouted like a child when we lost the laurel, she wouldn't have thought to take me to the garden. If only I had the strength to pretend losing the laurel didn't bother me. All the family I could have had. A wife, sons, daughters, grandchildren. They've been slaughtered before they ever were. Eo will never hold our daughter. She will never kiss our son to sleep and smile over me as his little hands clutch my finger. I'm all that's left of that family that could have been. A dark shadow of the man I was meant to be. The rage rises. We had a chance, and it's gone. Everything I wanted is gone. Because of me, and because of them. Their laws, their injustice, their cruelty. They made a woman choose death for her and her unborn child over a life of slavery. All that for power. All that so they can keep their perfect little world. You are not strong enough then, Harmony says. Are you strong enough now, Helldiver? I look at her, tears blurring my sight. Her hard eyes soften for me. I had children once. Radiation ate their insides, and they didn't even give them the pain meds. Didn't even fix the leak. Said there weren't enough resources. My husband just sat there and watched them die. In the end, the same thing took him. He was a good man. But good men die. To free them, to protect them, we must be savages. So give me evil. Give me darkness. Make me the bloody damn devil if we can bring even the faintest ray of light. I stand and wrap my arms around her as I'm reminded of the true horrors our kind face. Had I really forgotten? I am a child of hell, and I've spent too long in their heaven. 
Whatever Ares wants, I'll do it. Pliny sent the bitch. The jackal hisses as the yellow physicians slowly remove the burned skin from his arm and reapply new growth cultures. It wasn't the sons of Ares. They wouldn't kill that many low colours. It's against profile. Pliny, probably, or the sovereign's Praetorians using cover. The lights of passing ships glow through the glass. He curses and shouts at his servants to black out the windows. Grays brought me here to his private skyscraper instead of the citadel, as I requested. The place crawls with mercenaries. He prefers greys to obsidians, except apparently that stained. And the only other gold which shows the extent of the jackal's trust. His name would certainly bring enough hangers-on to fill a city, but he's comfortable in his isolation. Like me. Could it have been Victra? I ask. She didn't stay. She's already proven our loyalty. She wouldn't use a bomb. And she's in love with you. It wasn't her. In love with me? I ask, startled. You're blind as a blue. He snorts but says no more about it. Our alliance must remain a secret until we're off this damn moon, which means you were not in that tavern. If Pliny knew the extent of our plans, he would have been more thorough. I believe he was only targeting me. So you will return to the Citadel. Pretend as if nothing has happened. I will continue my plan with the Syndicate Lords, then purchase your contract at the end of the summit. At which point... Their world will change. I turn to leave him, but his voice arrests me at the door. You saved my life. Only one other person has ever done that. Thank you, Darrow. Tell your new skin to grow faster. You won't want to miss the closing gala. The next three days pass in a haze. My mind on Eo and what we lost. I cannot find escape from the grief. It plagues me even as I work myself to death in the estate's gymnasium. I do not indulge in small talk. I pull back from my friends. None of this matters. Not to me. Life fades in the presence of pain. Theodora notices and tries her best to relieve my doorness, even suggesting I distract myself with roses from the Citadel's garden. Better you, Dominus, than some rough man from the gas giants, she says. News of the bombings sweeps through the citadel, dominating the news. The society plays it well, broadcasting their aid relief, sending out instructions on how to handle a potential crisis. Yellow psychologists analyze Ares on screen conclude that a latent sexual trauma in his youth makes him lash out to seize control of his world again. Violet actors and entertainers raise money for those families who have lost loved ones. Quicksilver himself volunteers three percent of his personal fortune to relief efforts. Obsidian and Grey commandos attack asteroid bases where sons of Ares train. 
Gray anti-terrorist agents hold press conferences saying they have apprehended those responsible, likely some reds they pulled out of a mine or lunar slums. It's a farce, and the goals play it so well. They hide from the cameras and make this seem a fight of all the colors against red terrorists. This is not gold's fight. It belongs to all of society. Moreover, society is winning because our sacrifice and obedience allow the righteous to prosper. Bloody damn horseshit. Yet still, blame must be placed. So the arch-governor is pulled away to face inquiries regarding his handling of the situation. How have the suns spread from Mars to Luna, they will ask. The gold hornet's nest has been stirred, as I said it would be. But still the gala continues. I watch the golds play their games of intrigue, diplomacy, spiriting off to galas and conferences and summits, untouched by the dirty games with terrorists. They are protected, shielded from horror. It would bother me, but they are shadows to me now, as though they've already fallen into some distant memory. I touch the bomb on my chest in regret. It is of Mickey's make, a copy of the Pegasus I wore at the Institute, which contained Eo's hair and now lies secreted away with my other personal effects. All I need do is twist its head and it becomes the bomb. The ring they gave me will activate it. I draw away from friends, from Victra. She's asked Rogue what's wrong with me. I know he will answer that I'm like the wind, a creature of vagary and moods, or something like that. He draws closer to me, visiting my rooms when I've gone to bed, attempting to spar with me in the gymnasium, but I cannot smile with him, or listen to his soft voice read poems or discuss philosophy or even share jokes. I can't let myself feel for him because I know he will soon be dead. I try to kill him in my heart before I kill him in the flesh. Can I add him to the list of those I've already sent to the grave? I finally find my answer the night of the gala when Theodora brings me my pressed clothing from the laundry. She doesn't say anything that reminds me of Roke, doesn't offer pithy wisdom. Instead, she does something I've never seen from her. She makes a mistake. While setting my uniform down on a chair, she knocks over a glass of wine on a nearby table. The wine splashes over the sleeve of my white uniform. What flashes through her eyes chills me. Terror. The sort a deer might have when staring at an oncoming air car. She streams out apologies as though I would hit her if she did not. It takes her a moment to compose herself, for the flash of panic to dissipate. When it does, she sits there on the floor, dabbing at the uniform in silence. I don't know what to do. I stand there awkwardly for a moment before putting a hand on her shoulder to tell her all's well. That's when she begins to cry, in great heaving sobs that rack her small shoulders. 
She flinches from my touch and composes herself, telling me I'll have to wear black instead of white. She may not know what is about to happen, but she can feel it in me, in the air. While the other lancers play with one another, take microabrasion baths and consult with stylists to prepare themselves for the gala, I lace up my thick military boots with trembling fingers. I've never been good at saving my friends. It seems I always drag them into harm's way. Severo, I believe, is still alive only because of the distance between us. Fitchner was always afraid I'd kill his son. Said my life's strand was so strong that it frayed all those around it. Now, seeing Theodora like that, it reminds me how fragile and complicated we really are. I don't know why she cried. Some past trauma, some sense of what's to come. Not knowing reminds me of the depth to the people around me. I am speechless, cold. But Roke is warm. He would have known what to say. I knock on his door several minutes before Augustus's entourage is set to depart the villa for the gala. There's no answer. I open the door and find my friend sitting on his bed, holding an ancient book gently by its spine. His smooth features ripple into a smile when he sees it as me. I thought you attacked us, come to beg me to shoot some stims before the gala. He always thinks because I'm reading, I'm not doing anything. There is no greater plague to an introvert than the extroverted, especially that beast. He will run himself into the ground one of these days. I force a chuckle. At least he's sincere about his vices. Have you met his brothers yet? Roke asks. I shake my head. They make Tactus look like a lamb. Gory hell, I swear. I lean against the door's frame. That bad. The Brothers' Wrath. They are terrible. Terribly rich, terribly talented, and their chief virtue lies in their ability to sin. They're prodigies at it. Roke grins conspiratorially. If you believe rumors, and I love rumors, remind me of Byron and Wilde. Tactus's brothers opened a brothel in Aegea when they were fourteen. Classy affair till they started arranging more... customized experiences. Then what happened? Ruined daughters, sons, insults, duels, dead heirs, debt, poison. He shrugs. It's the Roth family. What do you expect from those blackguards? It's why everyone was so surprised Tactus had taken up with an iron gold like you. He clarifies. You know, his brothers mock him for being on your shadow. It's why he's always so sarcastic. He wants to be like you, but he can't. So he resorts to his usual defenses. He frowns. Sometimes I feel like you understand all of us better than we understand ourselves. Then other times, it's like you couldn't care less. Rogue tilts his head at me when I say nothing. What is it? 
Nothing. You're never one for nothing. He sets his book down on his chest and pats the edge of the bed, drawing me into the room. Sit. Please. I came because I wanted to apologize. I say very slowly, sitting on the edge of the bed. I've been distant these last months, particularly these last days. I don't think I was fair to you. Not when you've been my most loyal friend. Well, you and Severo, but you won't stop sending me strange pictures over the net. More unicorns? I laugh. I think he has a problem. Roke pats my hand. Thank you. But you're like a hound, apologizing for wagging its tail. You're always distant, Dara. You don't have to apologize for how you are. Not to me. More distant, perhaps? Perhaps, he agrees, allowing it. We all have our own tides inside. They go in, out, he shrugs. Not really ours to control. The things, people that orbit us do that, at least more than we'd like to admit. After watching me a moment, he furrows his brow in thought. Is this about Mustang? I know it was hard for you to leave her, no matter what you said at the time. You should seek her out while we're here. I know you miss her. Admit it. I don't. Liar, liar, cheeks of fire. I've told you a hundred times we're not talking about her. Fine, fine. Then you're worried, aren't you? About the auction. He pauses, smiling and watching me. You shouldn't. I've settled that matter. I'm going to bid on you. Roke, you don't have the money. Do you know how badly a pixie would pay to get a peerless with my pedigree and connections in their debt? Millions. I could even go to Quicksilver if I need. He loans to goals all the time. Point is, I'll have the money, even if my parents won't help me. So never you worry, brother. He pokes me with his foot. House Mars has to mean something, eh? Thank you. I say, stuttering out the words, unable to really grasp what he's done. And why? It puts his neck out. It endangers him and crosses his parents. No one else has even mentioned the auction to me. They're afraid your bad luck is contagious. You know how it is. He pauses, waiting because he knows me so well. There's something else, isn't there? I shake my head. Do you... My words fail me. Do you ever feel... lost... The question hangs between us, intimate, awkward only on my end. He doesn't scoff as Tactus or Fitchner would, or scratch his balls like Severo, or chuckle like Cassius might have, or purr as Victor would. I'm not sure what Mustang might have done, but Roke, despite his color, 
and all the things that make him different, slowly slides a marker into the book and sets it on the nightstand beside the four-poster, taking his time and allowing an answer to evolve between us. Movements, thoughtful and organic, like dancers were before he died. There's a stillness in him, vast and majestic, the same stillness I remember in my father. Quinn once told me a story. He waits for me to moan a grievance at the mention of a story, and when I don't, his tone sinks into deeper gravity. Once, in the days of old earth, there were two pigeons who were greatly in love. In those days, they raised such animals to carry messages across great distances. These two were born in the same cage, raised by the same man, and sold on the same day to different men on the eve of a great war. The pigeons suffered apart from each other, each incomplete without their lover. Far and wide their masters took them, and the pigeons feared they would never again find each other for they began to see how vast the world was and how terrible the things in it. For months and months they carried messages for their masters, flying over battle lines, through the air, over men who killed one another for land. When the war ended, the pigeons were set free by their masters, but neither knew where to go, neither knew what to do, so each flew home. And there they found each other again, as they were always destined to return home and find, instead of the past, their future. He folds his hands gently, a teacher arriving at his point. So, do I feel lost? Always. When Leah died at the Institute, his lips slipped gently downward. I was in a dark woods, blind and lost as Dante before Virgil. But Quinn helped me, her voice calling me out of misery. She became my home. As she puts it, home isn't where you're from, it's where you find light when all grows dark. He grasps the top of my hand. Find your home, Darrow. It may not be in the past, but find it, and you'll never be lost again. I've always thought of Lycos as my home, of Eel as my home. Perhaps that's where I'm going now, to see her, to die and find home again in the Vale with my wife. But if that's true, why am I not full? Why does the hollowness grow inside me the closer I draw to her? It's time to go, I say, rising from the bed. As sure as I am your friend, Roke begins to rise as well. You will recover from this. We are not our station in life. We are us, the sum of what we've done, what we want to do, and the people who we keep close. You're my dearest friend, Darrow. Mind that. No matter what transpires, I will protect you as surely as you would protect me if ever I needed it. 
I surprised him by clasping his hand and holding it for a moment. You're a good man, Roke. Far too good for your color. Thank you. He squints at me as I release his hand, and he straightens the wrinkles in his uniform. But whatever do you mean by that? I think we could have been brothers, I say. Were this a different life? Why do we need another life? Then he sees the automatic syringe in my left hand. His hands are too slow to stop me, but his eyes are quick enough to widen in trusting fear, like a loyal dog's, as he's put slowly to sleep in its master's lap. He doesn't understand, but he knows there's a reason. Yet still comes the fear, the betrayal that breaks my heart into a thousand pieces. The syringe pierces Roke's neck, and he sinks slowly down onto the bed, eyes drifting closed. When he wakes, everyone he has worked with and for over these past two years will be dead. He will remember what I did to him after he said I was his closest friend. He will know that I knew what was going to happen at the gala. And even if I don't die tonight, even if they do not discover I was the bomber by other merits, saving Rogue's life means I will be found out. There is no going back. Chapter 11 Red Tonight I killed two thousand of humanity's great. Yet I walk with them now, untouched by decadence and condescension as never before. Pliny's arrogance raises none of my blood. Victra's immodest dress does not disconcert me, not even when she slips her arm in mine after Tactus offers her his. She whispers in my ear how silly she is for forgetting her undergarments. I laugh like it's a merry joke, trying to mask the coldness that's taken me over. This is static. I suppose Darrow deserves some consolation before he leaves, Tactus says with a sigh. Have you seen Roke, my goodman? Said he was feeling ill. That's very roke of him. Likely coiled around a book. I should fetch him. If he wanted to come, he would come, I say. I want him to come, Tactus replies. He shrugs at the other lancers who jockey for position close to our master. If you need him so badly, go fetch him, I say tactically. He flinches. I need no one on my arm. But if I didn't know you better, I'd think you're still bitter about the whole escape pod affair. You mean when you launched it without him? Victor asks. Why would that ever bother him? Even now, that betrayal stings me. I thought he was dead. It was simple calculation. He bumps my shoulder with his fist and nods to Victra. You understand. Had to watch out for the lady here. She is a delicate little flower, I say, pulling her away. Woe for the lone god of the sea, 
Tactus hums melodically. His friends, like mine, abandoned he. Victor adjusts the gold pauldron on her shoulder, which winds its way down her arm in a series of golden cuffs. That darling boy is so vain he could make a thunderstorm be about him. She notices my lack of care. The bidding won't begin till after the gala. She nods to a landing air car. Well, I was wondering when he'd show. The jackal exits the car, skin faintly pink only in patches. His yellows did him well. He bows faintly to his father, ignoring the murmurs of the aides. Father, he says, I thought it fitting if the family Augustus arrived at the gala with at least one of your children. We must present a united front, after all. Adrius? Augustus eyes his son for something to criticize. I wasn't aware you enjoyed banquets these days. I'm not sure the fair will be to your liking. The jackal laughs theatrically. Perhaps that's why my invitation was not delivered. Or was it the furore over the terrorist attacks? No matter. I'm here now, and ever eager to attend your side. The jackal falls in, smiling broadly to all, knowing his father will never escalate family quarrels in public. He offers me a particularly sinister sneer, one others see and shrink away from. All stage. Shall we? I mind myself and say little as I follow with Victor at the end of the long procession that snakes its way through labyrinthine marble halls from our villa to the Citadel Gardens, some two kilometres distant. The Sovereign's Tower juts from the floor of the garden there, a grand two-kilometre-high sword piercing a groomed garden thick with rose-trees and streams. Water runs through the garden in a thousand winding paths. Babbling brooks with coloured fish lead to quiet lagoons where carved pink mermaids swim under flowering trees crawling with monkey-cats. Rangy tiger-links lounge below the boughs. Violets wander through these bright woods, flitting here and there like summer moths, their violins echoing in eerie concert. It is a picture of Bacchus's night gardens without the obscene sexuality the Greeks found so hilarious. Pixies would chuckle at that smut, but peerless do not. At least not in public. We glimpse other processions through the trees, see their standards, great flashing things of moving fabric and metal. Our red and gold lion crest roars in silent challenge. A raven on a field of silver marks the passing of the family Falth over a cobblestone bridge. We eye their lord and his lancers warily. As a matter of course, all carry razors, but other tech is forbidden. No data pads, no grav boots, no armor. This is a classical affair. The tower yawns above us. Purple, red, and green mosses climb the base of the great structure with vines of a thousand hues, wrapping the glass and stone like the fingers of greedy bachelors around the wrist of a rich widow. Six great lifts bear families skyward to the top of the tower. 
Beautiful pink servants and brown footmen service the lift, all in white. Gold triangles of the society decorate their livery. The lift is flat, marble with grav thrusters. It sits in the middle of the clearing where green grass flutters in the wind. Several coppers rush forward to talk with Pliny, who, as Politico, speaks on behalf of the arch-governor. There seems to be some confusion. The Falth family files into the lift ahead of us. This is a social trap, Augustus mutters back to his favorite ward. Leto draws closer. The fools. See how they feign accident? Soon they will tell us we must use the lift with the faults, when instead they should grovel to have us go before them. Could it not be an accident? Leto asks. Not on Luna. Augustus crosses his arms. Everything is politics. The winds shift. They've been shifting for some time now, Augustus murmurs. His sharp face surveys his aides, as if making an accounting of the razors we carry. Some wear them coiled at their sides, others wear them around their forearms, like I do with my borrowed blade. Tactus and Victra each use them as sashes. I want three lances attending the arch-governor at all times, Leto announces quietly. We nod, the pack tightening. No drinking. Tactus moans in protest. Expressionless, the jackal watches Leto give orders. Pliny returns from speaking with the Citadel staff. Sure enough, we're to share the lift with the Falths. But something more menacing fills the air. Our obsidians and greys are to be left behind. All families ought to proceed to the gala without attendance, he says. No bodyguards. Murmurs go through our ranks. Then we won't go, the jackal says. Don't be a fool, Augustus replies. Your son is right, Leto says. Nero, the danger... Some invitations are more dangerous to decline than to accept. Balfroon, Yofo. Augustus makes a cutting motion to his stained. The two men nod silently and join the others to the side. Genuine emotion, worry, fills their eerie eyes as we join the Falths on the lift and ascend. The head of the Falth house smiles. His station improves. The gala upon the roof of the Sovereign's Tower is modelled as a winter fairyland. Snow falls from invisible clouds. It dusts the spear-like pines of man-made forests and frosts my short hair with snowflakes that taste like cinnamon and orange. Breath billows in front of me. The arch-governor's appearance is noted with trumpet calls. Tactus and some of the younger lancers cut the falths off, obstructing their path so Augustus can enter the gala first. A body of pale gold and bloody red we move into a grand landscape of evergreens. The pride of gold culture awaits us. A terrible sea of faces that have seen things the first men could never even dream. You can see glimmers of our shared past at the Institute. The charmers of Apollo. The killers of Mars. 
The Beauties of Venus. Beneath the spire, the citadel sprawls, and beyond those grounds glisten the cities with all their million lights. You would never guess that beneath that sea of twinkling jewels lurks a second city of filth and poverty, worlds within worlds. Try not to lose your head, Victor whispers to me, raking a clawed hand through my hair before going to speak with friends of hers from Earth. I walk toward our table. Great chandeliers hover overhead on small grav thrusters. Light sparkles. Dresses move like liquid around perfect human forms. The pinks serve delicacies and spirits on plates and in goblets of ice and glass. Hundreds of long tables spread concentrically around a frozen lake at the center of the winter land. The pinks wear skates to serve here. Beneath the ice, shapes move, not sexualized perversities as one would find entertaining pixies and low colors, but mystical creatures with long tails and scales that glitter like the stars. In another life, it would have been Mickey's dream to have a creature commissioned for this feast. I smile to myself. I suppose, in a way, he already has. The tables are neither named nor numbered. Instead, we find our place as we see a great lion seated upon the center of our table, nearly motionless. Each family's table is so claimed by their sigil. There are griffins and eagles, ice fists and huge iron swords. The lion purrs contentedly as Tactus steals a serving tray of appetizers from a pink and sets it between the beast's massive paws. Eat, beast, eat, he cries. Pliny finds me. His hair is bound behind him in a tight, complicated braid. His clothing, for once, is as severe as his pointed nose, like he means to impress the peerless about him with his hawkish features and sparse accoutrements. I'll be introducing you to several interested parties later in the evening. When I signal for you, I expect you to join me. He looks around distractedly, seeking important persons for his own aims. Till then, cause no trouble and mind your manners. No trouble. I take out my Pegasus pendant. On my family's honor. Yes, he says without looking. And what a noble family it is. I gaze around the gala. Hundreds mill about already, with more arriving by the minute. How long should I wait? It is difficult to hold on to the rage that made me embrace this decision. They killed my wife. They killed my child. But no matter the anger I summon by reminding myself, I cannot burn away the fear that I steer the rebellion toward a cliff. This will not be for Eo's dream. It will be for the satisfaction of those living. To sate their lust for vengeance rather than honouring those who have already sacrificed everything. And it'll be irreversible. But so is the course that has been set.
so many doubts. Is this me being a coward? Rationalising inaction? I'm thinking too much. That makes a bad soldier. And that is what I am. A soldier for Ares. He gave me this body. I should trust him now. So I take the Pegasus and slap it on the underside of Augustus's table, just near the table's end. A toast, someone says. I turn and find myself face to face with Antonia. I've not seen her since the Institute, when Severo pulled her down from the cross she was nailed to by the jackal. I flinch away, mind flashing to the night she cut Leah's throat, all to draw me out of the dark. I thought you were on Venus studying politics, I say. We've graduated, she replies. I did enjoy your christening. Watched it several times with my friends. Odious scent, urine. She sniffs me. Hard to get out. Nature was cruel to make her so terribly beautiful. Full lips, legs nearly as long as mine, skin smooth as river stone, and hair like spun golden yarn from that storybook about the Princess of Cinders. All a mask for the wretched creature beneath. I can tell you missed me while I was away. She hands me a goblet of wine. So, let us toast to a good reunion. It makes little sense to me that we live in a world where she can stand here weaving her evil webs when my wife is dead, when kind golds like Leah and Pax have been ground to ash and shot into the sun. Vichna once said something to me, Antonia. It seems appropriate now. I raise my goblet in a polite toast. Oh, Vichna she sighs, her breasts rising aggressively from her too tight golden dress. The bronze rodent has been making a name for himself here. Whatever did he say? A man can never miss chlamydia. I dump the wine out in front of her and push past. She grabs my arm and pulls me back to her, bringing me close enough that I feel the heat of her breath. They're coming, she says. The Bologna are coming for you. You should run now. She looks at my razor. Unless you think you're good enough with that to beat Cassius in a duel. She releases me. Good luck, Darrow. I will miss having an ape at the ball. More than Mustang will, at least. I pay no attention to her words and wander away, willing more houses to fill the gala, so that I may end this soon. A host of praetors, questors, judiciars, governors, senators, family heads, house leaders, traders, two Olympic knights, and a thousand others come to bid my master a good evening. These older men talk of outrider attacks on Uranus and Ariel, a foolish rumour of a new rage knight already gaining the armour, Mysterious Sons of Ares bases on Triton, and a resurgent strain of plague on one of Earth's dark continents. Lightfair. Many others take my master aside, as though a hundred eyes did not watch their every move, 
and with voices like syrup tell him of whispers in the night, of shifting winds and dangerous tides. The metaphors mix. The point is the same. Augustus has fallen out of favor with the sovereign the same way I have fallen out of favor with him. The ships flitting above in the night sky are as distant from the conversation as I. My attention has fallen upon the sovereign herself. How strange a thing to see the woman just there beyond the dance floor, at the raised podium, speaking with other house lords and men who rule the lives of billions. So close, so human and frail. Octavia Aulun stands with her coterie of women, the three furies, sisters she trusts above all others. For her part, the sovereign is more handsome than beautiful, face impassive as a mountain's. Her silence is her power. I see her speech is seldom, but she listens. Always she listens to words, as the mountain listens to the whispering and screaming of wind through its crags, around its peaks. I see a man standing alone near a tree. He's near as thick around as its trunk. A hand dwarfs his small goblet, and he wears the mark of a sword with wings, a preter with a fleet. I approach him. He sees me coming and smiles. Daro, ow, Andromedus. Carnus growls. I snap my fingers at a passing pink. Taking two of the wine goblets from his ice tray, I pass one to Carnus. I thought that before you come to kill me, we might as well share a drink. There's a sport. He downs his own drink and takes the one I offer him. He eyes me over the glass. You're not a poisoner, are you? I'm not so subtle. Equal company, then. All these snakes about. He grins like a crocodile, dark gold eyes tracing the men and women. The wine is gone in a moment. It's strangely decadent tonight. I hear Quicksilver arrange the festivities. I say, only on Luna would they let a silver pretend he's a gold. Carnus grunts, I hate this moon. He takes a delicacy off a passing tray. Food's too heavy, everything else too light. Though I hear the sixth course will be something to die for. Noting a strange tone, I cross my arms and watch the party. It's a strange comfort being around this hateful man. Neither one of us has to pretend to like the other. No masks here, at least not as much as usual. He chuckles deeply. Julian would have liked this fancy fare. He was a simpering, vile child. I turn to examine the killer. Cassius said only pretty things about him. Cassius. He snorts out something like a laugh. Cassius once wounded a bird with a slingshot. Came to me crying because he knew he had to kill it to put it out of its misery, but he couldn't. I dropped a rock on it for him, just like you did. He smirks. 
I should thank you for sweeping away the genetic chaff. Julian was your brother, man. He pissed the bed as a boy. Pissed the bed. Always tried hiding the sheets by giving them to the laundry women himself. Like we didn't own the laundry women. He was a boy who did not deserve his mother's favor or his father's name. He grabs another glass of wine from a passing pink. They try to make a tragedy, but it isn't. It's natural law. Julian was more of a man than you are, Carnus. Carnus laughs in delight. Oh, do explain that one. In a world of killers, it takes more to be kind than to be wicked. But men like you and me, we're just passing time before death reaches down for us. Which will be soon for you. He nods to my razor. Pity you weren't raised in our house. We learn the blade before we learn to read. My father had us make our blades, had us name them and sleep beside them. You might have stood a chance then. Wonder what you would have been if he had taught you something else. I am what I am, Karnas says, taking another drink. And they sent me after you, me of all the sons and daughters, because I am the best at what I am. I watch him for a moment. Why? Why what? You have everything, Karnas. Wealth, power, seven brothers and sisters. How many cousins, nieces, nephews, a father and mother who love you, yet you are here, drinking alone, killing my friends, setting the purpose of your life to ending me. Why? Because you wronged my family. No one wrongs the Bologna and lives. So it's pride. It's always pride. Pride is just a shout into the wind. He shakes his head, voice deepening. I will die. You will die. We will all die and the universe will carry on without care. All that we have is that shout into the wind. How we live how we go, and how we stand before we fall. He leans forward. So you see, pride is the only thing. His eyes leave mine and look across the room. Pride and women. I follow his eyes, and I see her then. She wears black amid a sea of gold, white, and reds. Like a dark specter, she glides in, out of the lift, near the edge of the fake forest. She rolls her flashing eyes, twists her smirking mouth at the heads that turn in her direction to stare at her funereal gown. Black. A color to show disdain for all the merry gulls about black like the color of the military uniform I now wear. I'm reminded of the warmth of her flesh, 
the mischief in her voice, the smell at the nape of her neck, the kindness of her heart. I stare so hard I almost miss her escort. I wish I had missed him. It is Cassius. He of the bloody damn golden curls is with the girl who nursed me to health in the winter, who helped me remember Eo's dream. His hand on her waist, his lips whispering into her ear. As surely as Cassius Albalona put a sword in my stomach, he now sticks a dagger in my heart. His hair is thick and lustrous, his chin cleft, hands steady, shoulders powerful made for war, face made for the hearts of court, and he wears the rising sun of the morning night. The rumours are true. It rips through the party. The sovereign has made him one of the twelve. Despite the fact that I won the institute, he's risen higher, tearing through the dueling circuit on Luna like an ancestor possessed. I've watched him on the HC, watched him stalk around the bleeding place as another gold lies near death. But here, now, he dazzles, charms, face split with a white smile. In his golden body, he has all I have and more. He is faster on his feet than I, as tall, more handsome, wealthier. He has a better laugh, and people think him kinder. Yet he has none of my burdens. Why, too, does he deserve this girl, who makes all but Eo pale in comparison? Does she not know how petty he is, how cruel his heart can be? I cannot go to her, not even when I draw close enough to hear her laugh. If she saw me, I think I would shatter. Would there be guilt in her eyes? Awkwardness? Am I a shadow over her happiness? Will she even care that I see her with him? Or will she think me pathetic for approaching her? It aches. Not that I suspect Mustang is being petty and seeking my enemy, but because I know she is not petty. If she is with Cassius, it is because she cares for him. It aches deeper than I thought it would. And so you see. Carnus's hand falls heavily on my shoulder. You will not be missed. Tightness spreads through my chest as my shoulders carve a path out of the gala. I take a smaller lift down, away from these people who know only how to hurt, away into the woods where I find a bridge that spans a fast-flowing stream. I lean over the polished railing, gasping for air, each breath a statement. I do not need Mustang. I do not need any of these greedy creatures. I'm done with their games of power. Done with trying to goad on my own. I was not good enough to be a husband. Not good enough that my wife would let me be a father. Not good enough to be a gold. Now I'm not good enough for Mustang. I fail to do what I set out to do. Fail to rise. But I won't fail now. Not now. I take the ring the sons gave me. Hand trembling. Nerves stampeding. 
I want to retch. There's so much wrong inside of me. I take the cold ring to my lips. Say the words and the corrupt perish. Say, break the chains. And Victra vanishes. Cassius evaporates. Augustus melts. Carnus dissolves. Mustang dies. Across the solar system, bombs ripple and red rises to an uncertain future. Trust in Ares. Just trust he knows what he is doing. Break the chains. I tried to say the words, Eos last before she hanged, but they do not come. Force it out. Damn it. Make my mouth work. But it won't. It can't. Because inside I know that this is wrong. It isn't the violence. It isn't compassion for the people I would kill. It's anger. Killing them proves nothing. It solves nothing. How could this be Ares' plan? Eo said if I rose, others would follow. But I've not yet risen. I've not yet done as she asked of me. I am not an example. I am an assassin. I do not have an excuse to give up, to hand over her dream to others. Ares never knew Eo. He never saw the spark in her. I did. Before I draw my last breath, I must build the world she wanted to raise our child in. That was her dream. That was why she sacrificed, so others would not have to. And I will not let others decide my fate. Not now. I do not trust in Ares if it means I must reject Io. Not if it means I must sacrifice my trust in myself. I wipe the tears from my face. Anger replaced by purpose. There must be another way. A better way. I have seen the cracks in their society, and I know what I must do. I know what the goals most fear. And it has nothing to do with reds rising. It has nothing to do with bombs or plots or revolution. What terrifies the goals is simple, cruel, and as old as mankind itself. Civil War. Part Two. Break. If you're a fox, play the hare. If you're a hare, play the fox. Lorn Au Arcos. Chapter Twelve. Blood for Blood. I stalk back into the gala. The goals have taken their seats and formalities have begun in earnest. I am not subtle as I duck beneath the table and scrounge around on the ground to find the Pegasus pendant. I put it in my pocket, straighten my jacket, ignore the questioning glances and move boldly away from Augustus's table toward the object of my interest. Pliny hisses my name. I pass him by. He knows nothing of what I have in store. 
I weave through the tables that seat the noble families, gathering eyes as a stone rolling down the mountain gathers snow. I feel them adding to my velocity. My gait is careless, my hands coiled with danger like the muscles of a pit viper. Thousands watch me. Whispers form a cloak behind us, they realize my target. He sits at his long table, surrounded by his family members, a perfect golden man attentively listening to his sovereign speak. She preaches of unity. Order and tradition are paramount. No one rises yet to challenge me. Perhaps they don't understand, or perhaps they feel the force of me now and dare not rise. The Bologna notice the whispers now, and they turn, almost as one, a family of fifty and more, to see me, a martial man, all in black. Young, untested in war, unblooded beyond the halls of the Institute and the asteroids of the Academy. Some have reasoned me mad. Some have called me brave. Tonight, I'm both. The weight is gone. All the pressure I let crush me as I worried about expectations, as I gentle-footed around making a decision. All velocity, I tell myself. Don't freeze. Don't stop. Never stop. The Sovereign's voice falters now. Too late to go back. I dive in. Smile. And the gala goes dead silent as I spring thirty feet in the low gravity and land hard on the bologna table. Dishes crack, servers clatter, bolognas fall back. Some shout at me, some do not move even as their wine spills. The sovereign watches, struck by curiosity, her furies stirring at her side. Pliny looks about to die. He's gripping his knees in panic. Beside him, the jackal is as strange and unreadable as a lonely desert creature. I did not wear dress shoes tonight. My boots are thick and heavy. They crack the porcelain as I trod toward the bologna table, shattering dishes of pudding and squishing tender steaks. My blood pumps through me, intoxicating. I lift my voice. I'll have your attention. I crush a plate of peas underfoot. You may know me. There's nervous laughter. Of course they know me. They know everyone of worth, though mine is more of rumor than substance. I see the Furies whispering to the Sovereign, see Tactus grinning his ass off. Carnus leans forward anxiously. Victra's smiling at the jackal. Even see Antonia nudging a tall, serene gold. I avoid looking at Mustang. Pliny gibbers in Augustus's ear. Augustus raises a hand to shut him up. Do I have your attention? I ask. Yes, I do. Boy, sit down! Someone shouts. Make him! Tactus replies drunkenly. No? That's what I surmised. For those of you who do not know, I am a lancer of the House of Augustus for another hour or so. They laugh. I am the one they call the Reaper of Mars. 
who struck down a full peerless knight, who stormed Olympus and made slaves of my proctors. My name is Darrow Ao Andromedus, and I have been wronged. We peerless scarred come from golden ancestors, from conquerors with spines of iron, honorable men, honorable women. But before you today, I see a family that is dishonorable, a family with spines made of chalk, a corrupt and fraudulent family of liars and cowards that conspires to steal my master's governorship illegally. I crush a serving plate with my boots. Who knows if they conspire to do it or not? It sounds good. It seems like they conspire, and it's the mask I need them to wear. Carnus replies beautifully by whipping out his razor and surging toward me. His father, the Imperator, waves him back. Preter Kellen looks about to grab my feet and jerk me down, or Cagney would no doubt cut my throat with my own razor. The younger girls of their family think me a demon, a demon that killed their cousin, brother. They have no idea what I really am. But perhaps Lady Bologna does. Cadaverous in her grief, she sits surrounded by her brood like a withered lioness. They look to her as much as to her husband. The last thing I noticed, the trembling of her long right hand, as though it aches for a knife with which to cut me. Twice I have been wronged by this family. Once in the mud of the Institute, again at the Academy by that one, and this one, and that one. I point out all those who beat me in the gardens. I see Cassius now near the head of the table, just by his father and mother. Mustang sits beside him, her face a mask. Disappointed? Upset? Bored? When she quirks an eyebrow at me, I meet her eyes walk toward her and set my foot on the edge of the wine decanter that sits in front of Cassius. All eyes focus there, like light falling into a black hole. Pausing time, space, bending all forward. Breaths catch. All courts of golden law permit a man to defend his honor against any force that would desecrate it unjustly. From the old lands of Earth to the icy bowels of Pluto, the right of challenge exists for any man and any woman. My name, gentle lords and ladies, is Darrow Ao Andromedus. My honor has been pissed on, and I demand satisfaction. I tip the wine over into Cassius's lap. He explodes up at me. Goals all over the grand party burst up from their seats in a great roar. Tactus rushes from our table, joined with Leto, Victra, all of the sides and bannermen of the vassals to my arch-governor. The Corvos, the Julii, the Veloxes, the huge Telemannuses, Pax's family. Razors snap into hands. Curses splinter the winter air. Arja, the largest and darkest of the Furies, leans down from the sovereign's table and bellows, Stop! This madness! It's only begun.
My hands shake like they used to in the mine. Now, as then, serpents surround me. You could never hear them, the pit vipers. Could rarely see them. Black as pupils, they slither in the shadows till they strike. But there's a fear that comes when they near. A fear separate from the rumbling of the drill. Separate from the throbbing, nauseating heat that builds in your balls as you carve through a million tons of rock, and all the friction radiates up, making a bog of piss and sweat inside your suit. It's fearing the coming of death, like a shadow has passed across your soul. That fear fills me now, as these peerless stand around me, a mass of serpentine gold, whispering, hissing, deadly as sin. Snow on the ground crunches under my heavy boots. I bend down as the sovereign speaks. She tells of honour and tradition, how martial duels mark the greatness of our race, so she makes an exception for the day. We may duel beyond the gaming grounds. This blood feud must be put to rest here, now, in front of the august of our race. So confident is she in her newest Olympic night. But why wouldn't she be? He's killed me before. Unlike the cowards of old, we settle flesh to flesh, bone to bone, blood to blood. Vendettas die in the bleeding place, virtute et armis, the sovereign recites. By valour and arms. No doubt she has already spoken to her advisers. They will say I am outmatched, that Cassius is the better swordsman. It never would have gone this far if she hadn't been assured a beneficial outcome. As it was with our ancestors, it is now and again to the death, she declares. Are there any contentions? I hoped for this. Neither Cassius nor I say a thing. Mustang steps forward to object, but the fury, Aja, shakes her head, stopping her. Then today, race non verba. Actions, not words. I speak with my master before stepping into the center of the circle that now forms as Browns cart away the tables from the shadowy plain. Pliny hovers beside Augustus, as do Leto, Tactus, Victra, and the great Praetors of Mars. So many famous faces, so many warriors and politicians. The jackal stands farther away, shorter than the rest, impassive, speaking to no one. I wonder what he would say to me, were there fewer ears to hear. He does not look angry. Perhaps he's learned to trust in my plans. He nods his head as if reading my thoughts. We are still allied. Is this spectacle for me? For vanity? For love? Augustus asks as I stand before him. His eyes dig into me, trying to find meaning. I can't help but glance over at Mustang. Even now she draws me from my task. You're so young, he nearly whispers. What they tell you in the storybooks is wrong. Love does not survive things like this. 
not the love of my daughter, at least. He pauses, reflecting. Her soul is like her mother's. I do not do it for love, my liege. No, no. I bow my head to him and remember Mateo's high lingo. The duty of the son is the father's glory, is it not? I fall to a knee. You are not my son. No, the Bologna killed him, stole him from you. Your first-born son, Claudius, was all a man could hope for, a son better and wiser than his father. So let me make you a present of their favorite son's head. Enough quibbling, enough of their politics, blood for blood. My liege, Julian was one thing, but Cassius... Pliny tries. Augustus ignores him. I weep for your blessing. I say again, pressing my master. How long will you keep the sovereign's favor? A month? A year? Two? Soon she will replace you with the Bologna. Look how she favors Cassius. Look how she steals your child. Look how the other goes the way of a silver. Your heirs are depleted. Your time as arch-governor will end. Let it, for you are not a man fit to be arch-governor of Mars. You are a man fit to be king of it. His eyes flash. We have no kings. Because none have dared craft themselves a crown, I say. Let this be the first step. Spit in the sovereign's eye. Make me the sword of your family. I pull a knife from my boot and make a quick cut beneath my eye. The blood falls like teardrops. This is an old blessing from the iron ancestors, the conquerors and it will chill those who see it, a relic of a bygone, harder age. It is a Mars blessing, one of iron and blood, of the raging ships that burned the famed Britannic Armada above Earth's North Pole, and dashed the fast killers from the land of the rising sun amid the asteroid belt. My master's eyes ignite like dormant coals breathed upon, slowly, then all at once, I have him. I give my blessing freely. What you do, do in my honor. He leans toward me. Rise, Goldenborn. Rise, Iron Maid. Augustus touches his finger to the blood, then presses the mark beneath his own eye. Rise, man of Mars, and take with you my wrath. I rise to whispers. This is no simple squabble now between boys. It is the battle of houses, champion against champion. Hic sunt leones, he says, tilting his head, part challenge, part benediction. What a vain swine of a man. He knows my desperation to stay in his good graces. He knows he stands playing with matches on a powder keg. Yet his eyes glitter lustfully, hungering for blood and the promise of power, as I hunger for air. Hic sunt leones, I echo. I pace back to the center of the circle, nodding to Tactus and Victra. They touch the handles of their razors, as do the other aides. Our pack mentality is keen. 
Prime luck, Tactus says. High above, ships swim quietly through the long night. Trees sway in the breeze. Cities sparkle in the distance. Earth hovers like a swollen moon as I unravel my razor from my forearm. Mustang comes to me as Cassius's mother kisses his forehead. So you're a pawn now? She asks quickly. And you're a trophy. She flinches before her lips curl into a slight sneer. You say that to me? I don't even recognize you. Nor I you, Virginia. Serving the sovereign now? But I do recognize her, despite the terrible gulf that now makes her feel more stranger than friend. The tightness in my chest is of her making. So too is the awkward tension in my hands as they yearn to touch her, yearn to hold her and tell her this is all a false guise. I'm not a pawn to her father. I'm more than that. All this is for good, just not their good. Virginia? She cocks her head at me, smiling sadly as she spares a glance for the two thousand waiting peerless. You know, I've wondered over these last years. I suppose I should have wondered from the start, but you cut such a rare character. It was distracting. But I'll ask now. Her bright eyes cut through me, searching, judging. Are you insane? I look over at Cassius. Are you? Jealousy? That's ripe. She leans in with a harsh whisper. Shame you don't respect me enough to suppose that I have my own plan. You think I'm here because my aching loins thrust me into Bologna arms? Please. I'm no bitch in heat. I protect my family by any means necessary. Who do you protect but yourself? You betray your family by being with him. I have no false answer that may parallel the truth. I must suffer being a villain in her eyes. Yet I can't meet them. Cassius is a wicked man. Grow up, Darrow. She looks like she's going to say something deeper, but she just shakes her head and, turning, says, He's going to kill you. I'll try to convince Octavia to end it early. Her words fail her at first. I wish you hadn't come to this moon. She leaves me, giving Cassius a squeeze on the hand before joining the sovereign's entourage on the raised dais. Alone at last, my old friend, Cassius says, slashing me with a smile. Once we were like brothers. We shared food and raced that first day at the Institute, stormed House Minerva together. How we laughed when I stole their cook and Severo their standard. We galloped over the plains that night underneath the light of twin moons. I remember the woe in his eyes when they captured Quinn, when my kin, Titus, beat him and pissed on him. How I felt the tears welling then, when we were like brothers, before it all fell apart. The cinnamon and orange-flavored snow still falls. It settles in his curly hair, on his broad shoulders. It was in the snow that he last fought me, 
buried rusty steel into my lower gut and left me dying in my own filth. I have not forgotten how he twisted that blade to make sure the wound did not close. His blade is ebony now. It curls in front of him over a meter of narrow sword when solid. More than two meters of lashing razor whip when loosed with the toggle on the handle, which sends a chemical impulse through the blade's molecular structure. Golden marks line the blade, telling the lineage of his family, their conquests, the triumphs thrown in their honor. Old, arrogant, powerful. My blade is naked, absent of embellishment. So, I've taken what's yours, he says, walking closer and nodding to Mustang. I laugh. She was never mine, and she's certainly not yours. The white arrives, hustling forward in his robes, head bald, back crooked. But I've had her in ways you haven't. His voice lowers so only we might hear. I wonder, do you lie alone at night, thinking of the pleasures I give her? Does it vex you that I know how she kisses? How she sighs when you touch her neck just so? I don't answer. That she moans my name instead of yours. He doesn't laugh. He may loathe what he says, but he'd say anything to hurt me. In most ways, he's not a bad man. He's just my bad man. In fact, she moaned as I went inside her this morning. What would Julian say if he could see you now? I ask. He'd echo mother and beg me to kill you. Or would he weep at the devil you've become? He uncoils his razor and ignites his aegis. My own aegis hums as I activate it, an ion blue transparent energy shield that bows slightly outward from my left glove, one foot long by two feet wide. Snow melts when I sweep the aegis near the ground. A corona of haze forms around the blue light. We're all devils. His sudden laugh floats up like a silk ribbon, carried away with the breeze. This was always your problem, Darrow. You have an inflated view of yourself. You think you have some sort of morality tucked away. You think you are better than us, when really you are less. Forever playing games you cannot master against people you cannot match. I matched Julian well enough. Bastard. His face contorts, and he lashes forward, bellowing wordlessly, knocking me back before the white can give the benediction. They shout for us to stop, but as the razors scream, the shouts fade away, and all eyes widen as man-killing metal wails through slow-falling snow. He uses the tenets of cravat, Four seconds of precise kinetic violence, retreat, assess, engage. We are the only sound in this strange place, the odd high-pitched keen of an arching whip, the thrum of the solid blade, the crack as Aegis's on left arms spark white when blades slash into them, the crunch of snow and the creaking of leather.
Despite his anger, Cassius is perfect in his form. His feet shuffle, never crossing. His hips swivel as he lunges in the compact salvos. His breath comes measured, paced. He lashes his whip forward in a sweep, then hardens the blade and swings it up, aiming for my groin. His movements flicker fast, trained, honed by masters and swords of the society. It's easy to see why he has devastated his opponents since childhood, why he gutted me at the Institute. Because his enemies fight like him, but slower. I don't fight like them. I learned that lesson. Now he will learn his. You've been practicing. You can match six moves a set he says, drawing back. He darts forward, fainting high and sweeping low to claim my ankles. But you're still a novice. He sends a flurry of seven blows at me, almost skewering me through the right shoulder. I recognize the engagement pattern, but I'm still a fraction off his speed. I barely escape, throwing myself out of the way of a thrust at the last moment. Two more sets of seven come in quick succession, I barely escaped the last, falling to a knee, panting, looking around at the gathered guests. Do you hear that? he asks. I hear nothing but the wind and the throbbing of my heart. That is the sound of dying alone. No one to weep, no one to care. Arcos will care, I whisper. He stiffens. What did you say? Lorn our Arcos will care if his last student dies. I say, dropping the falsely ragged breath, straightening proudly. Cassius stares at me as if he's seen a ghost. He hesitates. So too do those who hear what I say. While you ate, I trained. While you drank, I trained. While you sought pleasure, I trained from the weeks after the Institute to the days before the Academy. Lorn Ow Arcos doesn't accept students. Cassius hisses. Not for thirty years. He made an exception. Liar. Oh? I laugh. Did you think I came here to be killed? Did you think yourself entitled to my life? No, Cassius. I came here to cut you down before your parents. He steps backward, eyes dancing to his father, to Carnus. I cock my head at him. Come now, brother. Don't you want to see how well I can really fight? He pauses, and I charge him like some night carnivore, shoulders hunched with primeval economy, quiet as the dark itself. Lorne's words come back to me. A fool pulls the leaves, a brute chops the trunk, a sage digs the roots. And so I peel apart his legs, sending set after set into him. Not for the four seconds the goals teach, but for seven, then six, alternating, then breaking the pattern, twelve moves a set. His defense is precise, and if I fought as he taught me to fight, I would die to him but I was taught to move by my uncle and to kill by a legend. I rage and spin, 
leaving my feet and striking down, beating him as a great hurricane, slapping and smashing and hammering him back. And when he attacks, I bow to the side until such time that I can break him, as Lorn Ao Arcos trained me to do. Move in a circle, never retreat backward. No attack opens when a man allows himself to be pushed backward. Use their force to create new angles. Flow around him. The willow way. Pretty, fluid, like a spring song in defense. Then lashing and horrible as the branches of a willow in deep winter as glacial winds scream down from the mountains. Inside me, red meets gold. My blade flashes between whip and curved sling blade. It crashes into his sword, and the aegis on his left side crackles from the force of my blows. Cassius falters. He's a prizefighter getting pummeled by a back-alley brawler. I'm laughing, laughing madly, and the crowd around is cheering in shock, some screaming when I hit Cassius's aegis so hard it overloads. Sparks hiss from the unit on his arm. I rip open a wound there, one on his elbow, his kneecap, his ankle. I flick the blade up and slash his face. I stop and move backward fluidly, posing with whip as it slithers into a curved sling blade. Those who watch this will never forget. Women are screaming for Cassius. Lovers he has had in his youth, who now watch the man they grew with, the man who bedded them, left them with false promises, and made them think they'd just lost the strongest of a generation. They watch as another man turns him into a throbbing mess of blood. I embarrass him. But it's all for a purpose. All to make that simmering hatred between Bologna and Augustus boil over into war. I pace about the circle like a caged lion till I come in front of Imperator Bologna. Your son is going to die, I say savagely, a foot away from his face. He's thick, square-jawed, kindly with a pointed beard. His eyes shimmer with the promise of tears. He says nothing. He is a noble man, and he will follow the honorable path, even if it means watching his favorite son die. Even in the midst of my rage I feel the shame, feel the horror of being the man who comes from the dark to savage a family. Will you just watch? I shout at the Bologna. Imperator Bologna's wife is not so noble. She seethes, glancing at the sovereign accusatorily. I see what she wants. I go back at Cassius. They will have to watch and do nothing as I watched Eo. Lady Bologna, are you noble enough to watch your Cassius die? Watch as he disappears from the world? Her lips curl. She whispers to Carnus, to Cagni. Is that the strength of the house, Bologna? Do you watch like sheep as the wolf comes among the fold? I make a grand show of it for the hot-blooded ones. Cassius tries to fight. He stumbles as I cut his kneecap, falling into the snow before scrambling desperately to his feet. His blood makes a shadow in the snow. This is how slowly he killed Titus. He's panicked, glancing at his family, knowing it will be the last time he sees them. 
they have no veil. This life is their heaven. Despite everything, it is a sad sight, and I pity him. Cagney, urged on by Lady Bellona, has already taken a step forward, her sharp, pretty face riven with rage. I just need to hurt her strong cousin Cassius a little more. But Imperator Bellona jerks her back with a stern hand. He glares darkly at Augustus, then peers around the assembly. No Bellona shall interfere! On my honour! Yet his wife does not agree. She aims one more pointed glance at the sovereign, and the sovereign raises a hand. Hold! she calls. Hold, Andromedus! I'm actually stunned by the interruption. All look to the sovereign's dais. Cassius pants for breath. She can't be so stupid, can she? The interruption confirms the rumours for me, for everyone. The sovereign reveals her favouritism. She's chosen the Bologna family. They will supplant the Augustuses on Mars. Cassius would have been important to that plan. Now, because of her miscalculation, he's about to die, and her plan is going to be squabbed. Still, I had no idea she'd do as she's about to do. It is so stupid, so short-sighted. Her pride has made her a fool. There has been an addendum to the rules. Since the White was unable to give the customary benediction, the contest will be to death or yielding, she declares, glancing at Cassius's mother. Those are the limits to the duel. So many of our prized children are lost at our schools. No need to waste these two prime men on account of schoolyard pranks. My sovereign, Augustus calls, greedy for his bloody prize. The law is clear. Once a contest is declared, the rules may not be altered by man or woman. You cite laws. That's a pleasant irony, coming from you, Nero. There are snickers from the crowd, which tell me rumours of his involvement with rigging the Institute for the Jackal are very much in fashion. My sovereign, we stand with Augustus in this matter, booms a voice. Daxo al Talimanus steps forward. Pax's elder brother, tall as my friend was, but less beastly, more a pine tree than a great boulder of a man. Like his father, Cavax, his head is bald, but engraved with golden angels. A mischievous sparkle dances in sleepy eyes nestled under great swirling eyebrows. Hardly a surprise, snarls Cassius's mother. Perfidy! Cavax, Daxo's father, roars. He alternates, stroking his forked red beard and the large pet fox he cradles in his left arm. This reeks of perfidy and favoritism. My temper is slow, but I find myself offended. Offended! Careful, Cavax, Octavia says icily. Some things cannot be unsaid. Why else would he say them? Daxo asks. 
glancing at the families from the gas giants, where he knows he will find allies in this debate. But I believe he would counsel you now, my sovereign. Even your words cannot change law. Your father discovered this by your own hand, no? The sovereign's furies stepped forward menacingly. For her part, the sovereign allows herself only the strictest of smiles. But, young Telemanos, you fail to remember. My word is law. This is something you do not do. A gold may rule other golds, but declare your rule at your own peril. The sovereign has been so long on the morning throne that she has forgotten this. Her words are not law. They now become a challenge. One I accept with open arms. She knows the words are mistake when she meets my eyes and we both realize in that moment there is one move I can make that she cannot counter. You will not steal what is mine. I growl. I wheel on Cassius. He brings up his blade. He never let me yield in the mud of the Institute. He knows I will not let him yield now. His face goes pale as I charge. He's thinking of all he's about to lose, how very precious his life is. A gold to the end. Others shout at me to stop, screaming that it's unfair. This is the definition of fairness. They would have let me die. He lunges from my throat. It's a feint. He whips his razor down to wrap around my leg. He expects me to recoil. I charge straight at him, inside the arch of his swing, jump over his head in the low gravity, then swing my whip backward without looking. My whip coils around his extended right arm. I press the button that makes the razor contract, and with the sound of a frozen tree branch cracking in winter, I claim the sword arm of Cassius Albellona. It's equal parts silence and screams. I do not turn, not for a long moment. When I do, I find Cassius still standing, teetering, not long for this world. No one else moves as Cassius falls. His father looks at the ground, silent. I said stop, the sovereign shouts. Two furies jump from the dais, landing with their blades dancing into hand. Finish it, Augustus commands. I stalk toward Cassius. He spits at me, lips trembling, contemptuous even now. I raise my blade, then a hand settles around my wrist, not an iron grip, a soft one, warm against my skin, delicate. You've won, Darrow, Mustang says quietly, coming around in front of me so her eyes meet mine. The Furies pause outside the circle. Don't lose yourself to this. I could not imagine Eo watching me from the veil. In this hell, I've lost my faith. Mustang brings that sweeping back. Io may watch me, or she may not. Only one thing is certain. Mustang watches me now, and what I see in her eyes 
is enough to let my hand fall to my side. It's then she smiles, as if seeing me again for the first time in years. There you are. Kill him! screams Cassius's mother. Kill him now! No! roars Imperator Bologna. Too late. Mustang's eyes widen. I turn in time to see the circle dissolve, crumbling inward as though it were made of sand. Not altogether, but tentatively. One Bologna sprints at me in silence. Low, deadly. Another follows. Then Tactus comes from the Augustus group. Then another Lancer. I hear my friend's war howl. A second echoes. There's more than just one gold present who was in my army. Cagni Aubalona is first to me. My stolen blade rasps toward my neck. I duck, but I would have lost my head had Mustang not thrown up her own blade to deflect the slash. Sparks sting my face, and Tactus takes Cagni from the side, cutting her clean in half. Screams. The bleeding place collapses entirely. Golds of Bologna and Augustus sprint to protect their fellows. Others flee. Carnus slashes at Tactus. Too much for my friend. I rush to his aid, saving him till Victra and others come between Carnus and us. Mustang is lost in the fray. I search frantically for her. A blade flashes at my head. Shouts boom as the Sovereign calls for peace, but it is beyond her. A woman screams at Cagney's ruined body. Dozens of men and women, all with blades, slash into one another. Tactus tosses me the razor Cagney stole. Then he takes a blade through the shoulder, defending me again. I spin to my friend's aid and hack the arm off the Bologna man as he pulls his blade out of Tactus. I jerk my friend toward me, slashing a path clear. A blade scratches my forearm. I glimpse Mustang in the chaos, covering Cassius's wounded body. I don't know if the Bologna will kill her. They let her sit at the table. Still, I don't know. I rush toward her, throwing my weight into the bodies between us. Tactus helps. I smash into a woman. Antonia. Her eyes light up as she brings a knife up to my stomach, but Victra, her sister, punches her in the face, and Tactus starts kicking her in the head as she falls. Victor offers me a laughing smile, until Carnus jerks her down by her hair. He's fought off as Leto enters the fray, turning back the tide with the precise thrusts of his rainbow razor. The Telemannuses join him, father and son decimating the golds who come before them with razors half the size of my body. Tactus, on me! I shout. Tactus is bleeding, but he's up and howling madly like he's still fighting beside Severo. Together we jump high in this easy gravity. He knows I go for Mustang, but the Bologna are too thick. Razors too deadly. Mustang! I shout, fending two Bolognas off. Slash away one's face and punch another in the throat with my aegis. Another joins them, and another, till there's a thick Bologna bulwark blocking my path. Protect the arts, governor! Mustang shouts at me. Voice more composed than my own, making me feel an idiot obsessed with chivalry. Of course she does not need me to save her. Protect my father! 
and though I can't see her among the throng, I obey. I let Tactus jerk me away by the collar toward our retreating line, which is being assailed from the side. Someone else roars for us to protect Augustus. Others scream to defend Imperator Bologna and Cassius. Many family lords have been carried away by the armed cadres of family members who back out of the chaos with their blades at the ready. They flee the spire, using the lifts to take them from the place as grav boots were forbidden. It's nearly deserted. The sovereign's praetorians, purple and black-clad obsidians and golds, cluster around and fly her from the ruined gala. Razors and pulse blades fill calloused hands. Greys come, led by golds and praetorian purple, to disperse us. They wear riot gear, and their scorchers shoot painballs and scatterwaves at the battling families, scattering the golds like summer flies. Augustus! Huge Kana screams as he rushes from the Bologna ranks through the scatterwaves like a madman. He knocks someone down with his shoulder, shatters the lancer's face with his aegis, and charges headlong at Augustus, hoping to kill his family's rival in one fell swoop. Augustus! Leto, our best swordsman and Augustus's ward, intercepts him in front of the arch-governor. Hic sunt leones! He calls to the sky. Leto moves like the sea, fluid and terrible in his grace. He crashes Carnus back and is about to open him along the belly when suddenly he falters, freezes mid-swing. Carnus stumbles back, then straightens, perhaps confused that he is still alive. He cocks his head at Leto, who reaches for his thigh as though stung. Leto sinks slowly to a knee, arms sluggish. His long hair tumbles over his face. Then he seems to freeze in place, suddenly motionless in the center of the chaos. Sad eyes glow with the engine plume of a passing ship as it coasts peacefully into the horizon. He is beautiful in that moment, before Carnus chops off his head. Leto! Augustus roars. His eyes widen, and he pushes against the Telemannus men, who bear him away. I glimpse the jackal, tucking his silver stylus into his sleeve, the one he spun on his fingers as he proposed our secret alliance. We lock eyes. He grins toothily. And I know I've made a deal with the devil. Chapter 13 Mad Dogs We flee the top of the spire. I had to leave Mustang behind. She knows what she's doing. Somehow, I had managed to forget that. She always knows what she's bloody doing. They won't hurt her, Augustus says to me, and I believe it's the first time I've seen emotion on his face. No, the second time. When he screamed for Leto, it was as if he'd lost a son. He looks that way now, face slack and older by twenty years. He lost his eldest son. He lost his second wife, the mother of his children. Now he loses the man he adopted to replace that son, 
and he fears for the woman who reminds him of that wife. If they do hurt her, it's on me. I've set things in motion. For once, it couldn't have gone better. Blood trickles down my hands, sheeting between the fingers, pooling around the cuticles in a horseshoe. Knuckles flex white where there is no blood. It disgusts me, but this is what my hands were made for. We flee the place of winter and trees, having drenched it red. Many carry our wounded, nearly a dozen in number. Seven dead, barely twenty unscathed in the entire entourage. Others are missing. Matchless Leto is gone. Pliny's aid was cut apart, and one of our praetors took a blade in her neck from Kellen Albalona. I carry the praetor in my arms and try to staunch the bleeding as we take the lift down the spire. Hard chance. Victra presses a piece of her dress against the wound. I'd give anything for a pair of grav boots. We cluster tight around our lord, razors out. Blood soaks my arm to the elbow. Sweat dribbles down my face and ribs. Red drops splatter at our cadre's feet against the lift's floor, dripping from hands, wounds, blades. Yet there are white smiles slashing the faces around me. I'm hot in my uniform, so I undo the top buttons. Tactus bleeds beside me. His wound goes through his left shoulder. Clean thrust. It's just blood, he tells Victor, who worries over him. It's a hole in you. Not a strange thing. He smiles at her waistline. Gory hell, you've a hole in you, and you don't see me complaining. He yelps as she jams a bandage from her dress onto his wound. He laughs in pain a second more, then looks at me and shakes his head, eyes wild and happy. Training with Lorne Ow Arcos, man. You sneaky ponce. He saved me from Cagney. I nod and bump bloody fists, past slights and wages on my life temporarily forgotten. Many of the other golds, the Praetors, the Knights, the martial men and women in particular, and we have more in proportion to our politicos and economists than most houses, wipe their brows, leaving ruddy smears. These are the sort of golds who would tell you the problem with being a gold is that everyone is already conquered, means no one worth fighting, no one to use all that training and all that power against. Well, I just gave them a fresh taste of battle. And even though their governor's ward is dead, even though their chief praetor bleeds out on my shoulder and Mustang is in enemy hands, they want to play, and making corpses is the game of the day. Old and young look at me hungrily, waiting to be fed. This is what it's like being the Alpha, the Primus. The others look to you for guidance. They can smell the tangy odor of blood on you before it's even there. Age doesn't matter. Experience doesn't matter. All that matters is that I provide these sick sons of bitches with fresh kills. Children cry around us, startling me. Such fragile things on a night like this. The sons and daughters of Augustus's youngest sister, 
Their father strokes their hair to calm them. Snorting, his wife bends and slaps each child across the face till they cease their whining. Be brave! Our obsidians and greys are not waiting for us on the ground. They've been taken somewhere. Neither are the sovereign's obsidians or her golds coming through the air, which means she hasn't yet decided what to do, just as I thought. She can't slaughter us. For a house to wipe out another house is one thing, but for the great leader to do it, with the power and funds entrusted to her by the Senate. It's happened before, and that sovereign was beheaded by his daughter, the daughter who now sits on the throne. Oh, she must hate me for this. Below the lift, lights glow along the cobbled paths that cut through the huge forest of flower trees. The musicians no longer play. Instead, we hear shouts and screams and long periods of terrifying silence. Golds run beneath, fleeing to the stone halls past the forest where they can access their ships, fly home. Only some aren't fleeing. They are hunting. Something has happened I did not expect. Other family feuds find satisfaction tonight. It felt the same at the Institute when the other students realised it wasn't a game, that there weren't rules. An eerie feeling, a notion that devils roam the grounds instead of men. Who knows what anyone will do now that the rules are gone? There are four hunters in the distance. A pack of three men and one young woman dash silently through the forest. They hop a brook, running with all the vigour of the hungry, all the ambition of youth. From House Falth, it seems. I recognise raisin-eyed Lilith, the girl the jackal sent to deliver the hollow of me killing Julian to Cassius. With her is Scipio, the stout young man who once aided Antonia in and out of the bedroom. We watch them in silence as our lift descends. Carrying death, the lean pack streaks through the trees toward an unsuspecting line of House Thorn family members, all in dresses and suits of red and white. Too late, they head frantically for the stone halls. Their standard is the rose. It falls as the killers burst from the trees. A family dies. Scary how quiet and fast it is with razors. Different from my duel. I took my time. They don't. I see a boy of ten cut apart. There's no mercy for gold, children. They're not seen as innocent. They're enemy seeds. Destroy them or fight them years from now. A woman in a ball gown slashes back, manages to kill one of the false before being cut down. Two children run. One is caught, the other escapes. She's the only one. Then the false lancers dance, taking large, exaggerated stomps. They turn in different directions, grinding their toes into the dark ground. Only, they aren't dancing. Gory hell! Tactus curses and rubs his face. The children... Victra whispers. Augustus says nothing, face resolute as stone. The thorns have fifteen children. Tears bead in Victra's eyes, surprising me. 
monsters. The jackal whispers, sending chills up my spine because his acting is so damn good. He couldn't give a piss. Children, would you have sung if she'd known this was the chorus? We all carry burdens, and as the killers slip away from the murdered family, I know my burden will crush me under its weight one day. Just not today. Data Jama deployed, says Daxus Autelemanus. He flashes me the data pad on his wrist. Data pads are dead. They don't want us contacting our ships in orbit. Augustus looks at his blank data pad and says that soon the other families will be summoning their obsidian, gold, and grey attendants. We must be off-planet and back in a position of strength before the tide turns against us. You made this chaos, Dara. Deliver me from it. He leans toward me and feels the pulse of the Praetor I carry. Get rid of her. She'll be dead in a minute. He wipes his hands. The children weigh us down enough already. The Praetor murmurs something to me as I set her on the floor of the lift. I don't know what she says. When I die, I will say nothing, because I know the veil waits on the other side. What waits for this warrior? Only darkness. I didn't even understand her last words. We discard her like a broken sword. I close her eyes with my bloody fingers, leaving long, fading marks. Victor squeezes my shoulder, noting the respect I give. Standing, I give my orders to the lancers and the other men of war. There are fifteen I would consider good killers, some my age, others well into old age, yet not one contradicts me, not even Pliny. The Telemannuses in particular seem eager to follow. Each holds my gaze longer than necessary, nodding deeper than mere formality. I hope no one is bored. They laugh. We'll have company if another family decides they may earn favour with the Bologna or the Sovereign by taking the Arch-Governor's head, I say. We must kill that company and carve our way to the hangars. Telemannus, you and your son are now the Arch-Governor's shadows. Attend nothing else, do you understand? They nod their massive heads. Hic sunt leones. Hic sunt leones. When the lift reaches ground, forty men and women wait for us, family Norvo of Triton and family Codovan of Jupiter's moons. Unfortunate odds, Tactus sighs. Codovan and Norvo are ours, Augustus replies, bought and paid for. Rapscallion! Codovan, you rapscallion! Kavak's thunders, I thought you were a Bologna man. So did they. Augustus expected something like this. I take command of the new golds. Again, I thought someone would object. They just stand watching me, waiting for my orders. All these praetors, all these politicians and sinewy men and women of war. I hold back a chuckle. Amazing the power you have when you're bloody up to the sleeves and none of it is your own. 
we escort the arch-governor out of the forest. Three times were assailed, but I have Tactus take Augustus's cloak and lead some of the attackers on a wild goose chase. Rose petals of a thousand shades fall from the trees as golds fight beneath them. They're all red in the end. The gang of three from House Foth try to ambush Tactus as he returns to the main body. He wheels on them and, with little help, lays all but Lilith low. She scampers off as he kills Scipio and stomps on the dead man. Baby killers! He spits over and over till Victra pulls him away. I watch for the jackal. Every moment I expect a dart in the back to die as Leto did. But the jackal merely follows, as does his father. No one saw what he did to Leto. Or if they did, their fear silences them. When we reached the stone halls beyond the forest, finally crossing a white limestone bridge, the rules of the society seem to return. Low colours skitter out of our way as we, now seventy strong, storm through the halls to the hangars to leave this moon. But when we reach our hangar, we find that our ship is gone. We rush to the landing pads lined with trees and grass. All the family ships are missing. Society rip wings patrol the sky. We question a shaking orange. Tactus holds him up by his collar. He shudders as he looks at us seventy bloody souls. He's never spoken to a gold before, much less ones like us. Victor knocks Tactus's hand away and speaks quietly to the orange. He says the ships were required to return home two hours ago. First they don't let obsidians into the gala, now this, Tactus mutters. That means the sovereign planned something, says the jackal, a something that was never allowed to blossom. She removed our obsidians, our ships, to isolate the houses from their sources of power, he explains, eyeing the telemannuses warily, marooning us. What do you suppose she had up her little sleeves, father? Augustus ignores his son, looking to the sky. Mother mercy, Victor curses. Gather yourselves, Kavak's bellows to his warriors. Piss on my face. Tactus goes pale beside me. I look up and see doom coming. Praetorians! Seventy razors curl out, and we fan apart in case they have energy weapons. Darrow, you're with me, Augustus says. The enemy is little more than black dots in the night sky, but our eyes are keen. The dark bastards streak from the night clouds and impact the ground like fallen devils, always in their threes. Thump, 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 thump. They land between the trees on the grass, blocking our way back to the citadel. Obsidian Praetorians and gold night captains. The Praetorian obsidians are titanic, like golems pulled from the stone of some mountain. Crueler by far than those we used at the academy. No armour like theirs in all the worlds. Dark purple inlaid with black, like coral curling over their titan bodies. They stand in tight squad formation, loyal and bound to one another as they are to their faith. 
thump, 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 till there are ninety-nine. Thump. Their golden commander lands last, on a knee. He rises, tall helmet, a laughing wolf skull. His cape of gold, emblazoned with the pyramid of the society, kicks sideways in the wind. An Olympic night. There are twelve in the solar system, sworn to protect the compact of the society against all who defy it. This is the rage night, the post Lorn filled for sixty years till he left for Europa. They represent what the gold see as the dominant themes of man, the same as our schoolhouses. A man slighter than myself wears the armour, so the sovereigns already filled Lorne's former post. Declare yourself knight, I shout. The knight allows his helm to melt back into his armour. His flaxen hair falls over an ugly hatchet face. Wet from sweat, lined with age and stress. I bark out a laugh when he smiles out that side slash of a mouth. I draw stares. Now they'll only think me madder. The rage night falls from the sky, and I laugh in his face. He cackles. Don't you recognize me, you little shit-eater? Fitchner, you look uglier than I remember. Fitchner? Tactus snorts. How nostalgic. Hello, boyo. Fitchner laughs at seeing Tactus in the Arch-Governor's cloak. Nice cape, but you're not Arch-Governor Augustus. Fitchner clucks his tongue and sets his hands on his hips. Arch-Governor! Arch-Governor! Darling, where the devil are you? The Arch-Governor rolls his eyes and steps past me. Proctor Mars? There's the darling. That's an old title, didn't you know? I see you have a new helmet. It is pretty, isn't it? The ladies love it. Can't remember when I was laid so much by golden stock. Fitchner moves his hips suggestively. It was such a bother getting it. Thought there'd never be an end to the duels and tests. We did it in front of the sovereign, boyo. Each man, each woman, making their case. Everyone who thought the post should be theirs. Time and again but fortune favours the nasty. How... I wonder aloud. You beat everyone? Hardly, my arch-governor sneers. It goes to the great warriors. He strafes Fitchner with his eyes. Which you are not, Fitchner. What did you promise the sovereign for your new helmet? I'm sure the price was high. Oh, I rode Darrow's star when he beat your boy. Hello, Jackal, you little rugrat. Then there was that gory damn contest, and, well, you can ask Tactus's eldest brother and Proctor Jupiter about the specifics. He strikes a pose. I'm more than meets the eye, eh? So you don't have a new master with the new helmet? Augustus asks. Master? Pah! Fitchner comically puffs up his chest. Olympic knights have no master but our conscience. We defend the society's compact, subservient only to duty. Once, 
Now you are the sovereign servants, Daxo declares. As are we all, my dear Telemannus, Fitzner replies. Great admirer of your brother and your family, by the by. Wonderful warhammer you carried at that tournament on Thebos. Gory damn scary lineage. I've always meant to ask, which of your ancestors screwed the rhinoceros? Daxo raises his eyebrows in delicate offence. Kavax grumbles like Pax might have. Sorry, was it a grizzly instead? Fitzner grunts another laugh. A joke? Keen? We're all servants, though, eh? Gory damn slaves to the one with the scepter? I assume, then, your loyalty to Mars is gone and cannot be... remembered, Augustus asks, since you're a servant. Fitzner claps his gloved hands together. Mars? Mars? What is Mars but a gory damn hunk of rock? It's done nothing for me. Mars is home, Fitchner. Augustus waves to those around us. The Sovereign bid you to find us. Well, here we are. Kin from your own planet. Will you join your loyalty to us, or will you give us up? Oh, you are a jokester, Augustus. A prime jokester. My loyalties are to the compact and to myself, as yours are to yourself, my liege. Not to a rock, not to false kin, so do not waste your breath. Now, I've been told to place you and your kin under house arrest. You recall we set aside a prime villa for your pleasure? It'd be dandy fine if you could scamper on back there, enjoy our hospitality, your sovereign insists. You forget yourself. Augustus hisses. I forget much. Where I put my pants. Who I've kissed. Who I've killed. Fitzner touches his arms, his belly, his face. But forget myself. Never. He points to the obsidians around him. And I've certainly not forgotten my dogs. And where are mine? Where is Alfrun? I killed your stained mutts, both of them. Fitzner smiles. They were barking, Augustus, barking so loudly. Rage burns across Augustus's face. I hope they weren't expensive, boyo, Fitzner says with a smile. You speak as though we are familiars, Bronzy. We are familiar. As though we were equal. We are not equal. I am a descendant of the conquerors of the Iron Golds. I am the lord of a planet. What are you? Uh, I'm a man with a stun fist. He shoots Augustus in the chest. Augustus crumples backward as his praetors gasp. That'll show him not to wear his armor to Gallus. Now, Fitzner smiles, who can I reason with? Me. The jackal takes a step forward. I am heir to this house. Hmm. Pass, you're creepy. He shoots the jackal in the chest with the stun fist. Foolishness, enough foolishness. Kavak steps forward, pushing his son back. Speak with me, Odara. It's plain enough, 
your intentions? Indeed. Darrow, you shall come with me. Like hell. Victress sneers, stepping in front of me. Fitchner rolls his eyes. Telemanus, you and your son take the arch-governor back to his villa and then return to your own. Matters must be sorted. Fitchner gazes quietly at the bald gold. His words now scrape out like raw iron on slate. This is not a request, Telemanus. Telemanus looks to me. My boy trusted this one. So shall I. I need your assurance my friends will not be hurt, I say to Fitchner. He looks at Fictra. They won't be. Convince me. He sighs, bored. The Sovereign can't gory well execute an entire house absent a trial for treason, can she? That violates the compact, and you know how that would make us Olympic knights feel? Not to mention the other houses. Remember how her father met his end. But if you resist, well, that's another matter entirely. Fitzner flips a piece of gum into his mouth. Do you resist? Not today, I say. Chapter 14 The Sovereign Once upon a time there was a family of strong wills, she says, voice slow and measured as a pendulum. They did not love one another, but together they presided over a farm. And on that farm there were hounds and bitches and dairy cows and hens and cocks and sheep and mules and horses. The family kept the beasts in line, and the beasts kept them rich, fat, and happy. Now... The beasts obeyed because they knew the family was strong, and to disobey was to suffer their united wrath. But one day, when one of the brothers struck his brother over the eye, a cock said to a hen, Darling, matronly hen, what would really happen if you stopped laying eggs for them? Her eyes burn into mine. Neither of us look away. Silence in the sparse suite, except the sound of rain at the windows of our skyscraper. We're among the clouds. Ships pass in the haze outside like silent, glowing sharks. The leather creaks as she leans forward and steeples her long fingers, which are painted red, a lone splash of color. Then her lips curl in condescension, accenting each syllable as though I were an Aegea street child only just learning her language. In so many ways, you remind me of my father. The one she beheaded. That's when she fixes me with the most enigmatic smile I may ever have seen. Mischief dances in her eyes, subdued and quiet beneath the cold trappings of power. Somewhere inside 
is the nine-year-old girl who infamously started a riot by throwing diamonds from an air car. I stand before her. She sits on a couch by a fire. Everything is spartan, hard, cold, a gold woman of iron and stone. All this drabness, as if to say she needs not luxury or wealth, just power. Her face is creased, but not faded by time. A hundred years, or so I hear, not cracked by the pressures of office. If anything, pressure has made her like those diamonds she scattered. Unbreakable. Ageless. And she will be without age for some time longer if the carvers continue their cellular rejuvenation therapy. That is the problem. She will cling to power far too long. A king reigns, and then he dies. That is the way of it. That is how the young justify obeying their elders, knowing it will one day be their turn. But when their elders do not leave, when she rules for forty years and may rule for a hundred more, what then? She is the answer to that question. This is not a woman who inherited the morning throne. This is a woman who took it from a ruler who had not the courtesy to die in a timely fashion. For forty years others have tried to take it from her. Yet here she sits, timeless as those fabled diamonds. Why did you disobey me? She asks. Because I could. Explain. Nepotism shrivels under the light of the sun. When you changed your mind to protect Cassius, the crowd rejected your moral and legal authority. Not to mention you contradicted yourself. That in itself is weakness. So I exploited it, knowing I could get what I wanted without consequence. Aja, the sovereign's favorite killer, broods in a chair near the window. A powerful panther of a woman, with skin duskier than her siblings, and eyes with slitted pupils. She is one of the Olympic knights, the Protean knight, to be technic. She was Lorne's last student before me, though he didn't teach her everything. Her armor is gold and midnight blue and writhes with sea serpents. A young boy enters quietly from another room to sit beside Aja. I recognize him immediately, the sovereign's only grandson, Lysander. No older than eight, but so very composed, regal in his quiet, thin as a scarf. But his eyes, his eyes are beyond gold, almost a yellow crystal, so bright they could nearly be said to shine. Aja watches me appraise the boy. She takes him onto her lap protectively and bares her teeth, their whiteness fiercely bright against her dark skin. Like a great cat playfully saying hello. And for the first time I can remember, I glance away from a threat. The shame burns hot and sudden in me. I might as well have kneeled to her. But there are always consequences, the sovereign says. I'm curious. 
What did you want out of that duel? The same as Cassius Albolona, the heart of my enemy. Do you hate him so much? No, but my survival instinct is... enthusiastic. Cassius, as far as I am concerned, is a stupid boy crippled by his upbringing. His stock is limited. He talks of honor, but he stoops to ignoble things. So it wasn't for Virginia? She asks. It wasn't to claim her hand or sate your jealous rage? I'm angry, but I'm not petty, I snap. Besides, Virginia isn't the sort of woman who would stand for such things. If I did it for her, I would have lost her. You have lost her. Aja growls from the side. Yes, I realize she has a new home, Aja. Easy to see. Though you lash out at me, my goodman. Aja touches her razor. My good lady, I do but lash out. I smile slowly at her. She'll cut you like a pig, boyo. Fitchner says quickly. Don't give a piss if Lorne taught you how to wipe your ass. Think twice on who you insult here. The true blades of the society do not duel for sport, so mind your gory damn tongue. I touch my razor. He snorts. If you were a threat, do you think they'd let you keep that? I nod to Aja. Another time, perhaps. I turn back to the sovereign, straightening. Perhaps we should discuss why you are holding my house under military guard. Are we under arrest? Am I? Do you see shackles? I look at Aja. Yes. The sovereign laughs. You're here because I want you to be. An idea comes to me. I try not to smile. My liege, I should like to apologize. I say loudly. They wait for me to continue. My manners have always been provincial, and so I find the manner of my actions nearly always distracts from their purpose. The base fact is, Cassius deserved worse than what I supplied. That I disobeyed you was not meant as an insult by myself or the arch-governor. Were he not unconscious on account of your dog, I glance at Fitchner, I wager he would do what needed to be done to make amends. Make amends? She repeats. For? For the disturbance. She looks to Aja. Disturbance, he says. Dropping a dish is a disturbance, Andromedus. Helping yourself to another man's wife is a disturbance. Killing my guests and cutting off the arm of an Olympic knight is not a disturbance. Do you know what it is? Fun, my liege. She leans forward. It is treason. And you know how we treat with treason, Aja says. My father taught my sisters and me. Her father, the Ash Lord, burner of Rhea. Lorn despises him. An apology from you is insufficient, the Sovereign says. 
Apology? I ask. The sovereign is caught off guard by my tone. I said I should like to apologize, but the problem is I cannot, because it should be you who apologizes to me. Silence. You little whelp, Aja says, rising slowly. The sovereign stops her, words cutting clear and cold. I did not apologize to my father when I took his head from his body. I did not apologize to my grandson when his mother's ship was destroyed by outriders. I did not apologize when I burned a moon. So why would I apologize to you? Because you broke the law, I say. Perhaps you were not listening. I am the law. No, you're not. So you are a student of lawns after all. Did he tell you why he abandoned his post? His duty? She looks at Lysander. Why he abandoned his grandson? I did not know the boy was Lorne's grandson. My teacher's retirement makes sudden sense. He always spoke of society's fading glory, how men have forgotten themselves mortal. Because he saw what you have become, my liege. You are no empress. This is no empire, despite what you may think. We are the society. We are bound by laws, by hierarchy. No person stands above the pyramid. I look to Achilles. Fitchner, Aja, you protect the society. You ensure peace. You sail to the far reaches of the system to root out weeds of chaos. But above all else, what is the purpose of the twelve Olympic nights? Go on, Aja says to Fitchner. Play into his mama's farce. I will not. Fitchner draws out, To preserve the compact. To preserve the compact, I say. And the compact states, A duel, once begun, cannot reach resolution until its terms are properly fulfilled. The terms were death, but Cassius is not dead. His arm will not suffice. I honor the iron ancestors, and my rights stand inviolable. So give me what is mine. Give me the gory damn head of Cassius Albelona, or reject the legacy of our people. No. Then we have nothing more to discuss. You may find me on Mars. I turn on my heel and walk toward the door. The lion fades, the sovereign calls. Find a new home, here. I stop in my tracks. These people are so bloody damn predictable. They all want what they can't have. Why? I ask without turning. Because I can give you resources Augustus cannot. Because Virginia has already seen how true that is. You want to be with her, don't you? Why would you want a man who so easily trades his allegiance? I turn and look Fitchner dead in the eye. Such a man is little more than a common whore. Augustus abandoned you before you abandoned him, the sovereign says. His daughter saw it even if you don't. I 
will not abandon you. Ask my furies, ask their father, ask Fichna. I give a chance to those who stand apart. Join me, lead my legions, and I will make you an Olympic knight. I am an Oriot. I spit on the ground. I am no trophy. I stalk away. If I can't have you, no one can. Then they come. Three stained file through the door, each a foot taller than I, each garbed in purple and black and carrying pulse axes and pulse blades. Their faces hide behind bone-like masks, eyes of killers grown in the arctic poles of Earth and Mars stare out at me, glittering black like oil. I pull my razor and take my battle stance. Their throat-sung war chant rumbles under their masks, like the funeral dirge for a dead god. Go on, sing to your gods. I twirl my razor. I'll send you to meet them. Reaper, please stop. Lysander calls loudly. I turn to find him walking toward me, hands splayed plaintively. His coat is simple and black. He stands half my height. His voice floats, trembles like a delicate bird's. I have watched all your videos, Reaper. Six, maybe seven times. Even the Academy. My tutors believe you are the closest man to the Iron Gold since Lorn Ao Arcos, the Stoneside. That's when I realize why he looks so nervous. I almost laugh. I'm this little bastard's boyhood hero. We need not see you die tonight. Could you not find a home here, as you found with Severa, with Roke and Tactus and Pax, the Howlers, and all your great warriors? We have warriors too, noble ones. You could lead them, but... He steps back. If you fight, then you die because you make the mistake of believing righteousness puts you beyond my grandmother's power. It does, I say. Reaper... There is no place beyond her power. This is how it happens. They give them heroes. They raise them on lies and violence, and then they let them grow into monsters. What would he be without their guiding hand? He wanted to see you, the sovereign says. I told him legend never matches fact. Better not to meet your heroes. And what do you think? I ask little Lysander. It all depends on your next choice, he says delicately. Join us, Darrow, Fitchner draws. This is the place for you now. Augustus is done. Smiling inwardly, I relax my blade. Lysander clenches a fist happily. I pace with him back to his grandmother, playing along, but not yet proclaiming any allegiance. You're always telling me to bow, I tell Fitchner as I pass. He shrugs. Because I don't want you to break, boyo. Lysander, fetch me my box, the sovereign says. Happily, the boy rushes out of the room as I sit across from his grandmother, 
I fear the Institute taught you the wrong lesson, that you can overcome anything if you but try. That is incorrect. In the real world, you must go along. You must cooperate and compromise. You cannot bend the worlds to your morals. Would you have noticed me had I not tried to? She smiles softly. Likely not. Lysander returns moments later, carrying a small wooden box. He hands it to his grandmother and waits patiently by her side, eating a tart that Aja hands him. The sovereign sets the box on the table. You value trust, so do I. Let us play a game, absent weapons, absent armor, no Praetorians, no lies, no falsity, just us and our naked truths. Why? If you win, you may request anything of me. If I win, I get the same. If I ask for the head of Cassius, I will saw it off myself. Now, open the box. I lean forward, chair creaking. Rain patters on the windows. Lysander smiles. Aja watches my hands. And Fitchner, like me, has no idea what's in the bloody damn box. I open it. Chapter 15 Truth It takes everything I am not to flee. What comes hissing from the box is pulled out of nightmare, pulled so perfectly out of the depths of my subconscious that I nearly think the Sovereign knows where I come from, where I truly come from. The game is one of questions, she says. Lysander, please do the honors. She hands her son a knife. The boy cuts the sleeve of my uniform to the elbow, rolling it back to expose my forearm. His hands are gentle. He smiles at me apologetically. Don't be afraid, he says. Nothing bad will happen so long as you don't lie. The carved creatures from the box, two of them, stare at me with three blind eyes apiece, part scorpion, part pit viper, part centipede. They move like liquid glass, organs, skeleton visible through skin, chitinous mouths chattering and hissing at the same time as one slithers onto the table. No lies! I force a laugh. That's a breezy order when you're a child. He never lies, Aja says proudly. None of us do. Lies are rust on iron, a blemish on power. Power they're so drunk on. They can't even remember how many lies they stand upon. Tell my people you don't lie, you brutish bitch, and see what they do to you. I call these oracles, the sovereign says. One of her rings ripples liquid, forming a shell over her finger, turning it into a talon, needle growing slowly at the end. 
With this needle she pricks my wrist and says the words, Truth over all. One oracle slips forward, skittering onto my arm, coiling itself around my wrist. Its strange mouth seeks the blood, latching on like a leech. Its scorpion tail arches four inches upward, drifting back and forth like a cattail in a summer wind. The sovereign pricks her own wrist, repeats the oath, and the second oracle slithers from the box. Zanzibar the carver designed this especially for me in his Himalayan laboratories, she says. The poison won't kill you, but I've cells filled with men who have played my game and lost. If there is a hell, what's in that stinger is as close to it as science has let us come. My pulse quickens as I watch the tail sway. Sixty-five, Aja says of my pulse. He was resting at twenty-nine beats per minute. The sovereign lifts her head at that. As low as twenty-nine? When are my ears wrong? Calm yourself, Andromedus, the sovereign says. The oracle is designed to measure truth. It's in fluctuations of temperature, chemicals in the blood, pulse of the heart. You don't have to play if you don't want, Darrow. Asha purrs. You can go the easy way with the Praetorians. Death is not so bad. I glare at the sovereign. Let's play. Would you assassinate me tonight if you could? No. We all watch the oracle. Even I. After a moment, nothing happens. I swallow in relief. The sovereign smiles. This game doesn't have an end, I mutter. How do I even win? You make me lie. How many times have you played this game? I ask. Seventy-one. In the end, I've trusted only one other. Where does Augustus hide his unregistered electromagnetic weapons? Asteroid depots, hidden armories throughout Mars's cities. I list the particulars. And in the dais of this reception room. That surprises them. Where are yours? She lists off sixty locations in fast order. She tells everything because she's never lost. She's never had to worry about the information walking out the door. Such confidence. What does that Pegasus pendant mean to you? She asks. Is it from your father? I look down. It spilled out of my shirt. It means hope. Part of my father's legacy. Did you help Carnus at the academy? Yes. I gave him that ship you rammed you with. Did you really intend to launch yourself at his bridge? Yes. Why did you bring Virginia into your inner circle? The same reason you fell in love with her. My pulse quickens. Aja smiles, hearing it. Virginia is special. And we both come from fathers who... left much to be desired. When I was a girl, I would have given anything to belong to a different family... 
but I was the daughter of the sovereign. I gave her a gift no one could have given me. You see, I collect people I enjoy, Andromedus. I even enjoy Fitchner there. Many might see him as repugnant, might think his heritage unseemly, but, like you, he is so very talented. When I asked him to play this game before becoming one of my Olympic knights, you know what he said? I can imagine. Fitchner? He shrugs his slumped shoulders. Told you to stick the box up your cooch. I'm not an idiot. I think it was even more crass than that. Aja grumbles. My turn. The sovereign examines her rage knight. Did Fitchner violate his oath as a proctor and cheat at the Mars Institute, as rumor would have me believe? Yes, I say, watching the oracle instead of my old proctor. He cheated like the rest. I know Fitchner would not have gained this post were she not sure of his loyalty to her and not Augustus, which means Fitchner must have come clean and supplied her with details of Augustus's ill dealings. I glance back at the man. Though I don't know if he was paid like the others. He wasn't. Their mistake, the Sovereign says. Gave us video evidence, audio, bank statements, useful leverage against each proctor. Severo must have given his father the video footage when I had him tinkering with it. Crafty little bastard. He actually does care about his father, after all. Augustus would kill them both if he knew about the duplicity. I want to interrogate the Sovereign about military outposts, supply lines, operational imperatives and security measures, but I know that would appear strange. It would lead to her asking strange questions of her own. The oracle tightens slightly on my arm, sucking out only tiny drops of blood at a time. I don't know how well this thing can sense untruths, but what do I do if she asks me where I was born, who my father is, why I rub dirt between my fingers before I fight? Shit, she could just ask me if I'm a red. But how would she ever think to do that, unless I gave her the sense that something was... off about me. Are any in my inner circle your spies? I ask. Very clever. No. Where did you go with Victor Aujuliae three days ago, and what did you do? The sovereign asks. To Lost City. Somehow the oracle senses I'm holding back. Its stinger trembles with excitement. To meet the jackal, Augustus's son. It tightens further. To form an alliance. Sweat beads on my collar, and the oracle relaxes, the answer sufficient. Why do they call Lorne Stoneside? He didn't tell you. It's not because he's tough as stone like they'd tell you now. It's because on campaign in the Moon Rebellion, he was famous for eating anything, and one day... A grey bet him he couldn't eat stones. Lorne doesn't back down. When did Lorne teach you? Every morning before first light, between my graduation from the Institute and enrolment at the Academy. Incredible no one found out. 
How many peerless scarred are there? I ask. Census data is so hard to come by. The Board of Quality Control is monstrous in hoarding its high-level material. There are 132,689 for nearly 40 million golds. Why did Lorne take you as a student? Because he thinks we're the same sort of man. What are your two greatest fears? Octavia, Aja warns. Shut up, Aja. All's fair. She looks over to Lysander and smiles. My greatest fear is that my grandson will grow up to be like my father. The second is the inevitability of age. Why did you cry when you killed Julian Albalona? Because he was kinder than the world let him be. Did you arrange Virginia and Cassius's courtship? No, it was her idea. I held on to hope that it was something arranged, something she had to do. Why did you sing the red ballad to Virginia at the Institute? Because she forgot the words, and I think it the saddest song ever sung. I pause before my next question. You want to ask about Virginia again, don't you? The corner of her lips twitch with pleasure as she plucks my pain. Do you want to know if I'll give her to you if you join me? It's possible. She is not a thing to be given, I say. She laughs, amused at my innocence. If you say so. Where are the three deep space command centers? I ask recklessly. She gives me the coordinates without blinking. How did you know the words to the reaping song? I heard it as a boy, and I forget little. Where? It's not your turn, I remind her. Why are you asking me these questions? Because one of my furies has led me to suspect the sons of Ares are perhaps something different than we imagined, something more dangerous. Who is Ares? My heart thunders. I don't know. I watch the oracle's tail. It doesn't move. Who do you think Ares is? Your master. Thirty-nine, forty-two, fifty-six, Aja says. The sovereign wags a long finger. Strange, your heart gives you away. I clear my mind, let it all fade. Imagine the mines, remember the wind moving through them. Remember her hands on mine as we walked barefoot through cold dirt to the place where we first lay together, in the hollow of an abandoned township. Her whispers, how she sang the lullaby my mother sang to my siblings and me. Fifty-five, forty-two, thirty-nine, Aja says. Is Augustus Ares? she asks. Relief floods me. No, he's not Ares. The door slams open behind me. We turn to see Mustang stalking into the room wearing the gold and white uniform of House Loon, complete with the family's crescent moon symbol. A data pad glows on her wrist. She bows to the sovereign. My liege. Virginia, you're still a mess, Azure drawls. Blame this dumb son of a bitch. 
Mustang nods to me. Seventy-three dead. Two earthborn families are raised, neither of which had anything to do with Bologna or Augustus. Over two hundred wounded. She shakes her head. I grounded all ships as you asked, Octavia. Praetorian command has initiated a no-fly zone in orbit. All family-owned capital ships have had their warrants revoked and are being pushed beyond the Rubicon beacons till we give further notice. And Cassius still lives. He's with the Yellows. Citadel carvers are preparing plans for replacing the arm. The Sovereign thanks her and asks her to sit. Darrow and I are getting to know each other. Are there any questions you think we should ask him? Mustang sits beside the Sovereign. My advice, my liege? Don't try to solve Darrow. He's a puzzle with missing pieces. That's rather offensive, I say playfully. But her words sting. So you don't think we should keep him? Cassius and his mother will... Mustang starts. Will what? The Sovereign interrupts. I made Cassius an Olympic knight. He will be grateful, and he will study his razor so this does not happen again. Her face softens, and she touches Mustang's knee. Are you all right, my dear? I'm fine. Seems like I interrupted your game. I can't tell which woman is playing the other, but with Carnus's words at the gala and the knowledge that the ships were grounded before I even started the skirmish, I know the Sovereign had plans, and now I think I can piece together just what they were. One last question. I've been saving it for the end. Do ask, boy. We have no secrets here, but it must be the last. Agrippina Au Julii has been kept waiting long enough. Aja opens the box so the oracles may go back inside. Tonight at the gala, during the sixth course of the meal, did you plan to allow the Bologna to assassinate Arch-Governor Augustus and all those who sat at his table? Aja freezes. Mustang slowly turns to look at the sovereign, whose face shows no hints of dishonesty. The woman breathes easily, and with a soft smile, lies through her teeth. No, she says, I did not. The oracle's barbed tail strikes at her flesh. Chapter 16 the game. Fitzner's razor buzzes, and he chops away the tail faster than a bee beats its wings. It flops to the floor, transparent stinger hissing out poison. On the sovereign's arm, the wounded creature screams, wailing and writhing like a dying cat. The sovereign rips it off and throws it at the wall. My own releases slowly, as if connected with the other. Mewing pathetically, it retreats to its box to hide in the darkness. I dab away the faint trail of blood it left on my forearm. So you do lie, I say with a wicked grin. The sovereign exhales a long sigh. Mustang stands, enraged. 
You promised you would not hurt them. You lied. Yes. Octavia rubs her temples. A matter of necessity. You said there were no lies here. Mustang hisses. That was a precondition of my allegiance to you, the only thing I asked for, and you planned to do it while I watched. Sit. The sovereign stands, drawing nose to nose with Mustang. Sit down. Mustang sits, breathing heavily. She won't look at me or the sovereign. She's surrounded by betrayal. The sovereign notes this, piecing together a new strategy as Mustang draws a gold ring from her pocket and rolls it compulsively through her fingers. Do you know why I need your family gone? Octavia asks Mustang. She doesn't reply. I asked you a question, Virginia. Put aside petulance and answer. He is a threat to peace. Mustang replies flatly, slipping the ring on her finger. He disregards your orders. He does not obey financial directives. He delays helium-3 exports for political gain. If I tried removing him from power, what would happen? Mustang looks up at her. He would rebel. So what am I to do? If he rebels while on Mars... It becomes his planet fortress. The monies it would take me to pry him out, to find him, to kill him, to reinstate order is... incomprehensible. Ships, men, food, munitions, trade, helium-3 shortages. The society would not recover for years. We cannot afford an enemy like him but we also cannot afford an ally to so publicly affront us. What if the governors of the gas giants thought they were immune to my orders because we're lenient with your father, because we let him manipulate helium prices or ignore sovereign directives? Forty years ago, in the first year of my reign, the moons of Saturn rebelled. The war did not end until I destroyed the moon Rhea outright. Fifty million dead. That is how stubborn our race is. They know how difficult it is for me to flex my hand billions of kilometers from the core. But still they are afraid. So much of a ruler's reign is a figment of the people's imagination. My power isn't ships, isn't Praetorians. My power is their fear. But they must have fresh reminders. And so my family is to be the reminder? Yes. Tell me that doesn't make sense. Mustang stays quiet for a long moment. It is the logical political move. But he's my father, which is why I didn't tell you. Consider this. She waves her hand, and a hollow ignites on the floor, rising to fill half the room. It's a riot. Building smoke. Greys mow down women and men with pulse weapons. She changes the image. A dozen more dance across the room. A woman falls in front of me, dead, hole in her skull, 
smoking still. I stared down at the sudden horror. Is this Mars? I ask, fearing for my family. You would think so, wouldn't you? The sovereign traces a finger through the muzzle of a pulse rifle as it fires. It's Venus. Venus? Mustang whispers. There are no sons of Ares on Venus. Nor will there be after tonight. The flame spreads even to the core. Two hours ago, multiple bombings racked this society. My politicos and praetors and various high-level personnel throughout the Empire have initiated Order Zero. No media will report this. Wherever there are flames, we make quarantine. We will snuff them out. Something your father did not do, Virginia. In fact, he allowed the sons to thrive, to spread here. I warned Harmony. I only hope the sons aren't all lost. The Sovereign crouches in front of Mustang. Your father must die. He hanged the very woman the sons of Ares used to start all this. His face burns across their propaganda. If he goes, if we strike them, then they fade. We will kill two birds with one stone. Arrange the transfer of power to Bologna, and Mars is at peace for the first time in my reign. All it costs is fifty lives. I know he is your father, but you came into my fold for a reason. Looking at Mustang, I understand that reason now, and it breaks my heart. She stands slowly, walking to the window as if fleeing the decision. She stares out at a ship passing in the distant fog. When Mother was alive, he used to ride with me through the forest. We'd stop at this wild blossom clearing and lay on the red flowers, arms out, pretending we were angels. That man is dead. Do with the new one as you like. Chapter 17 What the Storm Brings the Obsidians escort me to new quarters, Fitchner trailing along behind, pacing jovially on the marble floors. When we reach my door, he takes my hand. Well played, Boyo. Good reading on her. Knowing she wants what she can't have. Gory damn clever. Warms my heart to finally see you playing the game and winning, you little pisser. He slugs my shoulder. Tomorrow, we'll go to market and buy you servants. Pinks, blues, obsidians of your very own. For now, I left you a present. He gestures into my room, where a lithe pink lies on the bed. Enjoy. You don't know me at all, do you? He sighs and leans forward. This is the hand life has dealt you. It's not a bad hand. Imagine the things you can do as a personal emissary of the Sovereign. She makes your governor look like a small-town slumlord. 
You have your girl. You have your opportunity. Embrace your new life. The door slams. A new life. But is it worth the cost? I don't know what's happening with the sons. That's something I can't affect. But he expects me to let Roke die? To let Tactus and Victor and Theodora perish to Praetorian death squads? I walk around my suite ignoring the pink. Luna's night clouds sprawl as far as the eye can see beyond the huge bank of windows that comprises the suite's north wall. Buildings puncture the clouds like glittering spears. I am trapped by opulence. Rain continues to pour. The storms of Luna are enigmatic creatures. For a man of Mars, it is a slow rain, lethargic, as though the drops tire of their own fall in this low gravity. But the winds that come are gales, there are no cracks in the citadel's windows through which the wind can whistle. I miss the moans of my old castle on Mars, miss the laments of the deep mines. Those moments when the drill cooled, and I sat there touching my wedding band through my fry suit, thinking of how soon it would be that I had her lips to mine, her hands on my waist, her body drifting light as dust over my own. But I cannot think only of the red girl. When I see the moon, I think of the sun. Mustang burns in my thoughts. If Eo smelled of rust and soil, then the golden girl is fire and autumn leaves. Part of me wishes I would remember only Eo, that my mind belonged to her so I could be like one of those knights of legend. A man so in love with one lost that he closes his heart to all others. But I am not that legend. In so many ways I'm still a boy, lost and afraid, seeking warmth and love. When I feel dirt, I honour Io, and when I see fire, I remember the warmth and flicker of the flames across Mustang's skin as we lay in our chamber of ice and snow. I examine the empty room, which smells neither of leaves nor soil, but cardamom. The room is too vast for my taste, too rich. There is ivory on the walls, a sauna, a massage parlour adjacent to a pleasure chamber. There's a calm chair, a bed, a small swimming pool. These are my chambers now. I see in a data file that I've been given a 50 million credit stipend to choose my attendants. They left me an additional ten million to populate my harem. This is the price they pay me for betraying my friends. It is not enough. My eyes now fall on the pink who lies on my bed. Naked, covered only by a blanket. I threw it on her to mask her form, thinking of poor Evie when I first saw her. But the longer I look at this new girl, the harder it is to remember Evie, to remember Eo or Mustang. That's what pinks are for, to help you forget. So effective, they even make you forget their own sad plight. When she grows old, 
she'll be sold off from the Citadel staff to some high-class brothel, and a few more lines will form and she'll be sold down the ladder and down the ladder till she has nothing more to give. It happens to men. It happens to women. And, I'm beginning to realise, it happens to golds. The Pink asks me to join her, to let her soothe what ails me. I don't reply. I sit on the edge of the windowsill, my hands kneading my thighs, waiting. I don't have my razor. Obsidians guard the hall outside. The glass window won't break by any means I have at my disposal, but I do not worry. I sit watching the storm, feeling another brew inside myself. With a hiss, the door opens. I turn, a smile already cracking my face. Mustang, I... Through the door slips a demure male pink with white hair and eyes that'd break a thousand hearts in Lycos. It breaks mine now. I was wrong. Who are you? I ask. He sets a small onyx box down on my bed in front of the other pink. Who is it from? I demand. You'll see, Dominus, he says. Daintily he extends a hand to the other pink who, confused, takes it and follows him from the room. The door closes. I'm just as confused as the pink. I rush to the box, opening it, and find a small hollow cube. I activate it. Mustang's face appears, glowing. Take cover, she says. The power goes out, and the door locks by default. The room is plunged into darkness. Lightning lashes through the clouds outside, thunder rumbles, and I hear something. A howling. It is not the wind. Another flash of lightning and he appears, floating in the bitter storm like the ugliest angel ever shit out of heaven. A wolf pelt hangs from his shoulders, whips in the wind. His black metal helmet is that of a wolf's head, and he's armed to the bloody teeth. Severo has come, and he's brought friends. Lightning. Thunder again, and this time it illuminates his slash of a smile and the eight floating killers behind him. Nine howlers in all. Small, cruel little devils, waiting in the darkness, silhouetted by the crackling of the storm's electricity. Long-legged Quinn is there, too. I duck into the sauna as Severo touches the glass with a pulse fist, after setting up a jam field to absorb the sound. The glass ruptures inward. The distorted sound of the storm follows them as they thump down onto the carpeted marble floor. Wind whips at my bedsheets and tapestries, one by one, they kneel. Pudgy Pebble, Cruel Harpy, Spindly, Open-Faced Clown, and all the others. Friends, get up, I bellow. You're already short enough. They laugh and rise. Pebble and Clown rush forward and weld shut my metal door with plasma torches. Water drips from Severo's hook nose as he nods toward me, his helmet absorbed into his armor. Hair buzzed in the shape of dragons. Quiet and so full of derision, he hefts a huge, heavy bag in his other hand. 
and when he walks, he moves with disdain for this low gravity, as though it were a thing for weaklings and fools. Lord Reaper, you look like a pixie ponce in this lady den. Severo sweeps into a theatrical bow after he places the bag at my feet. Perhaps that's why Mustang believed you were in dire need of your gory damn pack. She brought you back from the rim. All of us, Quinn says. We've been here several weeks on standby. She needed men she knew wouldn't be loyal to the Sovereign. An insurance policy. I can't believe I ever doubted her. In no world would Mustang help kill her father. I realized during my conversation with the Sovereign that it had to be why she's here in the first place. To infiltrate the Sovereign's family like I infiltrated the Golds. As she entered the Sovereign suite, I remembered how before the duel she mentioned having her own plans. Now it finally clicks into place. They were both playing their own games, but I helped reveal the Sovereign's hand. The Sovereign wasn't worried about me knowing anything, else why play the game? But as soon as Mustang entered the room, the paradigm altered. She should have concluded the game then and there, but her pride got the better of her. As for Mustang, I knew she was with me as soon as she took the gold horse ring I gave her from her pocket and slipped it onto her finger. My heart leapt in that moment, and I knew she'd find our way out of this. Severo, I smile and clasp his hand. Our arch-governor is... I know. Mustang briefed us. Come here, you tall devil. Quinn steps past the others and slips her thin arm around my waist and kisses my cheek. She smells like home. I have missed these people. The wind howls as it passes through our jam field. Severo's bionic eye glitters unnaturally. Quinn has brought me grav boots, ebony in colour. I slip them on. Mustang might have brought us from the rim, but we didn't come for her. We didn't come for Augustus. We came for you, Reaper. Severo snarls. Quinn frowns as Severo spits on the pretty carpet. We saw what you did to Cassius, and we want what you're trying to make. And that is? I ask, more than a little confused. What poor killers always want. War, he growls. And all its spoils. What of your father? He has a high place now. Fitchner is a shit-eater, he sneers. He's made his bed. Let him sleep in it while we burn the house down. Well, if you want war, if you want spoils, we better move. The arch-governor's the one with an army. Quinn nods. And Roke's down there, and Tactus. Tactus, Severo mutters, though I know the sneer on his face is for Roke. He watches Quinn, eyes sad for the smallest moment, before adjusting his armour. So what's the plan? I ask, and take the razor Pebble offers me. Severo and Quinn look at each other and laugh. Mustang's fetching a ship. She said you'd figure out the rest, Quinn says. 
Just then, the door behind me shudders and glows with a dilating pupil of red-hot metal, and I notice something. The bag that Severo threw down. It moves. Severo smiles at me. I know that smile. Severo? Reaper? What did you do? Mustang brought us a package. Let's just say... Quinn grins at my shoulder. It's not their cook. I unzip the bag and gawk. Are you mad? I ask him. He just howls. Chapter 18 Bloodstains Father once told me that a hell diver can never stop. You stop, and the drill can jam. The fuel burns too quickly. The quota might be missed. You never stop. Just shift drills if the friction gets too hot. Caution comes second. Use your inertia, your momentum. That is why we dance. Transfer movement into more movement. Uncle Nerol always told me to stop. He was wrong. Blew so many drill bits because of him. Then again, Nerol lived longer than father, so maybe he has a point. My howlers jump with me out the window, and we don't stop when we dive into the black storm. We freefall, piercing the clouds without the use of our grav boots, like black rain screaming toward the ground. I'm first. I feel them behind me. My howlers. The oxygen is thin at first. I hold my breath. My eyeballs nearly freeze in their sockets. Tears trickle out. My body shivers as the cold wind bites me. We use our grav boots now to cut across the citadel, skirt among the clouds to keep from sight. Villas beneath, buildings, gardens and parks, barracks and statued plazas. A ripwing cuts through the sky. We slide behind a spire and stick there like spiders till our scanners say he's passed. I shiver amid my armoured friends. Then we float down again, a kilometre from the villa. Weed carries Severo's present now. Slung around his back, it weighs him down a bit. I land on the wall that surrounds the villa and separates it from the other compounds, where the other notable families hunker in fear of what the night brings. It's warmer now that we're lower to the ground. Howlers land around me, looking like gargoyles on the wall. Darkness claims the villa's grounds. We're early, I wonder. No signs of fighting, but the lights are out. Or late, Severo says. If they were murdered in their beds, this is to look like a Bologna massacre. The Sovereign won't want to be implicated. But what does that even mean? The Bologna would come with greys, obsidians, golds, and despite all their vaunted honour, they would destroy every last woman and child with any means at their disposal. You do not let your foot off the throat of an enemy and remain powerful, as they have, for hundreds of years. The killing will be silent, though. The Sovereign may control the Citadel, but chaos would bring unwelcome eyes, unwelcome variables, and it would make her look weak. Better to have the act done. Better to say the Bologna did it and damn what anyone thinks.
With the Augustans dead, what is the point in mourning them? That's how Gauls think. But if they are alive, having escaped assassination, well, that's another thing entirely. Quinn. I lean close so I can hear her whisper. Visual is too clear. If they have optics, they'll spot us up on the wall. She points to the roof. We can make an incursion there, sweep down, level by level. I hear the worry in her voice. We'll get Roke, I say. Promise. I pat her arm. Severo, how long till we have the shuttle? Mustang is ten out. I pop my neck and rub the rain between my fingers. Peraspera ad astra. Through the thorns to the stars. Severo snickers. You fancy little fart. Omnis via lupus. Everyone a wolf. The howlers flash smiles to one another, and we rip away from the wall. We land on the roof, silent and dark. Weed stays on the high wall with Mustang's presence squirming in the bag. Predators, we stalk over clay tiles, in through a window on the villa's seventh level, two at a time. The place is a complex. Dozens of rooms, seven levels, fountains running throughout. Baths, basement, steam rooms. Their infrared is worthless, then. Too much hot water going through pipes. It's quiet as a crypt in here. We creep along, checking the bedrooms, flowing like water around one another as we did at the Institute. Severo and Thistle ghost ahead, scouting. Grav boots deactivated so the hum can't be heard. There's not a soul to be seen. Every room empty, beds unmade, including the arch-governors. The Augustans are not here. So where are they? They've no military armaments besides some armor and razors and a few pulse fists. The bodyguards were wiped out before they even returned to the villa. Augustus and his entourage couldn't have climbed the walls. Perhaps they flew away on grav boots. But they would have been spotted, shot down. We only slipped in because we're unexpected. Captured? Several asks. No. For the Praetorians tonight, the only good Augustine is a dead one. Pop. We all look at one another. A jam field has just gone up, a big one. We're inside it. Likely the whole villa complex is inside it. Something's about to happen. I glance out the window and see a shadow moving across the garden lawn. Three shadows in the rain. I duck and signal several. Praetorians. Ghost cloaks. My heart makes my ribcage rattle. He moves to the window, about to jump out to try to kill them. I pull him back. What the hell are you doing? I whisper. He scowls. I want to kill someone. Not yet, damn it. We're not an army. No one on the seventh level. We go down a circular marble stairwell. Their oiled armor creaks softly, echoing down the cavernous stairwell. We can see the marble of the first level more than a hundred feet beneath, but no movement. The first blood is found on the sixth level, seeping from the steam room. Pull the door open, heart throbbing into my throat.
ready to see mutilated golds. It's a sadder sight. More than twenty pinks, browns and violets thought to hide in this room. The Bologna and Praetorians found them, killed them. It's a queer sight, each death so clean. Jab wounds to the skull. Just shows how little chance these poor servants had. The golds put them down like cattle. I searched through them frantically, hoping not to find her, praying. She's not here. Theodora must be with the rest of them. A cold rage fills me. I feel it seep into the howlers. We find the first dead gold at the stairwell down to the fifth floor, an old knight of my house. His death was not pretty. We find another dead man farther on by a gravlift. He fell as if defending the lift while others descended. Out the window, I glimpsed the Augustan lancer who mocked my skills with the razor only a day ago. She rushes from the house to the gardens. A shape coalesces out of the darkness. A gold Praetorian with purple fringe to his black armor chases her down. Two Bologna obsidians hammer in, forcing her to turn straight into her pursuer. He kills her with one swing. Nothing to be done. Her death is so fast. One moment she is panting, fearing, running. The next, both parts of her fall to the ground. These Praetorians don't play with their food. Several mutters. Quinn looks at me, her eyes tracing the absence of armor or a helmet. She offers her own. I ignore her. Darrow, we didn't come all this way to watch you die of a blow to the head. Get off it, I say. Roke will write a thousand gory poems if you get so much as a bump on yours. Keep the helmet, Q, Severo begs, if only because I hate poems. I let my borrowed razor slither into my palm and move through the level. At the door of each room, my blood races. I expect to find Roke's corpse, expect to see Victor's mangled body. Severo holds up a hand at the fourth-floor stairwell and motions me forward. I slip toward him with Quinn and peer down. Dust rises up the circular stairwell. Beyond it, on the bottom-floor landing, shadows move. But there is no noise. Severo bends and places a piece of debris on the edge of a banister, gesturing me to watch. The howlers cluster round, staring at it, and I stiffen. Though there is no sound, the piece of debris rocks slightly. Vibrations in the building. Before Severo and the others can stop me, I jump over the banister and rip down the center of the spiral stairwell with ten times the velocity this moon's gravity would allow. Pop! I enter the domain of a second jam field, and sounds of war rattle over me. Concussive blasts, yelling, burners hissing out bullets, pulse weapons warbling like demented ghosts. The moment before I land, I tweak my grav boots, jerking myself to a powerful stop. I slap into the marble and swing my razor round my head in a violent loop. Four Praetorian greys die, eight thumps hitting the floor. Their ghost cloaks disintegrate like thin window frost against hot breath. Bodies strewn across the halls, Rubble, fires, greys and obsidians chase down Augustan golds. 
Six greys overwhelm two gulls with rail rifles, magnetic ammunition screaming into aegises till they overload and warp backward, consuming the gulls' left arms. Rounds slap into the pulse shields that cover their bodies, overloading the circuitry. The greys slip forward with practiced precision and shoot the gulls point-blank in their helmeted heads. The best armor in the solar system crumples inward, and the man and woman are gone. The greys turn in my direction, level their rifles, and my howlers cascade down around me. Their black aegises throb against the vambraces that cover their left forearms. They block the incoming fire. Severo slips from formation. Quinn follows. Ghosting, they flicker in and out of sight, moving as twin strands of smoke. Somehow they're among the greys, then back by my side before the greys fall. More weapon fire slams into our formation, nearly taking my naked head off. I duck behind my armoured fellows. Terror pumps through me. A grey pops into the hall and fires a micro-shot at us. Thirty tiny bombs spread out like a swarm of hornets. Thistle and Rotback blast the swarm apart with their pulse fist. A sheet of blue fire billows through the hall. A second swarm of bombs howls after the first. Quinn shunts off the power to her graph fist and shoots at the swarm of bombs just before they hit. They reverse course, back the way they came, where they slap into the grey squad and detonate. We won't last in here. Nothing will, I decide, when three Bologna obsidians lope into view, Carnus Au Bologna following at their heels. Some of my friends will die on this level if we fight all who come against us. There's a better way. A smarter way. Severo, make a hole, I shout, pointing seven stories above us, up the center gap in the stairwell. He shoots his pulse fist upward, and chunks of stone rain down around us, suspended by Quinn's grab fist. Severo shoots again, and water rains down through the hole, swirling in the gravity bubble Quinn created. I stand and yell, On me! We ascend out of the chaos before the Praetorians fall on us, I come to a halt two hundred metres above the villa. Wind whips. I had no plan when I dove down to the first level. I thought only of my friends. Now I know the howlers and I will be killed if we fight. I let my razor curl placidly around my arm. I instruct the howlers to do the same, and I roar into the darkness. Aja! The howlers close around me, nervous as we float exposed above the villa. The storm sends sheets of rain down on us. Aja! A horde of Praetorians disengage their ghost cloaks near the hot springs and lagoon, where the infrared is thrown into chaos by the heat of the water. Two Praetorians rocket up from the garden, cutting through pine trees. One a stained. He flies closer, leveling his iron fist at my head. Get that thing out of my gory damn face, you stained whelp! Don't you recognize your betters? A Praetorian gold joins him. I don't recognize the woman. Her serpent helm recoils into her purple-black armor, sleeker than the obsidians. Face sharp and ruthless as an axe head. Varga, heal! She snaps. The stained lowers his weapon. His helmet slides into his own Praetorian armor, and I discover Varga is a she. 
an obsidian, a head shorter than I, with a tribal tattoo consuming her pale face. White hair flutters behind her, more scars on her face than I have on my entire body. Ebony dog, Severo snaps. I'll shoot her if she snarls again. Were you the squad in the stairwell? The gold glances over us, unsure of what to make of me or my howlers. You killed my greys. Don't weep over greys, I say. They raised their hands against me. Why are you here? She wipes the rain from her face. The sovereign confined you to your room for the night. Are you responsible for the power outage? My business is the sovereign's. She can't afford not to believe me. She pauses a beat, and I realize she has optics in her eyes. She checks a database. Liar! The stain's weapon comes back up. You know who I am, Praetorian. I say with as much authority as I can muster. You also know I'm not on your list to kill. I have immunity. Revoked. So take me to Aja. Aja isn't here. Don't lie to me. Her optics flicker in her irises, and she receives a digital command. Follow me. We land on white stones, and follow the Praetorian through the trees, toward the lagoon where the hot springs terminate. What are you doing? Several whispers in my ear, eyeing Varga. He flips the woman the crux with his middle finger wrapped around the index. I'm using your leverage. Aja stands in the garden, flanked by Bologna. Two gold, the rest obsidian. Only the one stained, Varga. The lagoon breathes tendrils of steam around the Protean knight's shoulders. She watches the water impassively, like a child watching a campfire waiting for a log to burn. Darrow? Aja purrs without looking at me. You're not in your room. She sizes up the howlers, recognizes them. And you killed my men. Fitchner was wrong about you. I have something you'll want, I say sharply, but call off your dogs. They tried to escape before we came, even with their grav boots confiscated. Foolish attempt. They tried to contact the Julii, but they've been bought. Victra? I ask. She betrayed us. Alive, with the rest. She'll be spared thanks to her mother's cooperation. Two Augustan ships made an effort to run our blockade in orbit. We shut them down. The Augustans are like cornered badgers. Lions. I remind her. She flicks blood off her razor. Not quite. Are any still alive? I keep the panic from my voice and glance back at the villa. The prizes are... I breathe a sigh of relief. She lets her razor slither into her hand. It goes rigid, and she turns my way. Slitted pupils drink in the light. Your friends are in the lagoon. They hid there because our infrared is blinded by the pool's heat. A desperate last attempt. 
The air filtration systems on their helmets will have short-circuited from the EMP, so all they'll have is the air in their helmets. Not much of it either. They won't last fifteen minutes. Those who don't have helmets... Perhaps six minutes. Soon they'll bob up like apples. She smiles pleasantly. I'm saving them for Carnos. He's inside finishing up the diversions. He's a pleasure to watch, isn't he? Hot rain clatters on our armor. The only sound. Why are you here, Andromedus, and not in your room? Aja plays with her razor, slicing raindrops in half. The sovereign was very clear. I have something you'll want, I repeat. What I want is for Octavia to be obeyed. Fly back to your room, boy, and take a nice shower and fondle the rose we left in your bed. Drain your anger, or whatever this is, into her, and leave your oath whole. Do not raise a finger against me. You have killed Greys only. That is easily forgotten, yes? Return, and she will think this only a flight of youth. Stay, and I will add your corpse and those of your bronzy friends to the heap. The howlers bristle behind me. As you killed the servants, I ask heatedly, like goats for slaughter. Azure turns back to the pool. It's time you left, Reaper. You're disgusting. I step closer to her. All this power, and this is how you use it. Killing families in the middle of the gory damn night. Base fact is, you're a disgrace. I hope you remember the pain you brought others when I stand over your corpse. She turns on me in all her fury, razor snapping out, eyes gleaming. But she can't touch me. Not now. Not this night. Darrow, Severo calls with a sudden, odd pleasantness to his voice. Yes, Severo. All that talk about remembering. Aren't you forgetting something right now? I think he is, Quinn agrees, a wise but forgetful reaper, finishes Clown in a very frivolous fashion. Hmm. Apologies, Aja. I forgot what I even came here to tell you. I stand there looking flummoxed. Quinn sighs. The bag. Oh, yes! Thank you for reminding me, Severo, I cry theatrically. Azure doesn't know what the hell to make of this sudden banter. Tell Weed to get down here. Severo speaks into his calm, and a moment later Weed disengages his ghost cloak and flies from the wall a kilometre distant. We watch him approach. Pebble whistles a merry tune, earning a scowl from Harpy and a chuckle from Severo who picks it up as well. The Praetorians think they are insane. Wolf pelts hanging from their backs, black custom armor, wolf helmets, and no one over two meters except for Quinn and me. 
It's like a violet traveling circus. What are you playing at? Aja demands. Has no one ever bartered with you? I ask, surprised. More's the pity. Weed lands in front of me and hands me the bag several gave me as a present. Azure asks what's in the bag. Order your men in the villa to stop the killing and I will tell you. I don't negotiate with boys, Azure says. I nudge the bag lightly with my boot, showing Azure that whatever is inside is alive. She frowns, and perhaps she begins to understand what it is. She speaks in her calm for her men to stand down. What's in the gory damn bag? I open it up and pull out the heir to the morning throne like he's a freshly caught rabbit. Lysander's hands and feet are bound gently and a silk scarf has been tied over his mouth to keep him from making noise. I untie it. Hello, Aja, he says. Aja lunges at him. I pull him backward. Ah-ah! Uh -uh. I hold my razor to the boy's neck, letting it curl around, just as the affectionate oracle wrapped itself around my wrist. Aja freezes. Her Praetorians watch quietly, black helmets and purple capes making them shadows. The Fubalona takes steps forward. Aja motions them back. Next person that moves, I cut them down. How did they get you, Lysander? Your guards? It was Mustang, he says. Came to say hello. Cut open my window and gave me to the howlers. Have you been hurt? Your turn to speak is at an end, Aja, I interrupt. You will let my house members rise from the pool. You will let them board the shuttle I have inbound. You will tell the ripwings and fighters in the sky and space above Luna to let us pass or I will have my howlers kill the boy. You promised to protect the sovereign, Aja whispers, and you do this. He's a boy. He's helpless. It's part of the game, Lysander says very seriously. You play it too, Aja. We're all on the board. You see, he's less helpless than the servants you slaughtered tonight, Quinn replies, Less than those your father burned on Rhea. But he's one of yours. So, of course you care. You would kill a family to ensure the safety of your sovereign, I say coldly. I would kill a child to ensure the safety of my friends. Speak again, and I take his left hand. She knows I would kill the boy. I know I would not. I'm not Carnus not Evie or Harmony, despite what I'd have these golds think. So even if they called my bluff, I would balk. Anyway, the moment I kill him, they kill everyone I know. The murder would be in vain. This is exactly why I build my reputation as a killer, to leverage in situations like these. If they knew my heart, they'd kill my friends one by one. This is a gamble. I gamble on pride of two sorts. The first pride is that the Sovereign will not let me kill her only grandson, whom she trained from childhood to take her place when the time comes. The second sort of pride 
is that deep down she will believe it no great loss if Augustus and his family escape today. She has the will and the means to hunt us to the ends of the system. Why call my bluff and risk having her grandson die? I know this because of how she killed her father, not outright, but only when she had the support of all his former followers, only when they asked her to rise up against the tall tyrant and rule in his stead. A woman like her has patience. If the sovereign told me to do my worst, if she shouted to kill the boy and suffer the consequences, that would be foolhardy. A blunt, brutish demonstration of power, as if saying, Take my grandson, you cannot hurt me. No, instead she will feign weakness. Let me have this victory, and then bring eternal ruin on me and mine. Fair enough. We'll play that game another day. A ship roars overhead. A stork, built to deploy men in starshells to drop points, but slower than molasses sliding uphill. The bay doors open two hundred meters up, as I instructed. So long as we have the boy, the ship's speed doesn't matter a lick. Of course, Mustang planned that. We're going to fetch our people now, Aja. Let your men know they're to do nothing to impede us. Aja just stares at me, watching like a taunted panther in a zoo, eyes silent, horrible, as if willing the bars between us to disappear. Severo, Thistle, check the villa. See if anyone managed to survive. They shoot away. Quinn, guard the boy. The rest of you, get the arch-governor and his retinue out of the pool. You'll want to call off the rip-wings, I say to Aja. They blink in the darkness, kilometers above. Too much noise and this whole thing will turn into a nightmare for all of us. The sovereign massacring a house, but the house escapes. What a dastardly testament to her hunger, her impotence. What a debacle that might cause. I smirk at her. Why? I fear some houses might rally around the offended house. Some may fear they too will be snuffed out like candles in the night. What would happen to the poor Pax Solaris then? Quinn stays with me, fingers twitching toward her weapons as Aja obeys my commands. I keep my hand on the boy as the other howlers splash into the water and emerge with members of House Augustus clinging to them, soaked and gasping for air, some in formal wear, some in armor, most without helmets. They were sharing oxygen, it seems. Augustus holds on to Harpy's back. The jackal holds on to Clown's arm. Pliny hangs on to his feet. Where are my friends? The howlers deposit the survivors into the bay of the hovering stork, high above, and return to fetch the rest. Victra is the next they bring out. She's helmetless and wounded on her neck, but she clings to her razor as though it were the thing carrying her aloft. Her eyes strafe the gathered Praetorians wrathfully, and when they find me, they spark against mine like bits of flint. Her anger falls away for a moment, and I see a smile of joy, then it's gone.
and she shouts, I will remember you all with great joy, she laughs madly. Starting with you, Aja Algrimus, I will make a coat of your hide. She disappears into the belly of the craft overhead. Roke is the next one borne aloft. Theodora is with him. I say a quiet prayer of thanks. Quinn touches my shoulder and gives him a wave. His thin face bursts into a smile at the sight of her. He doesn't even notice me. Then he's gone too, landing in the back of the ship. Thistle soon joins us from the manor, helping along several survivors, including the Telemannus and Tactus, who bleeds from a dozen holes in his gold armor. He put up a nasty fight. Darrow, he cries, you mad bastard. He sees the sovereign's son and cackles gleefully. Oh, that's ripe, that's ripe. I owe you a drink, my goodman. His voice fades away as he slips higher in the sky, though he managed to throw his fingers into the crux and wave them in Aja's direction. Tactus, Lysander whispers. He's taller than in hollows. That's the last of them, Severo says to me. Tell your master we of Mars do not bow so easily, I say to Aja. The rain beats down between us, dripping over her dark face so her eerie eyes blaze in the night. She breaks the silence I imposed on her. That is what the governor of Rhea said when my Ashlord came to put down his rebellion. Her voice does not sound like her own. It's as though someone speaks through her. He looked at the thin man I sent with the armada, and he laughed, and asked why he should bow to me, the bitch patricide of a dead tyrant. The sovereign is speaking in Aja's ear, through her calm, with Aja repeating the words. My blood runs cold. The governor of Rhea sat upon his ice throne in his famed glass palace and asked one of my servants, Who are you to breathe fear into a man such as I? I who have descended from the family that carved heaven from a place where once there was nothing but a hell of ice and stone. Who are you to make me bow? Then he struck the Ash Lord here under the eye with his scepter. Go home to Luna. Go home to the core. The outer reach is for creatures of sterner spines. The governor of Rhea did not bow. Now his moon is ash. His family is ash. He is ash. So run, Darrow, our Andromedus. Run home to Mars, for my legions will follow you to the ends of this universe. I hope so, I say. You have one bargaining chip, the sovereign through Aja reminds me. My grandson is your safe passage. If he dies, I wipe your ship from the sky. Spend him wisely, 
Why is she telling me something I already know? It's time to go, Darrow. Quinn leans into my shoulder. She sets a hand on my low back as if to remind me I am not alone. I nod to her. She covers my retreat as I rise upward with the boy, razor slithering around his neck. Quinn eyes the Praetorians warily and rises to follow. I have one bargaining chip. What did the Sovereign mean by that? Was she reminding me that I could spend it only once? Only kill Lysander if my back was to the wall? Then I see why, as Azure looks at Quinn rising from the ground as a cat looks at a mouse. Azure, no! Lysander yells. Quinn! I shout. In a flash, Aja lunges forward, quicker than any cat ever born. She grabs Quinn's hair. Frantically, Quinn brings her razor around to fend the giant woman off, but she's too slow. Aja slams her head into the ground with her left hand, punches her temple, armored fist on bone. Four times before I can even blink. Quinn's legs kick and twitch and she curls inward like a dying spider, contorting from seizures. Aja backs away, watching me with a smile. Chapter 19 Stork They know I am rash. Quinn is bait. Aja is the hook. They'll take Lysander if I bite and attack Aja. They'll use the split second my razor's away from him to stun or kill me. I hear the weapons primed behind me, so I keep the razor to the little boy's throat. Tears distort my vision as I float there impotently. I shake my head as the agony wells. I can't leave her. Reversing my boots, I return to pick her from the ground. But before I can reach her, another gold flashes past me, descending from above, this one without armor, to scoop her from the ground and bear her aloft. The Jackal. I shoot up and away, through the rain, into the bay doors, and land inside the stork. My boots clank on the metal deck and I kneel, shoving Lysander forward into the bay toward Severo. The boy sprawls to his knees. Several dozen dripping Augustans stare at me. They turn their eyes to the boy. The Jackal follows, clutching Quinn awkwardly with one arm. Our ship rises, and the doors hiss closed behind us. Roke pushes through the others to see me. Then his eyes go to the jackal, to Quinn, strength slipping from him with each second. The jackal sets Quinn gently on the ground and kicks off the ill-fitting grav boots he borrowed from one of the howlers. Roke's mouth works. No sound comes out. Is she... He murmurs finally. Are there any yellows on board? The jackal asks me. I look to Harpy. I point Harpy toward the main cabins. Find Mustang. Ask her. She sprints off. The medkit. The jackal snaps, feeling Quinn's pulse. He checks her pupils. No one moves. Now! Roke stumbles up to find it. 
Pebble rips it off the wall and tosses him the kit. He brings it back to the jackal. Mind turned to static, I stare down at Quinn as another seizure racks her body and an inhuman sound rattles from her nose and mouth. Rogue's face is bloodless beside me. His hands reach helplessly for the girl he loves, as though his will alone can mend what was broken. But inside he knows he is powerless. He sinks to his knees. The jackal opens the med kit and rifles through its contents. His single hand moves confidently over the devices inside till they find a silver bar no larger than my index finger. He snatches it and activates the device. It hums softly, emitting a faint blue light. I need someone's data pad. Mine was fried in the EMP. No one moves. The girl will die. A gory damn data pad. Now! I hand him mine. He doesn't look up at me, though he pauses a second when he sees my distinctive hands. Thank you for the rescue, Reaper, he says hastily. Thank your sister. Lysander rises and comes to my side. He watches quietly, no tears in his eyes. Pebble and Clan sit on their heels. No one touches Roke, though they glance at him, hands clutched on knees or razors, whispering whatever prayers to luck gold's whisper. The jackal moves the silver magnetic resonance imager over Quinn's head, watching the hologram on my datapad. He curses. What is it? Roke asks. The jackal hesitates. Her brain is swelling. If we can't control the pressure, we have a problem. He fumbles with the medical equipment and unwinds a machine with a transparent cord. That pressure will deprive the brain of proper blood flow. It will starve itself as the vessels tighten under the swelling. Is she going to die? I ask. Not from swelling, the jackal says. Not if I can drain the fluid and release the pressure as it builds. But we'll need to get her head tilted so the blood can flow through the neck veins. Keep blood pressure steady. Get her a supply of O2. He looks up. So thin and wet, I'd think him a red instead of a gold, were it not for the dusty hair. Pebble, isn't it? Find her oxygen. A breathing mask will do, so long as it doesn't cover her face past her forehead. Pebble slips away. A fresh seizure contorts Quinn's body. I look on helplessly, and set my hand on Roke's shoulder. He flinches against the touch. Harpy slides back into the room. No slagging yellows. Shit, Clan swears. Shit, 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 shit. He kicks the wall. The jackal pauses, glances at Rogue, then acts. He points to Clown, Harpy, and several house members. I need someone for each of her arms and her head. She's going to keep seizing, and for some reason I suspect this is going to be a bumpy ride. We're going to move her out of this damn bay and hold her down for the surgery. He pulls her hair back into a ponytail, asks me to hold it, and pulls a small ionizer from the med kit. He squeezes it with his teeth over his hand, wincing as it destroys bacteria and dry skin follicles. Clown, get her hair, all of it. The jackal stands and tosses the ionizer to Clown, who bends and is about to scan it over Quinn's golden hair 
when Rogue takes it from his grasp. He hovers over Quinn, unable to move. What's your name? The jackal asks Rogue. Quinn. Talk to her. Tell her a story. Trembling slightly, Rogue sniffs and speaks quietly to Quinn. Once, in the days of old earth, there were two pigeons who were greatly in love. He toggles the ionizer and moves his hand. It is intimate, like he's bathing her. Just the two of them in some far-off place. Long before she told stories by the campfires of the Institute. Long before the horror. I smell hair burning as the jackal stands and comes to me. What happened down there? He asks. Was it a pulse fist? I look at him in surprise. You didn't see. Aja used her hands. Gory hell. His jaw tightens, dull eyes taking in the scene. How did we come to this? Octavia was set on this path all along, I say quietly. Before we even came to Mars, she intended to give the Bologna the arch governorship. The gala was a trap. When did you discover this? Before or after the duel? Before, I lie. Well played. Makes us seem the victim. I see Mustang failed in her task. Did your father send her to infiltrate Octavia's court? No. I imagine it was her own idea. Draw close to the dragon. The Julii are against us too. He nods thoughtfully. Makes sense. Politicos tried to take Victor from us before Carnus and Aja came. You don't seem worried. Victor is her mother's favorite daughter. He shakes his head, remembering something. But she took three obsidians on for me. Three. She's with us, body and mind. I watch Roke finish removing Quinn's hair. Will she live? I ask quietly. She has bone fragments in her brain tissue. Even if we stop the swelling, she's hemorrhaging. Badly. We look down at Quinn. Her head bald now, face peaceful. Only small contusions on the side of her skull. You'd never guess she was dying inside. Roke strokes her forehead so gently, whispering soft things. Can you save her? I turn to the jackal. Is there a chance? Not here. If you get us to a med bay, then yes, there's a prime chance. Roke sings a soft song to her as they lift her body to move to another room. The song is one he made around the campfire as my army ate in the highlands. Quinn was with Cassius then, as it seems all women are at one time or another. But even then, I noticed her eyes met Roke's. They are the messenger pigeons from this story, crossing again and again in the sky. How excited he was to be reunited with her. I crack inside. I can still save her. I can fix this. The Sovereign was right. I misunderstood my own bargaining power. 
What was I going to do? Kill her grandson if Aja killed Quinn? What if she killed several? Mustang? Roke? I'm lucky she didn't hurt more of them. I turned to see several. He stands quietly in his armour watching us. Watching Roke hold the girl several loves, but is never told. The girl he could never have. The pain is raw and etched deep into the lines of his hawkish face. Impervious Severo, immune to hurt, to sadness, to having his eye gouged out by Lilith, the jackal's lieutenant. It all falls on him now. Quinn never called Severo goblin like the rest of us. Victor puts a hand on his shoulder, noticing the pain, if not understanding why it's there. He shoves her hand off. I don't know you, he snarls. Victor backs away. Sorry? What are you waiting for, Reap? He demands. We're not off this rock yet. He jerks his head. I follow, asking Victor to bring the Sovereign's boy. Severo and I climb a ladder and meet Tactus in the narrow corridor that leads to the passenger hold and the flight cabin. Oi, Goodman, Tactus calls, favouring his injured shoulder. Wet hair dangles over laughing eyes, his voice is loud, unmindful of Quinn's condition. Next time you're planning something dramatic, tell us you're coming so we don't go pissing our pants. I push past him. Not now, Tactus. Ever the bore. He eyes Severo. Looky, looky. Goblin. If possible, you've shrunk even further, my goodman. Severo doesn't smile. We enter the passenger hold, where the Augustans and Howlers buckle themselves into bucket seats in preparation for breaching the atmosphere. Tactus follows at our heels. Hello, psychos. Tactus calls to the Howlers. Pleasure to see your diminutive forms yet again. Especially you, Pebble. Eat shit, Pebble says, looking up from helping buckle one of Augustus's young nephews into his seat. Tactus leans into me when we're past the passenger hold. Good friends to come and rescue you. Thought they were scattered to the rim. Were, Severo says. What brought you back? Tactus asks. The weather? Severo says nothing. Tactus laughs, despite the numerous holes in his armour. Just how you like em, eh, Tarot? Friends who will risk life and limb to always be in your shadow. He nudges me a bit too playfully, leaving faint smears of his blood on me. We come to the flight cabin's closed door. Tactus winces as he bumps a bulkhead with his shoulder. Severo trails behind him. How's the shoulder? I ask. Better than that girl's head back there. Quinn, wasn't it? The fast one from House Mars. Aja slagged her good. Pity. I'd have taken her for a... Severo kicks Tactus in the balls from behind, foot going between legs hard enough to dent metal. He elbows him in the side of the head, sweeps his legs in swift cravat form. Three more strikes to the ears before Tactus hits the ground. 
Severo puts one knee into Tactus's shoulder wound, a forearm against Tactus's throat, the other knee to Tactus's groin, and his free hand dangles a knife over Tactus's eyeball. Talk about Quinn again, and I'll cut your balls off and jam them in your eye sockets. Brother always said, keep your eye on the ball. Tactus gags out. The metal cabin door hisses open. Augustus fills the frame. He stares down at the scene just as Victor brings Lysander forward from the aft of the ship. They're almost done, my liege, I say. I step over Tactus and Severo to join the arch-governor in the cabin. Victor does the same, except she steps on Tactus, grinding her heels. Prime work, she says to Severo. Slag off, cow. Who is the little one? She asks me as we slip into the cabin and close the door. I tell her. The Rage Knight's son? Nasty little man. I don't think he likes me. Don't take it personally. The cockpit is larger than my room in the Citadel's villa. An array of lights ring the pilot and co-pilot chairs. Mustang sits to the left, a blue pilot to the right. The blue is jacked into the ship. A blue light glows under the dermis of her left temple. Mustang flies, right hand in a holographic control prism, speaking quickly with the blue. At the curved viewport, Earth hovers. Augustus, Pliny, and comically stooped Cavax Aotelemanus discuss our options behind Mustang. It is quiet. Well done, Darrow, Augustus says, without looking back to me, though you could have chosen a better ship. Mustang interrupts. What's going on back there? They said someone was hurt. Quinn is dying, I say. We have to get her to a med bay, fast-like. Even when we hit orbit, we're thirty minutes from our fleet, Mustang says. Fly faster. The ship trembles as Mustang and the Blue push it hard. It was a good plan, Kavak says, beaming down at Mustang. It was a good plan, Virginia, infiltrating the Sovereign's household, just like when you were a girl. The time you and Pax hid in the shrubbery to listen to your father's counsel, except Pax was bigger than the shrub. He booms a laugh that startles the quiet Blue. Mustang reaches back to squeeze his forearm, hands smaller than his elbow. He preens like a hound, with a pheasant in its jaws, looking around to see if we all noticed her compliment. She's got away with men bigger than bears. The love on the man's face makes Augustus's own disinterest monstrous, and even worse, thinking about the jackal killing this man's son makes me sick. Mustang spares me the slightest glance, her hair bound behind her head, the memory of a smile still creasing the corners of her lips, and it's like I've been punched in the heart. There's no smile for me, and the horse ring no longer graces her finger. There's silence for a long moment. Augustus turns to look at me. I assume Octavia attempted to bring you into her fold as well, 
she attempted. Slug herself. Bet you told her to go slug herself, eh, boy? Kavax booms. He slaps my shoulder, knocking me into Victra. Sorry. He's bent like a hothouse tree grown too small for its roof. Water drips from his red-forked beard. Sorry, he repeats to Victra. Actually, Lord Telemannus, I thought her off attempting. She manages to treat her lances with respect, unlike others. Augustus wastes no time with banter. We'll amend that. I owe you a debt, Darrow, provided we make it to my fleet. You owe it to Mustang and the Howlers as much as me, I say. What is a Howler? he asks. My friends in the black armor. Severo's the leader. Severo. That wretched little thing that was atop my lancer, yes? The arch-governor raises an eyebrow. Thought I recognized him. Fitchner's boy. His tone sits poorly with me. The one that killed that Priam brat in the passage. He's with us, my liege, loyal as my own hands. The door hisses open, and Severo and Tactus join us. We all turn to look. Severo recoils slightly. What? he challenges. Tactus scoots off to the side, away from Severo. Does your loyalty lie with me or with your father, Severo? Augustus asks. What father? I'm a bastard's bastard. Severo looks the arch-governor up and down sceptically. And all due respect, my liege, I could give a cat's frozen piss about you too. Your daughter brought me from the rim. My allegiance is to her. But above all, it's to Reaper. That's it. Mind your manners, you little puppy! Kavax growls. You must be Pax's father. Sorry he went. He's a man I might have died for. But I see he got his good looks from his mother. Kavax isn't sure if he's been insulted. Augustus observes this. Darrow, I owe you an apology. You were right. Loyalty, it seems, can extend beyond the Institute. Now, Lysander. Augustus glances out the shuttle's viewport. We rise steadily. He kneels to speak with the boy. I've heard tell that you are an exceptional lad. I am, my liege, Lysander says as firmly as he can. They test me regularly, and I train in all manners of studies. I rarely lose in chess, and when I do, I learn as I ought. Do you now? I had a son like you once, Lysander, but I'm sure you knew that. Adrius Augustus, Lysander says, knowing the lineage. No. Augustus shakes his head. No, my younger son isn't like you at all. The boy frowns. Then the elder, Claudius Augustus. Mustang glances back. Yes, Augustus nods. A kind, special boy with a lion's heart. Better than me, kinder, a ruler. He spares a strange, meaningful glance at me. You would have been friends. 
Lysander tries to look dignified. What happened to him? They left that part out, eh? Well, a large young man from the house Bologna, by the name of Carnus, took liberties with a certain young woman my son was courting. My son took umbrage and challenged Carnus to a duel. In the end, when my boy was broken and bleeding, Carnus kneeled, cupped my son's head, he puts one hand around Lysander's head, and smashed it on the cobbled stones till it broke open and all his specialness dripped out. He pats the boy on the cheek. Let's hope you never have to see such a thing. Is that your plan for me, my liege? Lysander asks bravely. I'm only a monster when it is practical, Augusta smiles. I don't think I will have to be this time. You see, we're just trying to get home. So long as your grandmother permits our passage, then you will be safe. Grandmother says you're a liar. Ironic. You will tell her we've treated you well, I hope. If I am well treated. Fair enough. Augustus touches the boy's shoulder and stands. Victor, take him to the passenger hold. Victor glowers. Of course Augustus chooses the only woman but Mustang. Tactus notices her reaction and steps forward. My die, my liege. I've not seen my own brothers in some time. I wouldn't mind talking with the lad. Augustus nods as if to say he doesn't care. Victor thanks Tactus, surprised by his gesture. He winks at her, punches my shoulder, and pats Lysander roughly on the head, almost knocking him down. I'd hate to know his brothers. Come, tiny one, tell me, have you ever been to a pearl club? He asks, leading him away. The girls and boys there are spectacular. The ponderous stalk climbs higher and higher. In two minutes, we'll hit the edge of the atmosphere. They tried to kill me as I slept, Augustus murmurs. She knows I will not forgive this. She'll come to Mars, I say. Is there no chance for amends to be made? Pliny asks. Amends? Mustang snarls. Make amends with the woman who burned a moon, Pliny. Are you an idiot? Peace will preserve your line, my liege, more than war. Set yourself against the sovereign, and what hope can there be? Pliny is no fool with rhetoric. Her fleets are vast, her money's endless. Your name, your honour, no matter how great, cannot stand beneath the weight of the society. My liege, you raised me to your side because of my worth, because you trusted my advice. Without you, I am nothing. Your care is all I value. So heed my advice now, if you still hold it in regard, and do not let this wound against the sovereign fester. 
do not let war come of this. Remember Rhea, yes, and how it burned. Preserve your honoured family with peace by any means. Augustus raises his voice. When the sovereign pushed against me, I bent like gold should, with grace, with dignity. But now she cuts at me, and beneath the grace, beneath the aplomb, a knife will strike iron. We make for Mars, and for war. We're reaching the low atmosphere, Mustang says. Hold on. What is that light? Severo asks. The blinking one, over the altimeter. The blue snaps an answer. The cargo bay door is opening, Dominus. The cargo bay? I frown. Can you override it? No, Dominus, I'm locked out. Why would the cargo bay door be... He volunteered, Mustang says, voice panicked. Tactus volunteered. No, I snarl, startling everyone but Mustang. We realized it at the same time. Several, Victor, on me. I wheel around and sprint out of the cabin doors, head ducked as I move as fast as I can toward the back of the ship. Prepare for evasive action, I hear Mustang say back in the cabin. What's happening? Pliny whines. Tactus! I bellow. Victor and Severo run at my heels. The other howlers and house members call to me, confused as I sprint through the passenger bay. Screwface unbuckles his crash belt. He went past with the boy. Down! I say, shoving him in a seat. Everyone stay seated! Tactus wouldn't. He couldn't. But why the hell not? Why would I ever assume he wouldn't do what's best for him? It's in his nature. We slide down railings to the storage level, past the room where the jackal operates on Quinn. I shove open the door to the cargo hold, and I'm greeted by the howling of wind. The hatch hangs open to show darkness wounded by city lights far beneath. Clown and an Augustus Lancer lie unconscious, bleeding. They slide slowly toward the open bay door. As for Tactus, he's nothing but a distant dot in the darkness. I cannot see him clearly, but I know what he has taken. Lysander. Severo! I grip my friend's shoulder. Stop! He's seething. Looks like he wants to jump out of the back of the ship and follow Tactus into the air. He can't. It's too late. Instead... We catch the two unconscious golds before they slip down the open ramp. Victor shuts it at the control panel. The door hisses closed. He doesn't have any communications gear, Victor says breathlessly. Not after the EMP. Doesn't need the gory damn gear. Several points to Clown's naked feet. The bastard has grav boots. As soon as he hits the rip-wing scanners, he'll be picked up. I do the math. We have two minutes till they send boarding parties. Chapter 20 Helldiver I should have known what Tactus would do. He killed his first Primus, Tamara, in the Institute. He only ever followed strength, only ever sought victory. I knew he was a beast, 
but I thought he was my beast. I thought I could trust him. No, I thought I could change him. I cursed myself. Arrogant fool. I stalk back to the cockpit, where Augustus addresses the blue pilot. Pilot, will you be able to take us clear? No, Dominus. Geomet models don't show a probability of escape. Her response is fittingly blue, emotionally distant, efficient and declarative. Her body is thin, faintly avian, like she's made of all twigs, neck long, bald head slightly smaller, eyes large and as uncannily azure as the digital tattoos of her skull. When she moves, it's as though she's submerged in water. Asteroid-born, judging by her flat accent. What is the likely scenario? They will destroy our engines with rip-wing fire, precipitating a hull breach that will kill all aboard. Alternatively, precipitating a leechcraft assault, capturing all aboard. Or they'll just blast us from the gory sky. Several adds. Blue, deliver me to my ship, and you will receive command of a frigate, Augustus offers. I would prefer a cruiser, she notes. A cruiser, then? Very well. The blue adjusts several knobs. I will fly well, but the paradigm must be altered before they engage our vessel, if we are to survive. The stork climbs toward the edge of Luna's atmosphere. This ship is a big-bellied beast, fat with storage room, because all they're meant to do is birth soldiers out of the tubes in their guts. Men like me would tear her apart with our rip wings. We used ships like this at the Academy to launch men in star shells at enemy asteroid bases. Friction fire wreathes the ship. If the hull is breached, hold your breath, Domini, the pilot instructs. We don't have sufficient survival helmets aboard. Victra frowns. Our lungs will explode if we do that. Then exhale, the blue replies, and have thirty secs of life while eardrums explode and blood vessels swell like inflated balloons. I will hold my breath. Severo looks back at me, wide-eyed. I hate space. You hate everything. We pop clear of Luna's atmosphere. The fire fades and we slip into open space, where the Armada's capital ships glide like behemoths of Europa's deep sea. Gun turrets dot their hides like barnacles, and hangar bays slice their undersides like great gills. Commercial ships float slowly along the shipping lanes. Rip wings and wasps go about their patrols. None pay heed to our presence except those that escort us from Luna. The Sovereign would not broadcast this. Time ticks away. There is nowhere to flee. We thought to pass just under the guns of the Scepter Armada when we had Lysander. But now we'll have to run the gauntlet. Our pilot is calm as metal. She said the paradigm must change. What can I do? Think. Think. We will open communications to one of the ships, Augustus says. Bribe them into sheltering us. Every man has a price. We're jammed. Can't even broadcast, Mustang reminds him. 
We're going to die. We all know it. Augustus doesn't panic or surrender resolve. I don't know how I thought he'd handle death. Maybe I hoped he would wail about and turn pale. But for all his faults, he is stalwart. After a moment, he sets a bony hand on Mustang's shoulder. She flinches, surprised. Whether missile or boarding craft come, die like golds, Augustus says solemnly to us. Not because he wishes us to think him strong in his last moments, but because he believes in what he is, a superior being, a master of his human frailties. For him, death is merely the ultimate frailty. Humans whimper when they die. They claw for life even if there is no hope. He will not. Death is not grander than his pride. Golds in many ways are so like reds. Helldivers go to their deaths for their families, for the pride of their clan. They do not whimper when the mines collapse around them or when the pit vipers come from the shadows. They fall, and their friends weep and sweep their bodies aside. But we have the veil to look forward to. What of the gulls? When they perish, their flesh withers, and their name and deeds linger till time sweeps them away. And that is all. If anyone should claw for life now, it should be the Aureate. I claw because I carry the torch of something that must not die, must not go out. That is why I grab Severo on the shoulder and, with a horrible, eerie laugh, tell the pilot to take us closer to the deadliest ship in orbit, one which now has angled itself to intercept us. Take us near the vanguard, I repeat to the blue. That would cause our chances of survival to decrease by... Never tell me the odds, just do it, I command. Everyone turns and looks at me, not because I've said something strange, but because they've been waiting to turn and look at me. They've all been silently praying I would marshal a plan, even Augustus. Eo said people would always look to me. She believed I had some quality, some essence that gave hope. I rarely feel it in myself. There is none in me now, just dread. Inside I feel such a boy, angry, Petulant, selfish, guilty, sad, alone. And yet they look to me. I almost break underneath their gaze, almost wither away and ask someone else to take the reins. I can't do it. I'm small. I'm just a liar in a carved body. But that dream must not be extinguished. So I act, and they watch. You gone space mad? Victor asks. When they realize we don't have the boy, draw an angle toward the vanguard's bridge, Mustang tells the blue. Augustus gives me a curt nod, guessing what I plan. Ic sunt leones. Ic sunt leones, I echo, saving my last look for Mustang, not the man who hanged my wife. She doesn't notice. I leave the bridge with Severo at a dead sprint. Something hits our ship. Her hull shudders. They know we don't have Lysander. Howlers, get up, I shout. 
Harpy throws up her hands. I thought you said, Up! I roar. Red secondary lights bathe the launch bay in bloody hues as Severo and I load ourselves into the cold star shells. It takes two howlers each to help us slip into the robotic carapaces. I lie in the armor as Harpy buckles my feet into the stirrups and closes the armored legs over my meat and bones. The howlers are fast in their movements, even as the ship lurches with another near missile strike. A siren howls, reporting a hull breach. I try to slow my breath as Victra fits my head into the starshell's helmet. Good luck. She leans her face close. Before I can stop her, she presses her lips to mine. I do not recoil. Not this close to death. I let her lips part and cling warm and comforting around mine. Then the human moment is over and she's gone, lowering the massive visor of my helmet. My howlers howl and hoot at the sight. I can't help but wish it was Mustang who sealed me in this tin can and kissed me goodbye. But then the digital display owns my vision, and I disappear from my friends into the metal launch tube. I'm alone and scared. Focus. I'm cocooned, belly down in the spit tube. This is where most would piss themselves, separated from friends, from the warmth of life. There's no gravity in the tube. It isn't pressurized. I hate the weightlessness of it. I can't look up or my neck will break when they launch me. I can't move side to side. My star shell is latched into a thousand tooth-like magnetic hooks. They click into place like tiny insects, chattering. In moments they'll shoot me into space. My breath rasps, my heart rattles against my sternum. I drink in my body's terror and smile. They said this was suicide at the academy when I wanted to launch myself. Maybe they were right. But this is why I was made. To dive into hell. I'm a beetle of a man in a carapace of metal, weapons, and engines that cost more than most ships. I've got a pulse cannon on my right arm. When I need it, it will bloom like a hemanthus blossom. I think of the time Eo laid a hemanthus before my front door, the time I plucked one from the wall on the night that I was supposed to win the laurel. How far away those warm days seem from this cold place, where petals are metal instead of soft like silk. We're getting pinned in. Boarding party's imminent. Mustang's voice comes over the comm. Priming your launch. The ship moans as another missile almost claims us. Our shields are shot, just the rickety hull holding us together. Aim true, I say. Always. Darrow. Her silence says a thousand things. I'm sorry. I tell her. Good luck. This is not fun, Severo groans. The ship's hydraulic system hisses and the metal teeth jerk me forward in the tube, loading me into the chamber. Inches before my head, the magnetic stream of the railgun hums dreadfully, daring me to glance its way. They say that many gulls can't take this that even Peerless can panic and scream and cry in the spit-tube. I believe it. Pixies would have heart attacks right now. 
Some cannot even ride in a spaceship for fear of small places and the vastness of space. Soft-bellied fools. I was born in a home smaller than the cargo bay of this ship. I made my life at the end of a claw drill that makes this tube look like a child's toy, all while sweating and pissing my soul away in a fry suit cobbled together from scrap. Still, there's the terror. Watch how a pit viper strikes, my son. Father once clutched me by my wrist and made me play this game. Watch it coil upward and upward till it reaches its crest. Don't move before then. Don't strike out with your sling blade. If you do, then it'll get you. It'll kill you. Move just when it's coming down. Do that with the terror in life. Don't act till you're as scared as you'll get. Then... He snapped his fingers. I'm at that point when the music of the machines takes hold. The clicks and the clacks, the hisses and the hums reverberate through the hull. A countdown begins. Ready over there, goblin? I ask Severo over the comm. Cacatni Ursus in Silvus? Does a bear shit in the woods? The ship spins and shudders. More sirens howl. Latin now. Audentes fortuna juvat. Several chuckles. Fortune favors the bold. You deserve to die if that's really going to be the last thing you say in this life. Yes? Well, you may suck my... My heart sticks to its downward beat. The metal teeth jerk me forward into the tube's magnetic stream. And it happens. Even through my suit... G-forces hit me like the backhand of the obsidian's thunder god. My vision flickers black, stomach rises into throat, lungs constrict, blood slows in my veins. I snap forward. Lights flicker in my eyes. I don't see the walls of the tube I'm shot through. I don't even see the ship that brought me here. I see Eo's face in the darkness. I black out. Bodies can't take this. Too fast. Darkness. Then the darkness has holes. Stars. There's no meantime. One second I'm on the ship, the next I'm ripping through the deep of space at ten times the speed of sound. Many shit their suits at this point. It's not a fear thing. It's biology and physics. The human body can only take so much. Mickey the Carver made sure mine could take just a little bit more. I hope Severo's can too. I rip soundlessly through space. Trust that Severo is near me. Can't see him, even on the sensors. All too fast. Toward the greatest ship in the Scepter Armada. The one we should avoid. It all happens in six seconds. Emergency missiles streak past us. The gunners see us now, know what's happening, but we're not using thrusters so the missiles can't lock. Flak can't detonate on so short a fuse. The unspent canisters fly past us, nearly hitting me. Our pilot took a perfect shot. Railguns miss us, 
Projectiles flash past. Severo is howling in the comm. Their shields are down. They can't bring them up fast enough. It takes time. Iridescent blue flickers over their hull as the pulse shields power up. Too late, you sons of bitches. Too bloody damn late. I can't think. I'm screaming inside, laughing like the flames of a wildfire, laughing because I know it is my madness that these logical warriors can't fight. The bridge is close. I spare a look up, see golds inside roaring at one another, rushing to their evac suits or escape pods, staring at us approaching like Mustang did when my horses of House Mars crashed into her and packs in a muddy field. A rage is something unique, something these loon-born don't understand. Blues scatter. Obsidians pull their weapons. Two golds don breath masks and unfurl razors ready for the kill. The second before we hit, I shoot my pulse cannon. It thumps on the thick glass. I shoot again and again and again. Then I curl into a ball and smash into the thick bridge glass with the full velocity of my launch as well as a last second burst from my thruster boots. Out of me roars a madman's scream. Chapter 21 Stains I explode through the bridge like a ball of lead shot into a store of china and glass. I crash into displays and strategy desks before blasting through the reinforced metal of the bridge walls, through the steel of the hallways, till at last I slam bodily into a bulkhead a hundred meters through and past the bridge. Dazed. Can't find several. I call him over the comm. He groans something about his ass. Maybe he did shit himself. We can't hear it because of our helmets, but the ship is filled with howling as the vacuum of space sucks crew members to their deaths. It really doesn't suck them out through the shattered windows so much as the internal pressure of the ship pushes them out. Either way, blues and oranges and golds fly screaming into space. The obsidians go silently. Not that it matters. Space makes all silent in the end. My left arm spits sparks. My pulse cannon is shredded. Inside the suit, my arm hurts like hell. I have a concussion. I puke inside my helmet. Fills it with a bitter stench. Stings the nostrils. But I keep my feet, and my right arm works well enough. View shield is cracked. I stumble as I'm sucked toward the bridge, too. I crawl back through the holes I made in the walls, make it to the bridge to find the place in chaos. Crew members hold onto anything to prevent themselves from being sucked into the cold darkness. A gold girl flips past me and flies out the bulkhead. Finally, red lights flash. Emergency bulkheads slam shut all over this part of the ship to cut the pressure leak. One begins to close behind me, reinforcing a wall that I crashed through. I hold it up when I see Severo coming. The metal groans against the robotic arm of my star shell. Severo dives through just in time, and the door slams shut. Bridge is locked down, with us inside. Perfect. The pressure wind dies behind us as the durosteel slats slide over the demolished viewports. The ship's officers and crew pick themselves up from the ground, gasping for breath. But there is none.
Oxygen and pressure are still being pumped back into the room, so those with breathing masks, the golds, obsidians and blues, watch placidly as the few pink valets and orange technicians on the bridge flop like fish, gasping for air that is not there. One pink vomits blood, his lungs exploding in his chest because he tried to hold his breath. The blues watched the deaths in horror. They have never seen men die. They're used to seeing blips on the scanners disappearing, perhaps a distant ship exploding or gouting flame as it is boarded by obsidians and greys. Their understanding of the mortal coil is being adjusted. The obsidians and the gulls don't react to the scene. Some of the greys attempt to administer aid, but it is too late. By the time the pressure and oxygen levels are normalized, the low colors are dead. I'll never forget those faces. I brought them this. How many families will weep because of what I did here? In anger, I stomp my metal boot on the steel deck. Three times. And those who did nothing while their allies died turned to see several and me in our killing suits. Oh, how those gold and obsidian faces finally emote. An obsidian charges us with a force spike. Several hits him once, crushing the man's face with a metal fist. The other four link together and attack us, keening one of their hideous war chants. Severo meets them, delighted to finally be the biggest in the room. I engage a squad of greys who scramble for their weapons. This is the way it goes. We're men of metal, fighting disorganized men of flesh. Like steel fists punching the inside of a watermelon. I've never killed men with so little regard, and it frightens me how easy I find it in war. There is no ambiguity here, no violation of moral creed. These people are war colors. They kill me, or I kill them. It's simpler than the passage. Simpler that I don't know them, that I don't know their brothers and sisters, that I use metal instead of my own flesh to drive them through death's dark door. I am good at it. Better by worlds than several. And that terrifies me above all else. I am the Reaper. Whatever doubts I had in myself fall away as I feel the stain creeping over my soul. We do our best to save the blues. The bridge is large, but there aren't many obsidians or greys with projectile and energy weapons. No reason for them here. No one has ever come through the viewports. Two female gulls with razors are the true menace. One is tall and broad, the other has a quick face that is pinched with desperation as she charges us. With their razors, they could even cut our suits in half, so Severo blasts them from a distance with his pulse cannon, overloading their aegises and splashing the energy onto armor where it overloads the pulse shields and eats into the armor, melting the goals. This is why they control technology. Humans, no matter their color, are fragile as doves in the meat grinder of war. My enemy's dead. I turn now to the blues in the pits. Is there a captain? I ask. In my suit, I stand nearly a meter taller than them. They're still staring at the mess we made of the others, 
I must be a walking nightmare. Arm-spitting sparks, suit half-ruined, holding a terrible razor. I don't have all day to threaten and stomp. You are erudite men and women. This is not your ship. You merely occupy it for the gold who commands it. I now command it. So, is there a blue captain about? The captain survived. He's a placid, clean-looking man, more limbs than torso, with a fresh gash on his face that pains him terribly. He trembles and sniffles, holding the wound as though his face would fall apart were his hands to leave it. Mother would have called him a shit-eating ninny, Pris. Eo would have taken a different tack, so I stand over him and speak quietly. You are safe, I say. Do not attempt anything rash. I pop my helmet. The sick drips out. I tell him he's to go to the corner and strip off his star badge of rank. Trembling, he doesn't get a chance to obey. Severo lurches forward, takes his badge and picks him up and moves him like a doll. A long-faced, proud-shouldered woman with deep olive skin snorts at the demotion. Her gaze is peculiarly shrewd for a blue. Bald, like the rest, with digital azure tattoos swirling not only along crown and temples, but over hands and neck. Severo lopes back to me. Severo, stop pissing around. I like being big. I'm still bigger. He tries flipping me the crooks in his suit, but the mechanical fingers aren't so agile. I give orders to the blues in the tech pits that our friends in the stork are to be given access to one of the hangar bays. After settling themselves back into their stations, they obey. All here are loyal because I have them under my power. But throughout the ship, who knows? They may be loyal to the sovereign. Or they may only be loyal to the man who rules this ship. It'd be foolish to think they all operate under the same creed. I'll have to make them. I watch the stork coast into a hangar bay on a display. She's barely held together by her bolts. Two leechcraft festoon her. My howlers will have to fight off the squads of killers they contained. They might manage, but if the vanguards, obsidians and greys besiege them in the hangar, then all is lost. Sounds come now from the bulkhead that connects the bridge with the rest of the ship. A deep spine hissing. The door glows red from heat. A small pupil in the centre of the thick grey durosteel. Obsidians, or grey marines, no doubt led by some gold, endeavour to reclaim the ship. Should take them a little while. Is there a holocam in the hall? I ask the blues. They hesitate. Black space, you daft gas bags, curses the female blue I noted before. She pushes another blue out of the way and sinks her tattoos with the console. A hollow appears in one of the screens, confirming my fear. Golds lead the party attempting to make their way onto the bridge. Show me the engine room, the life support nexuses and the hangar bay, I demand. She does. Again, golds lead parties of grey marines and obsidian slave knights to secure the ship's vital systems. They'll try to wrest control of it away from me. Worse, they'll try to board or destroy the stork to kill or capture Mustang and my friends. Who wants this ship? 
I ask severely. I stalk along the raised command podium, kicking aside a body in my way and looking down at the communications blues in their pit. They dodge my gaze, two women no older than I, faces pale and fresh like morning snow now stained with tear tracks and grime. Wide cerulean eyes, raw-rimmed and shot with red. They've seen friends die today, and here I rage selfishly, acting as though this is my triumph. It's so easy to lose myself. Never forget what I am, I remind myself. Never forget. We're being hailed by a dozen ships and the Citadel Ground Command. What's happened? They want to know. Torch ships and destroyers coast warily toward us. I open a closed-circuit comm channel to the whole of my ship. Attention, crew of the vessel formerly known as the Vanguard, hereafter known as the Pax. I pause dramatically, knowing that any good song, any good dance, is a game of tension leading to a climax of sound and movement. Severo can't stop grinning boyishly at me. He looks like an imp in the huge suit, head so small with his helmet off. He makes a big motion with his hands to try to make me laugh. I shake my head at him. Now isn't the time. My name is Darrow Ao Andromedus, Lancer of the Martian House Augustus, and I have claimed this vessel as a spoil of war. It is mine. This means, per societal rules of naval warfare, that your lives are mine. I am sorry for that, because it means you will likely all die. Your lives have been dedicated to one vocation or another, electronics, astral navigation, gunnery, janitorial service, lighting and repair, martial combat. My vocation is conquest. They teach us it in schools. And in school, they instructed me on the proper method of invading, seizing, and possessing an enemy warship. After one has captured the bridge of an enemy-held vessel, the procedure taught to us is simple. Vent the ship. Severo activates the hidden console secured in the backside of the navigation display, one only golds can access. The blues recoil in surprise. It is like going into a man's kitchen and showing him a nuclear bomb hidden under his sink. The console scans Severo's golden sigil and blinks gold. All he need do is push in a code, and the entire ship will open to space. Twenty thousand men and women will die. We made these ships so we could empty them. Why? Not because we distrust your loyalty, in fact, we rely on that, but because there are still... I look at the roster one of the blues gives me. Sixty-one goals on board. They are loyal to the Sovereign. I am her enemy. They will not obey me. They will sabotage the ship, attempt to take the bridge. They will rally you abuse your loyalty, and lead you to certain death. Because of them, and their hatred of me, you will never see your loved ones again.
There is yet another complication. Beyond this hull, the Sovereign wonders what happened here. Soon she will realize the pride of her armada no longer belongs to her. It is mine. Her Praetor's ships will vomit out squadrons of leechcraft, carrying legions of obsidians and grey marines. They will be led by gold knights who want my head, fully prepared to kill all in their path. If I vent you into space, there will be no one to stop them from killing me. So, you see, you are my salvation, and I am yours. I will not sacrifice twenty thousand of you to kill sixty-one of my enemies. I chose this vessel above all others because of its crew, the best the society can offer. To me, you are not expendable. So what I ask of you is this. Choose me as your commander, and overwhelm those goals who think you expendable. You have my permission, my warrant, and the badge of the Arch-Governor of Mars, Nero Au Augustus, to capture or kill your gold commanders for me. Take their weapons and subdue them, then make fast the ship against the invaders who come to destroy us. Do it now. If you wait, they will kill you. I will know the first men and women to rise up. As your new master, I will reward you. The Arch-Governor will reward you. Do it now, for I have just opened every armory throughout the ship. Seize weapons and neutralize the tyrants. A heavy silence as the first sparks of revolution are struck. Severo comes close. That was rousing. Too democratic, I whisper. I don't think autocratic democracy counts. Severo wrinkles his nose. You did threaten to vent them into space. Threaten? I thought I implied it rather smoothly. Smooth as gravel, dipshit. Severo cackles a bit too enthusiastically and slaps his leg with his mech hand, denting the metal there. He winces, then looks up at me slightly embarrassed. Slag off! The door behind us begins to hiss. I turn to look at the glowing bulkhead. My enemies have brought a drill to assail me. My hands shake from the adrenaline. I feel the weight of dozens of blue eyes. The red of the door deepens, spreading. We haven't long. My razor ripples into killing form, long and terrible. Company soon, I say. I glance at Severo, who has been distracted by one of the hollow screens. I order the blues to take shelter. They're doing it, Severo murmurs. Gory hell. Taro, come look. He cycles through live visuals of oranges and blues ransacking the armories. Some greys help them. Others stand by, unsure of their prerogative, even as others shoot at the tide of their fellow shipmates. But no bullets can hold back this tide. They take weapons, run sloppily through halls, swelling their ranks. The roughest lead, not blues, but orange hangar workers and mechanics, along with greys. One I recognize. 
the middle-aged corporal on my ship at the academy, the one who escaped with us. He directs a score of men and women into the stateroom of a gold. They subdue him respectfully. That peaceful accord is not far spread. Three powerful squads of gulls, leading obsidians and greys, marshal in the life support rooms at the engines five kilometres back to the aft of the ship and just outside the bridge door. Those outside the bridge door number four gulls and six obsidians. Ten greys load weapons behind them. We're still going to have company, I say. They'll be coming through the door at any moment. Sparks spit from the inside of the bulkhead as their heat drill gets the better of the door. Metal drips inward, bubbling to the floor. The blues shiver in terror, and Severo and I square ourselves up and don our helmets, preparing for the new onslaught. Again, the stench of sick fills my nostrils. I tell the blues to hide in the communications bay. They'll be safe there. A com light suddenly blinks on a console near me. Instinctively I answer. A voice like thunder sends tremors through my bones. There is no visual. Can you hear me? It asks. I can. I glance over at Severo. Whoever calls is using a voice amplifier that sounds like the breaking of thunder. Severo shrugs as if he hasn't a clue who it is. Who is this? Are you a god? A god? An eerie quiet settles in me. That is no voice amplifier. I should have known by the cold, sluggish accent. I choose my words carefully, remembering my lore. I am Darrow Ao Andromedus of the Sunborn. You took the vessel, and you are not yet Praetor. How? I flew in through the bridge. Alone? From the abyss? With a companion. I will come to meet you and your companion, God-child. The blues look to one another in terror. They mouth something. Stained. The heaviness of fear settles on my shoulders. Severo and I peer around the bridge as though the beast were hiding somewhere in the shadows. More of the door peels away, dripping inward like some glowing red, rotting fruit. Then one of the blues gasps, and we glance back at the HC monitor to see the cameras in the halls outside the bridge door relaying a scene of horror. It, he, runs at them from behind as they prepare to make entry into the bridge. An obsidian, but larger than any I've ever seen. But it's not just his size. It's how he moves. A dread creature stitched from shadow and muscle and armor, flowing, not running. Perverse, like looking at a blade or a weapon made flesh. This is a creature that dogs would flee, that cats would hiss at, one that should never exist on any level above the first tier of hell. He smashes into the kill squad from behind with two pulsing white iron blades that extend out of his armor three feet from his hands. 
the greys he simply runs through, crushing them into the walls with his shoulders, splintering their bones. Then he starts the real killing. It's so savage I have to look away. The heat drill continues melting the door of its own accord, and in its centre forms a hole. Through it I can see men and women dying. Blood sizzles on the overheated metal. When the stained is done, he's bleeding from a dozen wounds, and there's only one gold left. She stabs him with a razor, piercing his dark armour through the breastplate. He twists his body, locking the blade in, and then clutching it when she lets the blade relax into a whip. Then he grabs her by her helmet, her golden armour glittering under the hall's light. She tries to escape, tries to scramble away, but like a lion with a hyena in its jaws, he needs simply squeeze. When she is gone, he lays her gently on the ground, tender now that he's brought her a good death. Severo involuntarily steps back from the door. Mother Mercy! The stained stands on the other side, the door between us slowly melting from the center. When the hole in the door is the size of a torso, he removes his helmet. A hairless, pale face stares at me, eyes black, wind-weathered cheeks armored with calluses like the hide of a rhinoceros, head bald except for a meter-long white shock of hair that hangs to his mid-back. We lock eyes, and he addresses me. God, child Andromedus, I am Ragnar Valaris, the stained firstborn of my mother, Alia Snowsparrow, of the Valkyrie Spires north of the Dragon's Spine, south of the Fallen City, where the winged horror flies, brother of Sephi the Quiet, breaker of Thanos, which once stood by the water, and I make you an offering of stains. He splays out his gigantic blood-stained hands, and then reaches through the door with his right hand. His iron blades retract into his armor. The razor still juts out from his ribs. I'm pissing my bloody damn suit. Well, frag me blind, Severa mutters. Do it, Darrow, before it changes its mind. Taking my helmet off, I step forward. I want this one. Ragnar Valaris, well met. I see you wear no badge. Do you have a master? I bore the mark of the Ash Lord, and was to be presented as a gift with this great vessel to the family Julii. But you took this vessel, and so you have taken me. The Julii? A gift for their betrayal of Augustus, no doubt. And did he just use a bureaucratic loophole to justify killing his master's men? If there's irony in his voice, I can't find it. But why would he do that? Do those black eyes of his know me? Stained cannot use tech other than military materiel. He could never have seen me before, yet his hand remains, waiting to grip mine. Why do you do this? I ask. 
Is it the Julii? They trade my kind. I had forgotten. It is Julii ships that carry obsidian slaves across the abyss. They know to fear the speared son of Victra's family crest. He is not practiced at hiding his hate. It is cold as the ice the man was born into. Will you accept these stains, godchild? He asks, leaning forward, voice plaintive, a strange worry creasing the corners of his mouth. Golds did this after the Dark Revolt, the only uprising to ever threaten their reign. We took their history, took their technology, wiped out a generation, and gave their race the poles of planets, the religion of the Norse, and told them we were their gods. A few hundred years later, I stand looking up at one of their most terrifying sons and wonder how he can think of me as a god. I accept these stains in my name, Ragnar Valaris. Terrified, I reach forward and, with superheated metal surrounding our arms, clasp hands nearly equal in size, though mine is sheathed in metal. I take the blood that his hand spreads to mine and wipe it over my exposed brow. I accept their burden and their weight. Thank you, Sonborn. Thank you. I will serve on the honor of my mother and her mother before her. I have friends aboard the Stork in Hangar Bay 3. Save them, Ragnar, and I will owe you a debt. Yellow teeth are revealed as he smiles, and from him undulates a war chant deeper than the ocean at storm. It fills the halls with dread, fills me with joy and fear and primal curiosity. What did I just gain? Chapter 22 Fire Blossom My body trembles in the aftermath of the giant's departure. Steadying myself, I turn back to the Blues, who stands transfixed, unsure whether to look at me or the HC displays or the scanners that show the Sovereign's men of war encircling us. You have nothing to fear here, I say. The captain of this ship was demoted because he left his viewports open. Foolishly. Rank does not excuse mistakes. I wish for a new captain. We haven't much time, so I will decide in sixty seconds. The proud-shouldered blue comes forward past her fellows. At first, I thought the tattoos on her hands featured floral lines. Then I noticed a stream of mathematical notations. The Larmor formula. Maxwell's equations in curved space-time. Wheeler-Feynman Absorber Theory, and a hundred others that even I don't recognize. Give me the badge and I'll carve you a hole back to Mars, boy. Her voice has no inflection. It is flat, precise and lazy all at once. Emotion bled out of it till only the letters and sounds of the words remain like equations in the air. I swear it on my life. Boy! I ask. You're half my age. Shall I call you Lord Boy, 
or will you be offended? Severo raises an eyebrow, flummoxed at the blue's bland audacity. Forgive her, Dominus, another blue says smoothly. She is an ensign with... I hold up a hand. What's your name, blue? Orion Z. Aquarii. That's a boy's name, Severo says. Is it? I hadn't noticed. Blues can be sarcastic. My sect intended for me to be a man. I surprised them. What sect? Severo asks. She has no sect. She was appropriated by the Copernican sect, but dismissed shortly thereafter for obvious reasons. That officious blue interrupts again. She's a docker. Orion flinches. She swivels on the other blue. Her voice does not rise. And what are you but a pedantic little gasp of a fart, Pelos? Hmm? You see, Pelos explains placidly, she is a docker. Emotional metrics are unmanageable. Not her fault. She is a product of her greasy environment. Bolly that, she says, stepping forward quickly. She punches Pellis in the face. He wails, falling backward like he's never been hit before, likely because he hasn't. Why would a blue hit another blue? They're test-takers, math-makers, star-charters, not fighters. I like the rude one, Severo says. Wait, Dominus, I desire the ship. Another blue slides forward, staring at Pellis on the ground. I... I deserve it. Orion is no more than a... a... laggard. Her mastery of astrophysics leaves much to be desired, to say little of her understanding of extraplanetary mass kinetics. She didn't even attend the observatory. Another blue pushes forward. Forget Arnus. He's a daughterhead at astrophysics, and his assumptions in theoretical calculus are imprudent at best. I was second in command of this vessel for six months under the Ash Lord. I served upon it while it was in its dry berth. Logic supports the maneuver to place me as your captain, Dominus. The Armada's ships continue to hail us over the comms. Men of war slide closer. Inside their bellies, brave men and women will be donning suits of armor. They'll board leechcraft and shoot into space to land on my hull, burrow their way through, praying that they will make it home to have a meal made by their mother, their spouse. All that while my blues shove and push to lead my ship, howling insults at one another's math skills and academic integrity. Don't listen to either of them, Dominus, shouts a woman in that slow accent. She falls to her knees. My name is Virga Z. Sederta. I have studied the physics of astral drift in the midnight school, far superior to the observatory. I hold, among others, a doctorate on dark matter and gravitational lensing. Let me guide your vessel, Dominus. To decide in favor of another would be specious and worse, illogical. These blues should have used their logic and seen that I look only at the woman who does not kneel like the rest of them. Orion, the first to speak, still stands, Shoulders square, long neck unbent. Her dialect is low-born, sharper, and more worldly than the dreamy lingo of these academics. 
likely from the dark city of Phobos, or the string docks near the Academy's can. If she really is a docker who didn't go to the observatory or the midnight school, I wonder about the story of how she came to be on the bridge in the first place. What about all that noise? I ask Orion, gesturing to the blues. They are full of batshit dominus. She taps a slender finger against her temple. I am not full of batshit. She smiles and nods to the displays where the other torch ships creep closer. And you're running out of time. I glance to the scanner stations where alerts signal the secretive launch of two leechcraft from the sovereigns nearby men of war and cruisers. I know I can do this, otherwise I would not have spoken out. Give me a chance. I nod to Severo, and he tosses her the captain's winged star. Get us to our fleet. Rules of engagement? She asks me. Minimal casualties, I say. We are good. The sovereign is the tyrant. That is how this must play. I, Dominus. I watch with Severo as Orion takes command of my ship and sets orders to rendezvous with Augustus's ships beyond the Rubicon beacons. The squabbling stops as soon as I appoint Orion. They know their chance has passed, so they slip into their comfortable roles as though they wished they'd never left them. Their blue sigils look like tridents against their forearms in this dimmed lighting. There's a curious remoteness to blues, an island people in the abyss of space. They were designed to survive the long journeys from Luna without mutiny. So they share. They share the same oxygen, the same food, the same bunks, the same routines, the same pits, the same commanders, the same lovers, the same sects, the same ambitions. To do their job with precision and rise high through merit so that they might honour their sect. I open a comm channel to the rest of the fleet and the satellites of Luna. They can't stop the signal. Not of this ship. Our arrays are as sophisticated as any in the Sovereign's Navy. Sons and daughters of society, this is Darrow Ao Andromedus of the House Augustus. I bring terrible tidings. Tonight, your Sovereign has broken the compact of our society. As my master... Arch-Governor Nero Augustus slept under her protection. She made attempt upon his life, the lives of his family, and those of his praetors and aides. Along with the Bologna, she attempted the illegal and immoral murder of more than thirty peerless scarred. She failed. In retaliation, I have taken one of her flagships, and I am now besieged with my life as well as those of my master and his family, at risk. If we do not fight back, we will die. If we surrender, we will die. I have not vented the ship. Those aboard have seen the merit of my cause and have allied themselves with a family that would resist the power-hungry tyrant Octavia Aulun. Close enough to the truth. Hours ago... Our sovereign told me to betray my house, to betray my vows. Like her father before her, she is drunk on power and now believes herself empress. She told us to bow. 
Witness now our reply. I turned the comm off. Mr. Pellis, as you will, Orion declares. Let the bastards have it when they come. She activates her own tattoos and sinks into digital speak with the rest of the crew. The bridge is silent. A second ticks by. Another. On the HC, I watch three greys shoot a gold in the head. In the hangars, oranges huddle to the side as golds lead war colours against the downed stork. Then Ragnar arrives in the hangar, and the oranges rally around him, as do armed reds who followed him from the halls. Many die. Something furious grips these colours, and though they die, I feel the flickering of rebellion as I give them permission to do what they've wanted to do their entire lives. It's there, even if you never see it till the end. That spark of individuality, of freedom. The door of the stork pops open, and Mustang charges out with my howlers to aid the low colours and Ragnar, though even the Telemannuses keep their distance from the monstrous man. Beyond my vessel, the enemy ships finally show their menace. The scanners swell with red. Enemies, leechcraft freshly split from the bellies of the armada around us, streak through space to find our hull. They aim to take us by storm. Orion opens broadsides. It's so beautiful, several murmurs. I stand in silence. Railgun payloads slam through leechcraft, shearing away metal and men, only to carry on and smash into the hulls and shields of the same men of war that launched the leechcraft. My newly appointed captain paces the command plank, arms crossed. My five-kilometre war vessel begins a roll, cycling through her banks of railguns as they hurl death into the face of the sovereign's fleet. Orion half turns to face me, smirking for all to see. Now, about carving that path, Dominus. She orders the engines to pound black matter. We shoot forward through the remains of two men of war. My bridge is silent but for the buzz of technical orders. Missiles flash in concert beyond our hull. We deploy our flak screens, as the enemy has now deployed theirs, rendering missiles worthless. An aura of light surrounds us like a no-man's land. Railgun ordnance smashes into our hull, though we do not feel the reverberations here on the bridge. Our equipment does not spark. Wiring does not fall from overhead compartments. This ship is the pinnacle of seven hundred years of design. Severo nudges me. We might just gory well make it. The armada around us is massive, beyond massive. It was brought here to make the gathered lords and all their fleets out past the Rubicon beacons tremble, and still it is not half the combined fleet. But now that very armada quakes from the inside like a corpulent body as some alien chews its way out of the host. We make our escape from the armada in quick fashion. They do not pursue us past the Rubicon beacons, where they are joined by our small fleet, as well as those of the Cordovan and Telemannuses, the Norvo. I hope more will flock to our banners after today's last surprise. I examine our wake, naval detritus. Bodies of men and women float behind my vessel, 
They came out of cracked and punctured ships. Some are still alive, but will soon freeze or suffocate. More dead in my path. How many will it take? I leave Orion, the bridge. Severo and I find our way to the engineering bay, where we have oranges cut us out of our mangled suits. We rush from there to the hangar, a vast metal depot scattered with ships, equipment, and now broken men. Yellows dart about aiding the wounded and carting them off to the med bay, greys and oranges helping carry. Weed prods several unarmed gulls with his razor. Pebble and Harpy help the yellows. My eyes search frantically for Mustang. I find her under one of the battered stork's wings, speaking with her father. A long wound mangles her left arm. I don't mention it. They were boarded by a leechcraft and managed to shear the other off when entering the hangar. We've put the bulk of the Sovereign's fleet behind us, I tell Augustus. Where's Quinn? Several asks sharply. Did they get her to the med bay yet? Mustang does not answer. Instead, she looks to the ramp of the stork, where Rogue descends, carrying Quinn in his arms. She's pale, long, and lifeless. Severo does not move, does not speak. His nostrils flare as a breath catches in his chest, a pitiful sob locked tight in the boy who never cries. He goes numb, ghost-like, and I reach for him, but he pulls away, not in anger, but in confusion, as though he was told the future once, and this reality is not what was promised. He stumbles backward, away from our body, looking around, before turning and fleeing the hangar. Roke walks past me with Quinn. His face is slack and tired. He wants to say something bitter, but he bites his tongue and just shakes his head at me. He still does not know why I attacked him in his room before the gala. And now this. I've never seen him so broken. Look at her, he tells me. Darrow, look at your friend. I look at Quinn and feel everything go quiet. Here she is, peaceful in death. Why can we not breathe life back into her? Why can we not simply restart the day, do everything right, save the ones we love? Roke moves away with Quinn toward the hangar's transparent pulse field, which opens into space. He's bent and broken as he walks to the stars to push his lost girl out among them. I grab the jackal when I see him exit the stork, demanding to know what happened. She died, he tells me. It's just that. He's tired like the rest of us. He rolls down his sleeves. I won't apologize. I did my best. Of course you did, I say, shaking myself. Of course. He asks me where my helmet cam is. I stare at him. The footage, he says. Do you even understand what you just did? 
he waves around. Two men took one of the greatest vessels ever built. Golds will flock to our banners. All it takes is my media and your story. I tell him absently, almost forgetting the data recorder the Sons of Ares put in my tooth to record the bomb blast. It's activated with a clench of my molars. I clenched them as soon as I sat down in the Sovereign's office. I reach inside my mouth and delicately pry it loose of the gums. It is smaller than a hair. The jackal's eyes light up. Where did you get this? he asks. Black market, I say. Sovereign has damned herself. Use the recording. Make this war a fair fight. I leave the jackal there, and am about to leave the clean-up to others when I notice the oranges and low colours watching me. I can't simply lead with violence. So I join Pebble and Harpy, and lend my aid in helping the wounded to the med bay. The rest of the howlers help too. And Mustang. And eventually, even Victra. After the last grey is loaded on a gurney, I stand in the empty hangar. Augustus has gone to the bridge. The jackal avoids the telemanesses who accompany him and instead makes for the communication hub. I'm left alone. Roke is gone. I don't know what to do. Where to go. Blood and scorch marks stain the deck. I look at my hands. These are the consequences of my actions, and I feel so alone. I lean my head against the cold metal wall. She comes from behind. I don't think she says my name. I'm not sure. I just smell her damp hair as her arms wrap around me, squeezing tightly. I know you're tired, Mustang says quietly, but several needs you. What about Roke? I ask turning to face her. So much lingers unsaid between us. So many questions unanswered. So many crimes left unforgiven. So much anger and perhaps still the faint flicker of something more. I feel it as she cups my neck and lets the strength in her fingers lend itself to me. Not now, she says. Rogue blames me. And he should. They all should blame me. And it's only going to get worse. Chapter 23 Trust I find him in a communal washroom. He's earned one of the staterooms that the others are claiming for the return voyage to Mars, but that's not how he thinks. This is still the boy who hid in the horse. No, I think. Not a boy any longer. She cared for you, Several. His arms cross before him, freckled and thin. A towel wraps around his waist, another hangs around his shoulders. Golds don't care about nudity, but Several always has. He's gained a tattoo since last I saw him a huge black and grey wolf along his back. The howlers, 
or his everything. Once they were just a tool to me. Now I think of them as something more. But what does that mean when I use them just the same? He stares at the water running into the drain of the shower. Down and down it spirals. In the end, I believe I'll enjoy war, he says. Gotta toughen my spine a bit. Callous my hands. Bastards tell us it's all roses and glory. He looks up. Don't you smell the roses, Reaper? I sit beside him on the bench. Did you hear what I said? Course I gory heard you. I'm missing an eye, not an ear. He taps his bionic eye with a bony finger. Course I know she cared, but never in the way I wanted. She deserved to live. If any of us ugly little shit-eaters deserve it, it was her. There wasn't a cruel bone in her body. Not one. But it didn't matter. It doesn't matter if we're good or we're evil. It's all up to chance. It was chance you knew her at all, I say. Chance that brought her to House Mars. No, it was my father, Severo says. He drafted her, traded a pick with Juna to get her. He shakes his head, all because he thought she would temper us, govern our anger. If he hadn't picked her, we wouldn't have met her and she'd be alive. Maybe, I say, thinking of Eo. But she chose to come here. She chose to follow me, to follow you. Just like Pax. I nod, touching my Pegasus. It's all piss and shit, isn't it? Severo says. Doesn't matter how pretty they dress it up. We're still in the game. We're always going to be in a slagging game. Spit on their empire. Spit on this piss and this shit. I came for you because he told me what you are. I stare at him, unable to understand. What do you mean? I ask with a nervous laugh. Turn it on, he says. I know you brought one. You're thorough, Reaper. Always thorough. Why are you acting so... Shut up and turn it on. I nod and activate the device in my pocket. A jam field deploys. I'm not so prideful as the Sovereign to believe no one could listen in. Severo stares at me till I shift uncomfortably. So... What am I? I ask. Even now? He asks, shaking his head. You are wound tight. Say the name of the person who sent me. Mustang sent you. You told me she brought you in from the rim. Same with all the howlers. That's right. She did. Took six months to get here from Pluto. But guess who came to me during my layover in Triton? Go on, Reap. Guess. Lorn? His lips curl into a sneer. Fitchner? Severo spits in my face right under the eye. Guess wrong again, and I leave you like this. He snaps his fingers. I will not come back. I will not help you. 
I will not bleed for you. I will not sacrifice my friends for a man who doesn't give enough of a shit about me to put his neck out just once. Trust goes both ways, Darrow. This time, you have to take a leap. He's not bluffing. And I know what I want to say. But how can that be? Several is a gold. A bloody damn gold. He heard me say bloody damn to Apollo. He covered it up, didn't he? Or was that a mistake? Is he trapping me? No. No, if that's true, then the game is already over. Eo's dream has failed. Who is closer to me than he? Who loves me more than this strange, nasty outcast? No one. So I look him in his dull gold eyes. Ares sent you. Silence between us. A terrible five seconds. Six. Seven. He stands and locks the door before pulling a small black crystal from the pocket of his crumpled pants. For your breath only. A whisper jam. I take it tenderly, knowing how much it costs, and blow against its surface. My breath makes it wobble, then shatter. Small motes of black rise, drifting up like fireflies out of the grass as dusk settles in deep summer. They coalesce, floating and forming a rough hollow that hovers between Severo and me. The spiked helmet of Ares. My son, he warbles, I am sorry. Harmony has betrayed me and initiated a campaign against our principles. I discovered her intended use of you too late, but you were wise. This is why I chose you. Steps are being taken to curb her efforts. Continue with your own. Set Augustus against Bologna and fracture the Pax Solaris. I try to ask it a question, but it is a recording, made sometime after the gala. I realize this must be difficult. I have asked too much of you already, but you must carry on. So, chaos, weaken them. You have much reason to doubt me. We have not contacted you until now, because you were watched by Pliny, by the Jackal, and by the Sovereign spies. Troublemakers breed interest, but I have watched you too, and I am proud. I know Eo would be as well. In case you doubt the veracity of this message, a friend would like to say hello. Ares' helmet fades, and Dancer smiles at me. Darrow, I want you to know, we're with you. Your family is alive and well. The end is coming, my friend. Soon you'll be with us. Till then, trust the man Ares sent. I recruited him myself. Break the chains. The image erodes, blackish light decaying into the air, and I'm left staring at the shower floor. You look good for all that surgery, Severo says. His smile is no less nasty than usual. 
Ares sent that cripple to me, the one who sent you to the Institute, Dancer. He can't say any more because I'm hugging him and crying. I sob and hold on to him, shaking, scaring him. He doesn't move except to pat me on the head. All the weight falls from my shoulders. Someone knows. He knows and he's here. He knows and he came to help me. To help me. I can't stop shaking and saying thank you. Ia was right. I was right. You are my friend. I tremble out like a child. It almost makes him cry seeing me this way. A true friend. Of course, he says, haltingly. But only if you stop blubbering, man. We're still goals. I pull back from him, embarrassed, wiping my face on my sleeve. I think I mumble an apology. My vision's bleary. I sniff. He hands me a towel which I blow my running nose into. He makes a face. What? That was for your eyes. We laugh together and then sit in an awkward silence. In time, I ask him how long he's known. He suspected something since the Institute, he says, when he heard me say bloody damn to Apollo. My voice went all thick, all rusty. Then Dancer showed him the video of my carving. Somehow they knew you could trust me, even if you didn't, shithead. Always been that way. Always will be that way. It doesn't... bother you? I ask him. What I am. Bother? That's a tiny-ass word for a gory big thing. He scratches his buzzed head. A crotch rash bothers me. Bad fish bothers me. Entitled dickweeds bother me. This, he shrugs, piss on it. You like my angle more than any other pisshead in the world. Figure I'd return the favour, even if I really am bigger than your rusty ass. I laugh at that. He would have dwarfed my red self. You must know what I'm here to do. It isn't just infiltration. It will end with the fall of the society. Rise too high, in mud you lie. That's it? I ask incredulously. You're on board? He snorts. It took me six months on a torch ship to reach you. Three months from Triton after Dancer showed me the truth. Was I confused? Damn straight. But still I boarded the ship and had three months to reconsider. Still... I am here. So, I think the time for second-guessing my commitment has passed. Anyway, my gold brethren have been trying to kill me since I was born. He looks around, uncomfortable even after all we've shared, despite the jam field. Only people to ever treat me decently, or people who don't have a reason to. Low colours. You. I think it's time to return the favour. And what of the others? I ask intensely. Pebble. Clown. Not my secret to share. Quinn would have understood, he says slowly, fighting back something. 
Rest might go along. Thistle won't. Rogue won't, not in a million years. Too in love with her own species. Don't know about the tall, arrogant one. Victra. And Mustang? I ask. I don't give love advice, shithead. He stands. Say, just because I'm a revolutionary doesn't mean I can't get a massage from a pink, does it? That would suck sack. I don't know, I laugh. I'm still figuring it out, to be honest. Slag it, I'm getting one. Back feels bloody broken. His crooked teeth bear themselves as he laughs. Feels good. That's how I know it's right, Reap. Despite all this shit, it feels good in here. He taps his thin chest. It feels... How do you say? Bloody damn good. Victra finds me after I've said my goodbyes to Severo. Augusta sent me to tell you the Ash Lord's stateroom is yours. Augustus is giving me the largest room. Your ship, your spoils, he said. You know how particular he is about order. I hope you know the way. I'm already lost. She motions me along. We walk in silence through the halls. I'm weary, but happy enough, knowing Severo is with me, that Ares still believes in me, and that Dancer is still alive out there. It's a salve on the pain from Quinn's death. I suppose you know my family has betrayed the Arch-Governor, she says. I'd heard, but you're still with us. As I said, I do what I want. Mother doesn't control me or my accounts, like she does Antonio's. She grins sideways, watching me. I like you when you're like this. Like... This? I can't help but laugh. What do you mean? I don't know. You seem calm, at ease, despite what's happened. And you seem particularly kind, I say. Kind? A quaint fiction. But we both know I'm far from kind. We walk in silence till we reach the door to my stateroom. I glance back and see Ragnar trailing in the halls behind. If it weren't for the bandages on his body, I wouldn't have seen him at all. I motion him away. At the door, I search Victra's haughty eyes. You could have sent a low colour to tell me I was to be in the stateroom. But then I wouldn't get to see you. Is that the only reason? I ask. She smiles mischievously. I think I'll keep my secrets. After a moment, she looks up at me. But I do worry for you. For me? I roll my eyes. What are you playing at, Victra? Nothing, she says, offended. You're such a hypocrite, Darrow. Me? Remember when Tactus discarded your violin because he was suspicious that you wanted something? Now you treat me the same way. Same as when I came to you in the gardens on Luna. Is it too much to believe I'm your friend and care about you? She wrinkles her nose. You're making me emotional and I hate it. I'm sorry, I say. 
You're just... I try to find the right words for the tall woman. There aren't any, so I shrug and say, It's hard knowing you're Antonia's sister. That's the full of it. But I'm not her. I realize that... Do you? She reaches out and touches my face. Her lips part searchingly. I remember the feel of them on mine before I launched myself through the spit tube. I let her kiss me then. Even if she is a cold woman, there is something in her heart for me. Different from Eo. Different from Mustang. I move gently away from her hand and shake my head. You are a strange man, she says with a soft sigh. All the vulnerability that was in her, now gone. Her claws return. She leans back against the wall opposite me, bending a knee and putting a boot on the wall, laughing at me with her eyes. Here's the victor I know. You love women, but you do not enjoy us. Smile lines crease as her lips part slightly. My eyes cannot help but trace the slender contours of her neck, the strength in her slim shoulders, and the rise of her breasts. Her eyes burn into me. There's much to enjoy. Do you even know how soft my skin is? I cough out a laugh. You're mocking me. As ever. Victor is a schemer. It's her way. But for a moment she was vulnerable, and seeing that, seeing that made all the difference. I killed the sexual tension the best way I know how. Good night, sister, I say, and kiss her on the brow. Sister? Sister? She laughs dismissively as I leave. It takes her a moment, but she calls to me. Is it because you think me wicked? I turn back to her. Wicked? Is that why you've never wanted me? She pauses, choosing her words with care. Because you look down on me? Why would you think that? I ask gently. She shrugs and looks around the hall, strangely hesitant. I don't. She twists her hands, trying to wring out the right words. She gestures to herself. This is how I survive. Do you understand? It's how my mother taught me. It's what works. What do you say we try something new? I offer. Walking back to her, I extend a hand. Darrow. Contrary to popular rumor, I don't eat glass. I love music, dancing, and I'm very fond of fresh fruit, particularly strawberries. She snorts a laugh. So stupid. We're reintroducing ourselves. No armor. Just two people. I'm waiting, I say playfully. Rolling her eyes, she steps forward looking either way down the hall. She brings up her hand, fighting back a childish smile. Victra. 
I like the way stone smells before rain falls. She makes a face, cheeks flushing red. And... Don't laugh. I actually hate the colour gold. Green goes better with my complexion. I cannot sleep. The bodies of those I've left behind float in the darkness with me. I wake a dozen times, flashes of bombs, slashing of swords ripping into my dreams. I earned these sleepless nights. I know that, and that's what makes them all the harder. I stand and pace my new quarters, wandering its expanse. Six rooms, a small gymnasium, a large bath, a study, all belonging to the man who burned a moon, the father of the Furies. How could I sleep in a room like this? I take the Pegasus pendant from my pocket, almost forgetting it's a radium bomb. Wandering the halls of the ship, ghost-like, I look behind me, wondering if Ragnar follows. I told him to sleep, but I know little of his moods, how he thinks, what he does at night. There is much to learn. I pass through dimmed halls, past orange technicians and blue systems operators, who quiet and bend as I pass through metal halls down to the bowels of the ship where golds never tread. The ceilings are lower, meant for the red workers and brown janitors. This ship is a city, an island. All the colours are here. I remember the roster. Thousands of jobs, millions of moving parts. I examine a maintenance panel. What if the orange who worked it were to overload the panel? What would happen? I don't know. I wager a few golds really do. I make a note of it. I continue on, hunger drawing me to the mess hall. Food could easily be delivered to my rooms, but my valets have not yet been organized. Anyway, I hate being waited on. In the mess hall I find someone as sleepless as myself, sitting at a long metal table. Mustang. Chapter 24 Bacon and Eggs I slide across from her. Can't sleep? I ask. She wraps her knuckles against her head. Lot rattling round. She nods to the clamour of pans back in the kitchens. The cook's beside himself, she says. Thinks I need a feast. Told him I just wanted bacon and eggs. Pretty sure he disregarded everything I said. He babbled something about pheasant. Has this earth-born accent. Hard to understand. Moments later... A brown cook stumbles out from the kitchen carrying a tray of not only bacon and eggs, but pumpkin waffles, cured ham, cheeses, sausages, fruits, and a dozen other dishes. But no pheasant. His eyes turn the size of waffles when he sees me. Apologizing for something, he sets the tray down and disappears, 
only to reappear a minute later with even more food. How much do you think we eat? I ask him. He just stares at me. Thank you, Mustang says. He mumbles something inaudible and backs away, bowing. I think the Ash Lord was a bit different from us, I say. Mustang pushes the fruit toward me. Thought you didn't like bacon, I say. She shrugs. I had it every morning on Luna. She delicately butters her waffles. Reminded me of you. She avoids my eyes. Why can't you sleep? Not much good at it. You never were, except when you have a hole in your stomach. You slept like a baby then. I laugh. I think comas don't count. We talk about anything but the things we should. Innocent and quiet, like two moths dancing around the same flame. Amazing how big the beds are, even on a starship, Mustang says. Mine's monstrous. Too big, really. Finally, someone else agrees. Half the time I sleep on the floor. You too? She shakes her head. Sometimes I hear noises and sleep in the closet, thinking if someone's coming for me, they won't look there. I've done that. Really does help. Except when the closet is big enough to fit a family of obsidians, then it's just as bad. She frowns suddenly. I wonder if obsidians cuddle. They don't. Her eyebrows rise. Have you researched it? I finish a handful of strawberries, shrugging as Mustang frowns at my manners. Obsidians believe in three types of touch. The touch of spring, the touch of summer, the touch of winter. After the Dark Revolt, where the Obsidians rose in arms against the Iron Ancestors, the Board of Quality Control debated destroying the entire colour. You know how they gave them religion, stole their technology, but what they wished to kill most of all was the incredible kinship the Obsidians then possessed. So they instructed the shaman of the tribes, bought and paid for liars, to warn against touch, saying it weakened the spirit. So now the Obsidians touch one another in sex. They touch each other to prevent death, and they touch each other to kill. No cuddling. I notice her watching me with a small smirk. But of course you knew all that. I did. She smiles. But sometimes it's nice to remember all that's going on inside you. Oh. I look away as she tries to hold my gaze. I forgot you can blush. She watches me for a moment. You probably don't know this, but one of my dissertations on Luna concentrated on mistakes in the sociological manipulation theorems used by the Board of Quality Control. She cuts a sausage delicately. I deemed them short-sighted. The chemical sexual sterilization of the pink genus, for instance, has led to a tragically high suicide rate within the gardens. Tragically. Most would have said, 
inefficient. The rigidity of laws maintaining the hierarchy are so strict they'll one day break. Fifty years from now? A hundred? Who knows? There was this one case we studied where a gold woman fell in love with an obsidian. They had a black market carver alter their reproductive organs so his seed was compatible with her eggs. They were found out and both were executed. The carvers killed. But things like this have happened a hundred times. A thousand. They're just scrubbed from the record books. It's terrible, I say. And beautiful. Beautiful? I ask, repulsed. No one knows of these people, she says. No one but a handful of golds with access. The human spirit tries to break free again and again, not in hate like the dark revolt, but for love. They don't mimic each other. They aren't inspired by others who come before them. Each is willing to take the leap, thinking they are the first. That's bravery. And that means it's a part of who we are as people. Bravery. Would she say that if she knew one of those people sat across from her? Does she live in the world of theories Harmony spoke of? Or could she really understand? So how long, I wonder, she continues, till a group like the Sons of Ares finds the records, broadcasts them? They did it with Persephone, the girl who sang. It's only a matter of time. She pauses, squinting at me as I react involuntarily to the mention of Io. What's wrong? I can't tell her what I'm thinking, so I lie. Dissertations, sociology, you and I specialize in very different things. I always wondered what your life was like on Luna. Mustang eyes me playfully. Oh, so you thought about me? Maybe. Day and night. What is Mustang wearing? What is she dreaming about? What boy is she kiss? She winces at that last part. Darrow, I want to explain something. You don't have to, I say, waving her off. With Cassius, it... Mustang, you don't owe me anything. You weren't mine. You aren't mine. You can do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want. I pause. Even though he is a gory damn jackass. She snorts a laugh. The humor fades as fast as it came. There's pain in her eyes, in her half-opened mouth. Her idle knife and fork hover over her forgotten plate. She looks down and shakes her head. I wanted it to be different, she murmurs. You know that. Mustang. I rest my hand on her wrist. Despite her strength, it's frail in my hard hands. Frail as the other girl's was when I held her in the deep mines. I couldn't help that girl. And now I feel like I can't help this woman. Would that my hands were meant to build 
I would know what to say, what to do. Maybe in another life I would have been that man. In this one, my words, like my hands, are clumsy. All they can do is cut. All they can do is break. I think I know how you feel. Mustang jerks back from me. How I feel? I didn't mean... I pause, hearing a noise. We look over and the cook stands there awkwardly with another tray. He tiptoes forward, sets it down, and then leaves the room, backing away awkwardly. Dara, shut up and listen. She peers fiercely up at me through the strands of hair that have fallen across her face. You want to know how I feel? I'll spit it out at you. All my life I've been taught to regard my family over all else. What happened with my brother at the Institute, when I handed him over to you, that set me against everything I was raised to do. But I thought that you... She takes a deep breath that wavers at the end were a person who earned my loyalty, and I thought that it would be so much more important if I gave it to you in that moment than to Adrius, who has never lifted a finger on my behalf. I knew it was the right thing to do, but it was a repudiation of my father, of all he taught me. Do you even know what that means? He has broken families as easily as other men break sticks, he wields unimaginable power. But more than that, he is the man who taught me to ride horses, to read poems, and not just the military histories. The man who stood beside me, letting me raise myself up by my own strength when I fell. The man who couldn't look at me for three years after my mother died. That is the man I rejected for you. No, she corrects herself, not for you, for living differently. Living for more, more than pride. At the Institute, you and I decided to break the rules, to be decent in a place of horror. So we made an army of loyal friends instead of slaves. We chose to be better. Then you spat in the face of that by leaving to become one of my father's killers. She puts a finger in the air. No, don't speak. It's not your turn just because I pause. She takes her time in gathering her thoughts, pushing away her plate. Now, I'm sure you understand that I felt lost. One, because I thought I'd found someone special in you. Two, because I felt you were abandoning the idea that gave us the ability to conquer Olympus. Consider that I was vulnerable lonely, and that perhaps I fell into Cassius's bed because I was hurt and needed a salve to my pain. Can you imagine that? You may answer. I squirm on my cushion. I suppose. Good. Now shove that idea up your ass. Her lips make a hard line. I am not some frill-wearing tramp. I am a genius. I say this because it is a fact. 
I am smarter than any person you've ever met except perhaps my twin. My heart does not make my brain a fool. I sought out a relationship with Cassius for the same reason I let the Sovereign think she was turning me against my father. To protect my family. She looks down at her food. I've always been able to manipulate people. Men, women, it makes no difference. Cassius was a walking wound, Darrow, raw and bloody, despite the fact it's been two years since you killed Julian. I saw it in him in a second, and I knew how I could make him love me. I gave him someone who would listen, someone who would fill the void. The sternness in her voice fades. She looks around as if she could escape the conversation she started. If she stopped, I would be happier for it. I made him think he could not live without me. I knew it was the only thing that could keep the rest of my house safe. I knew it was the best weapon I could wield in this game. Yet, I felt so cold, so horrible, like I was the cruel witch snaring Odysseus, making him fall in love, keeping him from my own selfish aims. It seemed so logical, and when he put his arms around me, I felt like I was drowning, like I was lost, suffocating under the weight of all I'd done, suffocating knowing there was a life ahead of me with someone I did not love. Yet it was for family. It was for the people I love, even if they don't deserve it. Many have sacrificed more. I could sacrifice that. She shakes her head. The tears that built there mirroring those that well in my own eyes. They fall when she says, Then you walked in at the gala and and it was like the ground had broken open to swallow me. I felt like a fraud, a wicked girl who'd contrived a reason to do something stupid. She tries to wipe her eyes. Can't you see why I did it? I didn't want you to die. I don't want you to die, not like my brother Claudius, not like Pax. I would have done anything to stop it. I can stop it. You're not invincible, Darrow. I know you think you are. But one day you'll find out you aren't as strong as you think you are, and I'll be alone. She goes silent, as all that is welled up inside her breaks loose. She does not sob, but the tears come. She's the type of woman to be embarrassed by them. It breaks me to see this. You are not wicked, I say, as I take her hand in mine. You are not cruel. She shakes her head, trying to pull away. I take her jaw between the fingers of my right hand and bend her head till her eyes find a home in mine. And what you do for the people you love cannot be judged. Do you understand? I deepen my voice. Do you understand? She nods. It should not be this way. The goals have everything. 
yet they demand sacrifices even from their own. This place is sick, this empire broken. It eats its kings, its queens, as hungrily as it does the paupers who mill its earth. But it cannot have this woman as it had the girl I buried. I will not let it devour her. I will not let it devour my family in Lycos. I will break it, even if it claims me in the end. I wipe the tears from her face with my thumb. She is different from her people, and when she tries to do as they do, it cracks her heart to the core. Looking at her, I know I was wrong. She's not a distraction. She does not compromise my mission. She is the point of it all. Yet I cannot kiss her. Not now, when I must break her heart to break this empire. It would not be fair. I've fallen in love with her, but she's fallen for my lies. You can't trust him, she says quietly. Who? I ask, startled by her sudden words. My twin. She whispers as though he sits in the corner of the room. He's not a man like you. He's something else. When he looks at us, when he looks at people, he sees sacks of bone and meat. We don't really exist to him. I frown as she clutches my hand. Darrow, listen to me. He is the monster they don't know how to write stories about. You cannot trust him. The way she says it makes me know she understands our pact. I don't trust him, I say, but I need him. We can win this war without him, she says. I thought you said I wasn't strong enough. You're not, she says with a smile. Not by yourself. She dons her lopsided grin. You need me. If only it were so simple. I leave Mustang from my rooms soon after. The halls are quiet, and I feel a shade drifting through some metal realm. I don't know how to accept her help, or how I should handle her. Seeing her with Cassius wounded me more than I'll ever tell her, and part of me knows not all of it could have been a manipulation. He was never a monster, and if he ever becomes one, I know it'll be because of me. The door to my suite hisses open. A hand settles over my shoulder. I turn to see Ragnar's chest. I didn't even hear him. Someone breathes inside. Theodora, probably. She's my pink steward. You like her? Gold breath. I nod not asking how he knows, and take my razor from my arm. It whispers into a sword as I step through. The lights are on, muted. I search the suite's rooms with Ragnar to find the jackal sitting in my lounge with a sherry. He chuckles at our weapons. 
I do admit I am quite threatening. He's wearing a bathrobe and slippers. I excuse Ragnar. With his wounds he should be resting. Reluctantly he trudges out. Seems no one sleeps on this ship, I say, as I join the jackal on the couch. I imagine we have to restructure our arrangement a bit. Fond of understatements, aren't you? He sips the liquor and sighs. Thought I'd drown in that damn lagoon. I always thought my death would be something grand. Launched into the sun, beheaded by a political rival. Then when it came... He shudders, looking so very frail and boyish. It was just a careless coldness, like the rocks of the Institute falling all around me again in that mine. He's right. There is no warmth in death. I cried like a child when I thought I was dying after Cassius stabbed me. Obviously, this changes our strategy, but I don't believe it must change our alliance. Nor do I, I agree. We'll need your spies more than ever. Pliny won't take my ascension lightly. And you're stuck here in your father's cord. The Politico will try to remove us both. I make no mention of the sons of Ares. As I guessed, they were forgotten by all as soon as I tipped that wine into Cassius's lap. Pliny will have to go. But you and I should maintain social distance until then, so he doesn't know the threat against him is unified. Better for him to misunderstand our individual resources. And so the Telemannuses still talk with me, I say. True, they do want me dead, as they should. I don't begrudge them it. It's just damn inconvenient. He hands me a holocom from his pocket. They're synced. I'll be calling my ships to meet us, and I imagine you'll stay here with your new prize. Wouldn't do to have shuttles going back and forth. I want to ask him about Leto. Why he killed him. But why show a devil you know his strength? It just makes me a threat to him. And I've seen how he deals with threats. Better to play ignorant and make sure I'm always useful. War presents us with more opportunities, I say, depending on how far we want it to spread. I do believe I take your meaning. All others will try to suffocate the flames, to preserve what they have, especially Pliny and your sister. Well, then we must be cleverer. She doesn't get hurt. That part of our agreement is static. If ever she's wounded, I believe it'll be from you, not me. He might be right. But I'm on your level. Fan the flames. Spread the war. Win it. Take the spoils. I think I know just how to do it. What can your network tell me about the shipyards of Ganymede.